The Coco Nation Show is an unscripted, live, and interactive broadcast. Anything can and will happen. The views and opinions expressed by members of the panel and the live audience are their own, and not necessarily those of the Coco Nation Show, its sponsors, affiliates, or subsidiaries. Open minds are encouraged, and a sense of humor is recommended. Thank you for being a part of the Coco Nation. Radio Shack. Okay. What? The 80s called. Welcome to the Coco Nation. The world's first live and interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer and its hardware cousins. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Coco Nation Show, episode three and a quarter. Uh, today we have a special <laughs> guest, Matt Harper, developer of uh, Wizard's Den, is it? Correct. Hi. Okay. Aaron, trying to do that off memory, so cool. Um, all right, let's see. Who we got on the panel with us today? And I need to flip a switch over here. That way everyone's on the same page. All right. Top left corner, we got Marco. Glad to be here, as usual. Next over, L. Curtis Boyle with the news. Welcome to the show, everyone. Okay, yeah, Sloopy Malibu. Greetings. And in the top right corner, yours truly. Hi. All right. Here's a turn. Line feed. Ron Delvo. Hey, speaking of the 80s, the color computers, one, two, and three, happened then. Yes, they did. Thankfully. Uh, next over, Bob Emery. Howdy, everyone. Okay. Uh, our special guest, Matt Harper, is next, and we'll come back to you. Hi. Uh, Rick Euland. You're muted, Rick. L lips are moving, but no sound. Oh, well, I wanted to say that I was also available throughout the 80s, so howdy, folks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And next up, Jason, CocoMan.biz. He's stationary today. I am stationary. Rick, I think you oh. sounded better the first time. Okay, I'll go back. Been on any roller coasters falling apart? None falling apart, but I did ride two new coasters yesterday. But uh, I have ridden that coaster that was in the news. I've ridden it several times, and it's repaired and reopened now. Down well, no, it uh, fell apart again, I heard. I would, uh a second time. No, it's it's reopened. Okay. After the second crack? I think that was uh, uh, untrue. Okay. okay. Or, or fixed on the first time. Fake news that got into my phone. Mm. Let's see. Kevin Holloway. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Right. Next up, uh, David Ladd. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Please stay a while and enjoy. So subtle. 
Okay. And we'll look for the real David Ladd here in a bit. Um, let's see. <laughs> Alan. I can't do a David Ladd today. I'll probably throw my voice out. Howdy, everybody from beautiful burning South Texas. We have now achieved the the entry to the atmosphere of the sun. It's awesome. Yeah, we hit 108 here yesterday. Amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> they got right. humidity, Ron. <laughs> We had rain. It was like 75 here. It was great. We've had humidity with extreme temperatures. The state is now outside of Coco's operating temperatures. Mm -hmm. Right. When it's off, it's too hot. (laughs) Exactly. Let's see. Uh, Bottom row, we got Brian Weasler. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Okay. And last but not least, Nick Morentes. Um, uh, hang on a sec. Um, uh, did you say the eighties are over? <laughs> no, no, no one would say that, Nick. You, you know. Oh, this, sorry, I thought I missed. I thought no, I missed you, something. You saw the like phone call, right? I, I think that's even more false than that roller coaster breaking down a second time. <laughs> this dang fake. Good day, everyone. <laughs> sorry, that's that. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the panel introductions. Uh, so with us today, Matt Harper, our special guest. And take it away, Curtis. Okay. Well, welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for agreeing to be on. Yeah. Thanks. Welcome Thank to the show, Curtis, too. Yeah. Thanks for You'll having me. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we have a couple of standard questions we ask all of our interview guests here. And uh, we'll start with that. So the first one is, what was the first computer you ever used? This could be in school, at a friend's house, whatever. Hmm. Or if your first time you ever was at home, that counts too. So, you know, um, at Kent State University uh, in Ohio, um, I actually got let on a mainframe there um, when I was probably, uh, I don't know, I must have been in third or fourth grade. <laughs> I don't Like a Vax or something like that? Or what kind of a mainframe um, do you remember? That's interesting. I, I think I think it was like a uh, like a IBM 360 or something like oh, that. Okay. And you know it had a uh, you know tel- tele like a teletype uh, type uh, IO for it. You know there were no screens or anything. It was all on paper. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and, and we got we got allowed uh, access to like a basic interpreter on or whatever. And uh, uh, you know for a little kid it was somewhat frustrating. But I remember begging my mom to continuously take me over there to to get access to it. <laughs> <laughs> At least you didn't bugger to buy you one. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> So what was the first microcomputer you ever used? Uh, so um, I saved up my money and I bought myself a uh, Timex Zinclair was ZX1000. And I got the, uh, I think it came with like 4K of memory and I bought the uh, extended 16K memory module for it. So that. Yeah, was, that was the what, clone of the, the ZX81 from, or not clone, but, you know, relicensed basically ZX81. I think it was 2K, wasn't it? It's 2K. Yeah, 2K. It's 2K. Yeah, 2, 2K. Okay. I, so that, I that, have my 1K ZX here. So it was it was pretty horrific. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> it was cheap. The, 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 I think the most frustrating thing about it was, you know, the keyboard was horrible and the uh, power um, cable tended to fall out while you're working on it. So, you, you know, hmm. you'd be a uh, couple hours into typing something into it and then the power cable would pop out. <laughs> well, then there's the wiggly RAM pack you plug in. 
Yeah. My uncle, my uncle actually put Velcro in his, so it wouldn't do that. Yeah, I was pretty, pretty, pretty careful on the Ram pack thing, but it, it was still a pretty frustrating computer. So how long did you end up using that before you got a Cocoa? And did you like get the Cocoa yourself or did your family get it? Or No, I, I got a, uh, I grew up pretty poor and, you know, my family didn't have money for anything like that, but I, I, uh, you know, I got a paper route and stuff like that. And, uh, I ended up, uh, you know, probably a few years after that, I saved up the money and bought a, uh, a, a Cocoa two, and then, uh, paid to actually have it upgrade to, uh, 64 K. I think that was back when you could take them into Radio Shack and they'd actually solder RAM chips on it or something like that. Okay. Yeah, I did the paper thing too for my Cocoa One. Like I got a 4K, but I saved up for over a year before my mom and dad finally said, ah, if you're saving up and you're this serious about it, we'll, we'll chip in half. So I only had to pay 250 of it. So Okay. Yeah, I think it kind of confused my parents, the whole uh, the whole computer thing. They didn't really know what to what to make of it. So... So you didn't have like a video game console, like an Atari or anything at home either, then, eh? No, I didn't didn't have that. So, was, and and you know, um, it, it seemed like in the area I was at, there weren't that many like computer user groups and things like that. I know at the local library there was one for apples, like you know, Apple twos or whatever. But that was kind of the only like local groups that were around. Um, but I did yeah, have, and you had to be rich to get an Apple too. I mean, yeah, yeah, that was exactly. expensive. <laughs> So I had a couple friends who uh, had Cocos as well. That's probably what got me interested in them. Um, and, and I, you know, one of the other really interesting things about the Coco was, um, you know, when you look through the manual and stuff like that, they actually had like a hardware diagram at the in the back of it. And, you know, that kind of got me interested in electronics as well. You know, at one point when I was a little kid, you know, I was looking at that and, you know, I'm looking through uh it was like a digikey manual and stuff like that. And it was like looking, it's like, wow, you can like buy all these things. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, that kind of got me interested in like building computers when I was a little kid too. So, you know, actually. So did you get it into hardware a fair bit then? Like, did you start doing like designing your own boards or, you know, doing yeah, your own yeah. upgrades and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So just mostly like wire wrap stuff like that. Um, but, you know, some of the startups I've done and things I've done hardware for them as, as well. But, you know, I'm primarily a software person. Okay, well, that's cool. Uh, so, when, when about like what what time frame are we looking at where you got the Coco Two? Then I guess uh, that like... must have been like probably in the early eighties or something like that. Maybe like like maybe like eighty one, eighty two, eighty three. I'll be later than that. Coco Two didn't come out till um, fall of eighty three. Oh well, it must have been right around then. Then okay, so right when they're brand new. Do like, you remember if it had the melted keycaps or to have the full travel keyboard? Um. It, I think it, I, for some reason, I think it had like the chiclet type keys. They were like kind of square and. Oh, so like a gray case? Yeah, gray not case, a white. Gray, yeah, okay, that's a Coco One then. Okay. Oh, okay, so I had a Coco One. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you might have got around 81, 82 then. Okay. At that, that point. I mean, if you upgraded 64K, that would probably would have been about 82, 83, because before that, they only did upgrades to like 16 or 32 on the earliest models. Gotcha. That kind of makes sense. So that, that's probably about the time frame then. So <laughs> thanks for the correction. Oh, no problem. <laughs> I'm doing this show for years. Yeah. Um, so I guess you, you said you got you'd already gotten interested in programming from using the, the IBM 360 or the mainframe that at the at the university type thing or college. Um, so when you got the Coco, were you were you doing basic programming first, then in a machine language, or you'd already learned enough on the other things that you started getting into ML right off the bat? Or you know the the ZX eighty one the uh, the um, or I'm sorry the um, 
the was the time the, the 1000 yeah in in the manual of it you know it had this this cryptic stuff in the back of the manual it was like basically like op codes and that you could type in and there was basically you could sort of like uh hand you know assemble little programs that did kind of trivial things and the and the uh the thing was like so horrifically slow that you know when you'd code these things in machine code it was like almost magic on it you know you could like clear the screen and like instantaneously versus if you did it in basic it might be a couple seconds to clear the screen yeah. or something and so i think that was probably the first time you know i did any machine code or anything but uh, i don't think i had a, a really a firm understanding of exactly what it was you know it was more along the lines of kind of you know magic or whatever but you know on the coco i kind of educated myself enough to the point um uh, you know uh you know where you know, i first did a bunch of basic stuff and then you know i kind of got interested in you know trying to knock out some games and things like that and and that's where uh uh you know i started doing machine code uh um you know, on it. Did you did you ever try publishing any of your basic or basic ML hybrid stuff like through one of the magazines like Rainbow or Hot Coke or anything like that? Or no, um, I, I did have subscriptions to Rainbow and and Hot Coke. I think it was Hot Coco. Um, I had subscriptions to both of those. One of my friends, uh, his name's Daryl Olm. He actually published a whole bunch of stuff on. There was some sort of service where you could uh, submit kind of little programs and. Like they'd send you a tape every month or something like, like T&D or something like that. Maybe that might have been who that name sounds familiar. And I've started going through T&D for my website. So that yes, yeah, so, I'm remembering it. He, he was a friend of mine that had one. You know, he he wrote a bunch of like little utilities and things like that. Um, you know, I think he did. I think he did some assembly stuff as well. But, uh, you know, he was like a year or two older than me. And uh, I don't know. Are you, are you still in contact with him at all or? You know, I've talked to him a few a few years back. It's funny. I actually ran into him in an airport. <laughs> and that was probably uh, five or six years ago. But, you know, he's a like a computer science professor now. So uh, it's kind of well, if you get in contact with again, maybe maybe send him our way. I wouldn't mind talking to him either and just to see what you know, oh, what yeah, stuff he did too. yeah, he'd, he'd probably be a pretty, pretty interesting guy for you to talk to. Uh, he, I'm sure he's got a lot of uh, Coco stories for you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you want to come in and co-interview, we've, we've done that a few times where people that have known each other back in the day help interview each other type thing. Yeah, and that usually that, works that up pretty well. interesting, sure. <laughs> okay, yeah, just throwing it out there. Um, so had you attempted to do any games before that you completed and were fairly happy with? You just did, gave them to friends or something, didn't really release them? Or, or did you kind of get into the whole Wizard's Den and then that was the first one you really concentrated on? You know, that was really the first one that I did, you know, that was polished. You know, I did sort of just kind of little toy things, you know, guys moved around on the screen and things of like that and kind of exploring how to do animation and, you know, building some tools and things like that. Um, you know, I, I had actually built another game I never released. It was this game I called Traps. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like a exploration game. But, you know, the whole thing was kind of filled with uh, trap puzzles. You know, that were all kind of like animated things. It was it was actually a pretty cool game, but uh, you don't have to still have it or know anybody who no, still has a copy. Eh? <laughs> not, I mean, I, probably the only guy that you know ever even saw it was Daryl. So <laughs> the other guy I was mentioning. So 
So did you actually give each other stuff when you guys worked on it, or did you guys just kind of show it to each other and that was the end of it? Type well, thing? I mean, I, I definitely gave him some copies of stuff that I that I did. Um, I don't really recall him giving me any stuff, but he <laughs> did. <laughs> I don't know. He, he wanted his royalties from TND, I guess. <laughs> Okay, so that I mean, Wizards Den is is actually it's a fairly complex. We've covered it on the show before because it was one of our game on challenges, and the Coco Nation covered it a couple months ago too. And it's kind of a an RPG hybrid arcade game type thing. Like it's not strictly yes. one or the other. So it was there was no design up front. It's just basically one of these things where he sat down and started coding on it, and you know it evolved in, into what it what it is. You know, there's no planning. Um, you know, I some of the techniques, you know, that are used in it, like, you know, double buffering and things like that. I mean, I, you know, probably independently discovered these <laughs> techniques. <laughs> you know, little little kids don't know much, you know, and I, I didn't really have many like game examples to actually look how they're coded or anything. Um, you know, one of the one of the games I think that was that I saw that I was pretty inspired by was I don't know if you recall this game Bugs that was in. uh yeah, Dave Chuchin and, and Roland Knight in Color Computer Magazine. Yeah, yeah, and Color Computer. That so so they actually had a listing in there, and that was actually pretty pretty educational. Just like reading through that, um, so so that would certainly be a you know an inspiration. And then um, you know we used to hang out in the arcade and stuff like that, and then saw a lot of a lot of video games there. You know, Gauntlet certainly was uh, uh, around in the time frame where where I wrote Wizards Den. So. Oops. Yeah. Did you ever see the game Time Bandit by Mitch Tron slash Computer Shack? Because that that was one that a couple people mentioned. It it, it has so some I've vague seen, similarities too. I've seen pictures of it. I think in Rainbow Magazine, um, and, and I think I saw like some of their trees or whatever. And I, I probably drew inspiration from those when I did the graphics for uh, for Wizards Den. Uh, yeah, because that one was a strictly side scrolling. Yours actually is four way scrolling, so you you took it up a, a notch, definitely past that. But yeah, and, and you know, one of the other things I think you'd you'd notice about my game versus others is how much of the screen real estate actually moves. So most games, um, you know, that are what was it like mode six, which was the like the highest res uh, yeah. thing, um, they would basically compress the screen. Um, both vertically and uh, horizontally, uh, you know, by putting like menu bars and things like that. So they didn't have to update as much of the screen. And I think, you know, if you look at Wizards Den, if you look at the amount of scrolling that's actually going on uh, and the amount of like active screen updates, it, it should be pretty shocking when you go and compare that to other games. Because I use a special technique in the how to how to move memory and stuff. And I'll, I'll kind of talk about that a bit in the little presentation I did. Okay, I'm going to take a guess up front. It was stack blasting, but anyway. Yeah, so yeah, it was basically <laughs> like massive pushes and pops. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was a common technique um, for programmers that, that knew it. Like Steve Bjork, he's the one who first told me about it. He did a ton of stuff for Tandy. Okay. Um, and then, you know, some of the games for the Coco 3 and stuff, because now you had a machine that had twice the CPU speed, but the graphics screens were four to five times bigger. <laughs> so you had even more memory to move around. So that was a, that was a common technique to try to, you know, get the speed back up. Yep. Um, now, one one thing, like when we we talked over via email and stuff earlier that you'd mentioned then, and this is something I had not known until I got in contact with you, is that you were still in high school when you wrote this, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I was. I was probably, I don't know, uh, I probably started work on it. was like 13 or 14 or something like that. And how, how long did it take to, to make it? 
I don't know. I, I probably worked on it for uh, maybe like two years or something like that. And, and you're uh, kind of like learning as you go, too. I mean, yeah, this is your first and, machine language real project, right? Yeah, for the first real, real big thing. And and the, the, the tools I had to develop it were pretty bad. I mean, I only had one Coco. And uh, I think... I think I was originally trying to do it with one disk drive and eventually I got two disk drives because, I mean, the source code on it was so big that it was actually really difficult to even even compile it. Um, I kind of remembered you actually had to swap floppy disks like partway through, like through the compilation (laughs) process. And the, the assembler actually supported this, which is pretty shocking. Well, that brings my next question. What were your development tools? You mentioned that you created some of your own tools, I'm assuming for graphics and maps and stuff like that. Um, But the actual assembler, did you use like Tandy's disk ed Tasm or did you use Microworks or Sir Comp or? I'm trying to remember what the assembler was. Um, So I think I used VIP writer to edit the code. Okay. Um, you know, because I needed a word processor that could handle some big files. And um, I'm trying to think uh, on the assembler, it definitely wasn't EdTasm. It was something that ran off of off, off of disk. Um, I remember that. Yeah, I would guess probably Sircom or Microworks because they had the big advancements that a lot of the Cocoa people used. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it was it was uh, it, it definitely it was some some commercial thing. I don't recall how I got it. I, I must have purchased a copy of it because, like I said, I didn't really know people that had, uh, you know, had access to stuff like that. And you never made it to one of the Rainbow Fests or anything to to no, meet some of the other people. I wish I, wish I had. <laughs> I, I remember seeing advertisements as a little kid and thinking, like, how 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 can I get there? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you have an open invite to come out to Cocoa Fest. They're still going on. It's in Chicago area every year, and we've got another one coming up in May. So if you want to come by and be a special guest. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so you took about two years. Now, because you said you kind of were winging it, you were kind of learning how to do the assembly language programming, learning the techniques for doing you know, the right. graphics and stuff. You were also kind of designing the game on the fly. Like you said, you didn't have a pre-plan or anything else. No, so about how much of that two years do you think was divided between designing the game and levels and graphics and how to, you know, how the gameplay was going to work versus the actual coding? Um, I think that it was completely intermixed. Like I would think something up and then just code it up and, then, <laughs> and move on to the next thing. I mean, like, like the graphics tools and stuff like that. So I wrote a little tool that was a, um, like a graphics editor and it kind of let you do, I mean, it was kind of designed to do graphics, uh, but it, it would also animate them so that you could basically draw all the, the images and then it would show you an animation of what it would look like. Um, Cause you know, if, if you look at the characters um, in the game, some of the characters are kind of have simplistic animations and other ones, uh, you know, like if you look at uh, the monsters, the monsters, when they move, uh, some of them have like uh, uh, left, right animations. And inside of that, they'll have like maybe like two different images that correspond to them in each direction. Some of the monsters have uh, four uh, directional uh, uh, images with like two animations in each direction. But then the main character actually had four directions and then it had bit shifted animations where uh, basically, you know, the main character actually moved one bit at a time. But that was just done by basically switching which animation was used. So yeah. because, because your main focus was always on the, the uh, you know, on your guy, 
you know, I did, I, I kind of developed some, you know, good techniques to make that animation look a lot better, you know, but the amount of memory required to do that type of animations, I don't know. I think that guy was like either 4k or 8k or something like that. It was a lot of animations. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. You definitely needed 64k for that one. Yeah. And I believe you loaded each level off disc as you went to, didn't you? I don't think it was all in memory at once. That's right. Um, you know, I talked a little bit about that in the presentation, but it, it, it basically, I, I, I kind of my my recollection is is the the way it worked was um the bottom memory was used for the two graphics screens and then all the uh uh graphics for the animations was down there and the program code was down there and the whole upper memory the full 32k was the actual level um and the the way the game the way the game actually worked was um the levels uh, each each kind of position was like one represented by one byte, and I believe the maps were like 180 uh, bytes by 180 bytes. And then when it uh, actually moved it to the screen, each byte uh, was then translated to uh, 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 eight bytes. So you know each each byte that you got would basically turn into like eight bits of graphics, and then. Uh, and eight know, lines high, so like a tile system kind yeah, of. Yeah, it, it was a tile system, and then the system also supported um, uh, animations between the tiles. So if you look in the game, you'll actually see a bunch of the backgrounds actually shifting and stuff like that. So there was a finite state machine that basically, uh, you know, looked at all the blocks on the screen, and it would actually change like what the background uh, block. Uh, number was and so that's how animations worked is certain uh you know certain uh tiles actually you know change to other tiles and kind of walk through it at a finite state machine okay um i'm just going to share a screen here so i've got a queued up of the coco uh show with baron boat and aaron unfortunately neither one of them can make it today they were hoping to but didn't happen but just so some people that have not seen the game before will kind of see what we're Okay. Talking about as far as the animation, what the graphics look like and stuff. Um, it's going to find the right window here. So while you're loading, I have a question. Are there any cheat codes or other stuff hidden in the game? So there, there are. There's, uh, there's cheat codes to basically give you infinite lives, infinite potions. Um, I think there was... Uh, one to give you a uh, massive shot power or something like that. I, I was intending to actually disassemble the game to go find out what the cheat codes were, but uh, I didn't get a chance to go do that. Five bucks did, a piece for Mitchell. Did you remember if they're uh, like just an open ASCII or are they encrypted in some way? So my, my recollection is that uh, um, there's some sort of finite state machine that you know it looked for certain characters and then it would basically like you know while you're looking for the arrow characters i think it was also looking for those uh special keys and so probably just change some state variable and and i don't recall if you could do it at any time or if you could only do it on the uh the screen before you entered okay i guess we'll have to have some of our assembly language gurus uh with time so that counts me out <laughs> see if they can go figure out what they are Poor Buck Owens probably already knows him. <laughs> That's true. Actually, he doesn't really right. need to know him. He's a good game player without him. Right, he just wins it. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. The, the, the way to win the game is is actually don't fight things. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> the easiest way to win. 
Yeah, just to go around and collect stuff like you're supposed to. Yeah. 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 The uh the ending the ending couple levels are pretty nasty though. Um yeah, there's some there's some area. I think there's one level where like half of its bones or something like that. So when, when you go through it, it's just working your health down the whole time. <laughs> so so is is my screen share coming through on the stream there, uh, Mark? Yep. Okay, because I will I'll play a little Okay, I'm going to play a little clip here with the audio because, I mean, Bo and Aaron are funny. And I won't play, you know, a lengthy one here. So people want to go see their review of the game. And they quite liked it. I'll, I'll give you a bit of a spoiler alert there. But their reviews, as usual, are hilarious. So and it'll also show you a little bit of the gameplay so people can kind of see what the game looks like. Now, the game at the top, this is a game that actually has a um, an area for information that doesn't suck. Yes. It's actually good. It, it tells you your status. The status itself is hilarious. It's got a long list of different statuses. So the status goes all the way from, uh, you know, when you're walking around and say like you're in great shape, and you, know, you kind of start out in great shape, then you can, but you can rapidly deteriorate through bruised, badly hurt, near death, and dead. Yeah. That's right. When you're dead, you get your own status update. However, <laughs> if you manage to increase your, 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 uh, your, your health, you can get up to powerful. If you manage to increase your health up to over 20,000, which I have no idea how you do that, <laughs> a lot of wine. you attain godlike status. Yeah, that's, that's a, a lot of wine. That's a lot of wine <laughs> right there. And so this is the status is literally written at the top, and it mm-hmm. changes. It's kind of it's kind of neat. Yeah. It's almost like a DM side telling you what's going it's on. It's very good. Then there's- I mean, that's a short snippet there, and you can kind of see some of the four-way scrolling. And as, as you'd mentioned, Matt, the fact that a good chunk of the screen is the actual four-way scrolling. You only get, you know, basically three lines of stuff, maybe four, including a little border at the top, whereas, you know, Time Bandit had like a, your health bar on the right and a huge logo at the top and stuff because they were, you know, not not quite pushing it quite as hard. Right. So that, I think that's, you know, one of the big differentiators on this. I remember experimenting quite a bit uh, with how to, uh, you know, have the minimum number of instructions and move the most amount of memory. And I, I definitely play some real tricks on, uh, you know, how you actually uh, do the updates, but I'll, I'll talk a little bit about, about that, you know, during a presentation that I've, uh, that I've got, but uh, yeah, we'll kind of cover that's mostly technical stuff, right? So yeah, we'll kind yeah, of do a whole exactly. technical section. Yep. So the game took you about two years to develop, start to finish from like, you know, just starting to learn machine language basically on the 6809. Yeah. Um, I'm actually going to actually quickly ask you, the tools that you wrote yourself for doing the graphics and the maps and stuff, were those in basic or were those basic ML hybrids or pure ML2? Or? No, those were, those were all machine code too. And then oh, okay. the, the, the actual level editor was just a modified game engine. So, you know, it was basically a thing that would, you know, you could pick which level you wanted to, uh, uh, load and then uh, you, know, you could just walk around and basically uh, place tiles in the background. So I think there were like different keys for different tiles. So I seem to recall. Okay. The, the reason I ask is that from the game developers we've interviewed before, it seems like there's a mix. Like some people wrote the tools in machine language or had a very small basic driver and most of the routine was done in ML. And yeah. others just for drawing maps and stuff, just use basic because, you know, speed isn't as critical. No, and, I, and Nick, I, I just did everything. Because <laughs> <laughs> Nick Moreni is another game developer on the panel here. I think, uh, Nick, you tend to favor doing the, the quick little, you know, editing of maps and stuff using basic programs. Maybe yeah, machine like a subroutine or something. Yeah, just a little basic program. And then you, you basically you know concentrate the ML on, on the gameplay engine itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my 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 level editor was 
like so sophisticated that it, it you know and it leveraged the game engine it was way less code just to like you know if you kind of think about it basically just launch the game engine and then um it just had a bunch of keys mapped to change you know what the bytes were in the map and then you know you could basically add it a key to save the level off so it was it was way easier to do it with the game engine than write something special okay now, uh, from what you told us in the pre-show, something I was not aware of is that uh, you, 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 when you finished it, you decided to try to see if you can get it sold. So I guess the first question is, did you send it to just Tom Mix or had you sent it to other people as I, well I, at the same time? I, I sent it just to Tom Mix. And, uh, um, you know, I, I probably should have sent it. To, I remember DICOM was was one of the other companies there. Um, sent it to them. They they sat on it for a really long time. And then... Uh, they sent back and said it didn't it that when I sent it to him originally, it didn't have um uh joystick support and it didn't have um uh what was the other thing? Oh, and I hadn't validated that it worked on the Coca 3. So oh. I I I uh went and actually bought a Coca 3, made sure it worked on that. And um uh I just put some basic joystick routines in and I think he I think he asked me to also change it so it said, you know, copyright Tom Mix on it and send it, send it to him and did all that and then waited around for a while. And eventually, you know, I think they advertised it for a couple, couple editions in, uh, you know, Rainbow. I, I was pretty delighted when I saw it in there. <laughs> well, I will tell you that. <laughs> Matt, did you, yeah. do you still have your Cocos? Uh, I don't. I think I think back in uh, the early '90s, I got a Sun workstation uh, for my house. <laughs> I think I tossed it in the gar- in the dumpster. <laughs> That's my recollection. <laughs> so what I've got viewing on the screen right now is the uh, the very first ad for it where it appeared, um, and it's listed under Novasoft, which is kind of Tomix's sidearm for doing games for a bit cheaper. Okay. Um, so I've got a few there, and that's also where some of Nick showed up, though. In, in Nick's case. It, it was a bit dirty. Like, yeah, you said you got some a bit of a story on the Tom Mix thing, which we'll get into in a second here. But in, in, in Nick's case, he wrote it and he was trying to get it distributed through a company in Australia. And that company in Australia went to Tom Mix directly without telling Nick and said, oh, here, here's a couple of games you can sell, too. And Tom Mix had no idea that they, they weren't the actual authors or owners of the copyright of the game. So they were hmm. selling some of his stuff without him knowing or getting money for it or anything. So, yeah. So my, my recollection on, on getting paid was... Um, you know, I, I, I gotta, gotta admit that part of the reason I wrote the thing was I was hoping to make some money. (laughs) 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 And, but I, I always had fun doing it too. And I remember, you know, the thing was probably selling for, I don't know, six months or a year or something like that. I remember, um, I wrote, I wrote him a letter and said, Hey, how come I haven't gotten any royalty payments? And he sent me, he sent me a letter back and said, well, he just hadn't sold many copies. And I'm trying to remember what, what he paid me. It was like, like it was like 20 bucks or something like that. It was, it was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, given what you said, where they sat on it for a year, because basically this got released basically on the one year anniversary of the Coco three coming out. And one of the things they asked you to do is to make sure it worked on the Coco three. Yeah. And I'm wondering if they were wondering if, you know, the market was going to transition, if enough Coco threes were sold that first year that maybe, you know, Coco one, two games might die off. Cause I know some other companies did that too, where they basically said, we just want the new flashy 16 color stuff on a Coco three type thing. Gotcha. And Coco two, one and two games basically didn't sell as well after that. Though a few did obviously come out. Dicom sold a few and 
Sundog even sold a few, et cetera, even some of the newer companies. Yeah. So I'm wondering if maybe that was part of why they sat on it just to see if, you know, was the market going to be all Coco 3 at that point or? Could be. I, I, my, my, in, you know, it, my interpretation of the market, at least at that time, I remember the computer I wanted was an Amiga 2000. Um, I, I remember that at the time, or maybe it was an Amiga 1000, but certainly, uh, an Amiga was, was definitely on my, uh, radar as, as a computer I wanted. <laughs> um, I think the Coco was sort of on the way out. Yeah, we kind of got a burst of life when the Coco 3 got announced because actually Rainbow even increased pages briefly for a bit after the Coco 3 came out. So it was a bit of a jump, but yeah, it never took off like the Coco 1 and 2 originally did. So yeah, and I think the PC was just kind of starting to emerge then too. And uh, yeah, well, it was starting to decimate, you know, a lot of the smaller, smaller stuff like the, you know, the TI 99 disappeared before this, the Timex has disappeared before yeah, I mean, this. The, and... the C64 was still really popular in the Apple. Yep. Was- popular both of those machines i think sold a ton you know a ton of units and you know there was a, a big market for those yeah because it basically was 83 84 is a shake like the, the clico adam disappeared you know the tni disappeared um i don't think atari was doing that well at this time because this would have been like the xl years or even after that. i'm trying to remember the time scale here sloopy you might know what were sales of atari like in the 87 area like, were they already concentrating on the ST? Because the ST came out about 85, if I remember. They mostly uh, were concentrating overseas in uh, the Eastern Bloc countries that had just opened up. So, although there was some sales for the 8-bits here in the U.S., it was mostly over there where they were really selling. But that was also the time that they released the XE game system. So, that got a uh, boost in sales because the XE game system is literally an Atari 8-bit computer. But for the most part... They were concentrating more on the the eight bit stuff over in Eastern Europe and the ST here in the U.S. Okay. So I guess one of the things, and you already kind of answered it here, is uh, you had a couple things that I thought were kind of innovative um, for games in general, but for the Coco in specific, having both joystick and keyboard controls. Um, I think Boat and Aaron even mentioned the fact you could actually assign the second joystick button to like use your potion, so you didn't have to hop to the keyboard you could just have your two joysticks beside you on the couch or whatever oh maybe i don't recall that (laughs) (laughs) um but i mean it was it's a very large game and i think part of that was the disc based i'm I'm trying to think of some other games around this time frame that would have been as expansive as far as maps and stuff going only a few of the ultima style games i think i can think of like maybe gates of delirium by um dicom would have been one or even you know, I had seen some games that had, you know, big scope, like like I had seen the game Wizardry on the uh, Apple II. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I certainly uh, had attempted to um, actually implement uh, some of that. But I, at the time, you know, I just didn't have the uh, math background to actually do it. Um <laughs> you know, my, uh, I, I didn't have, have access to enough... Uh, you know, uh, linear algebra stuff to be able to to basically understand how to do. I don't know if you guys are familiar with with uh, wizardry, but it basically yeah. did, grew like 3D isometric uh, mazes and stuff like that. Um, you know, I, I I produced some stuff like I it, at one point I was kind of thinking of doing kind of a more advanced version of that. Um, uh, but it didn't it did, I didn't think it looked as good as wizardry. A um, couple other games that I, I looked at doing were, you know, some fighting games and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, with with 
kind of, you know, multiple characters kind of like, think like, um, there was an Apple two game Karatika that, uh, yeah. you know, I thought of doing a knockoff of that. Um, I don't know. Arcade wise, there would have been like Karate Champ or, uh, yeah. uh was it Karate? What's the side scrolling one there where you're kicking and stuff and you have to go up and down levels to rescue a girl, uh, Kung Fu Master or something like that, I think. Maybe. So, yeah, but anyhow, um, you know, I, I, I toyed around with a, a whole bunch of different ideas, but, uh, you know, I, I, I ended up, you know, <laughs> I guess wandering into this. Uh, <laughs> one, one thing I, I think, you know, that uh, probably a lot of people look at and say, well, the sound is pretty horrific in the game. And that was because I just didn't have a, a really good understanding of how sound generation worked. I didn't really have any good examples of it or anything. And, um, so yeah, if you look at the sounds in, in the game, they're they're just kind of like clicks and buzzes and things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could do samples or something like that, but that takes a lot of memory. You're already blowing a fair bit with double buffering and you know large maps and you know well, yeah, fancy animated characters, et cetera. Yeah, and I, I think that um you know, I think I I might have needed an interrupt routine or something like that to, you know, periodically wake up and play the samples or whatever. And I, I'm not sure I had the sophistication at the time to actually do something like that. That's actually my next question. Did you use the V-Sync interrupt at all for timing stuff? Uh, I'm getting a little bit ahead in the yeah, technical so, stuff. but so, so I was definitely using the, the V-Sync, but the only thing I used that for was to control when to when to flip the uh, the graphics screen. Oh, okay. So basically, there you know, I I never did any changes to the uh, the screen that was being displayed. I always did all my updates to the backup screen. Okay, we have a question from the chat here from Rob Iman. Actually, I thought is pretty good one to ask you here. Said, so did you ever consider submitting Wizards Den to Tandy directly? They were more invested in the Coco Two software even after the Coco Three came out, given that they were still selling the two for several years. Um, no, it, I, I, it obviously is uh, that would have been a very smart thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Probably dealing with anybody other than Tom Mix might have been a, a good thing to do. Um, but I, I was, think I was pretty naive. I, I think originally I, I didn't, didn't even call Tom Mix. I think I just wrote him a letter and put the, the CD in it or whatever. I, you know, I didn't want to pay for the long distance call to him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, from my understanding, from talking to other people, like we've we've interviewed Chris Latham, the guy who did Donkey King and uh, Sailor Man, for example, and uh, he actually did pretty well by Tomics. I think he said he actually gave us some dollar figures too. I think he said he sold forty thousand dollars worth or something like that for Donkey King. Wow, that that was I think. The, like he said he paid for a car in his college education with that one game alone type thing. Sailor Man, which actually was a more sophisticated game, sixty four K, double buffered, etc., didn't sell as well. But he said he should have picked a more popular arcade game to base it on. Yeah, Don Donkey King, I think, was one of the few games. Uh, like I said, I, I didn't know anybody really with any any stuff like that. I, I think Donkey King was one of the few games I actually bought a copy of it. So uh, and I had that. That, that. that was pretty inspirational too. Well, he helped Chris through college, so thank there you. There you that. go. Unfortunately, <laughs> we didn't help you too much on this one. <laughs> Maybe a cup of coffee on the way to college or something. There you go. <laughs> um. So the next question I have, then we talked about time management, and you said that might have been a bit of an inspiration, not just for the tree drawing, but also like the scrolling and stuff. But you, you, you definitely took it up at another level past that. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw any of those live. The only thing I ever saw, you know, on any really most of these games was just pictures in, in Rainbow Magazine. 
So that that's kind of my inspiration was just looking at pictures. <laughs> yeah, and actually, just a, uh, kind of going on a line like this. This is from the October nineteen eighty seven Rainbow, the very first time Atomics advertised, and they submitted it for Rainbow Review fairly quickly. So January of eighty eight, uh, you were the feature review, actually. Yep. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of recall that. I was pretty pleased with that too. And they do mention specifically Coco 1, 2, and 3. So obviously that had been tested by that point. Yeah. Um, but you said basically Tomic sat on it for years. So that sounds like because when you submitted it, it would have been right when the Coco 3 was getting released. So I'm pretty sure that probably has a lot to do with it. Indeed. Um, but they quite like the game here too. And they got a you know a couple different screenshots. And yeah. uh, you know, they Tandy wasn't or uh, Rainbow wasn't doing too many multi-page reviews with multiple photos because that's you know more expensive to print color type thing, but uh they were impressed enough with the yours. Plus, they had a good relationship with Tom Mix, of course. Sure. Sure. Hmm. So I was wondering, like, uh, since this was a you know a major magazine for the Coco Review and D game, and you mentioned that you know you got rid of the the Cocos themselves, did you have this rainbow in particular, and did you uh, keep that as a memento or no? I don't think I kept kept a copy of it. I, I know at the time I did have a copy of that rainbow, um, but uh, I, I think that probably went in the dumpster at the time too. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Where's this dumpster located? I think we want to go find it now with all the source code and stuff too. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's all sorts of interesting stuff. I think I kept it for a few years, but it, you know what it was is it was it, um, uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't like with me. It was actually at somebody else's house being stored, and that that's kind of why. Oh, I okay. So. Now you mentioned that you did get a Coco Three mainly for testing. It did you actually explore the Coco Three much at all? I, or I you... didn't. I, I really didn't play around with with it. I, I, you know, I think I looked at like, did it have some new graphics modes or something like yeah. that? I think I looked at those or something. But and and was it faster? Yeah, it, it, you could run it at full double speed from the Coco ones, one point seven eight megahertz. Yeah, okay. it had a sixty four color palette, and you had graphics modes like three twenty by two hundred by sixteen colors, six forty by two hundred by four color. Actually, up to two twenty five if you fiddle with the gimme settings. Gotcha. Yeah, so I, I didn't. I, I mean, I might have written a few little demo things or something like that, but I, I never did any serious development on it. That you know, at that time, I actually had access to like way better computers. So, <laughs> so I think. Yeah, that, that was my next question. Was it just that? Uh, like, I don't know. Did you end up getting into Amiga at some point, or did you? What was your I, next I, computer after Coco? Yeah. Uh, so the next computer. Uh, um, so I ended up. Um, I don't think I bought a computer, but I had people give me. Uh, like an IBM PC because they wanted me to do support for uh, some programs I'd written for them. And so they just gave me a PC so I could do it remotely. And then um, uh, I think the next computer after that is I, I bought a Sun workstation, like a used one. <laughs> <laughs> That's jumping up pretty high. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, uh, but, you know, we did a lot of fun things to the Coco. Like, uh, I don't know. Do you guys remember like a Volks modem? Yeah. So they so I had a Volks modem, but I didn't I couldn't pop for the one that had the uh, auto dialer. So um, I basically wired it up so that I don't, I don't know if you guys remember, you know, on a if you had a, the old phones, you could actually do pulse dialing. Yeah, which is basically just hanging up the carrier at a time rate, like one, two, three. That's a three pause. Yeah. So we wired yeah. wired basically the, the modem through the. Um, a cassette port and uh we use that to to basically like war dial and try and find uh open computer <laughs> open <phone> numbers 
I'm sure there were numerous people in my area code that got lots of phone calls. <laughs> so you probably used what the cassette relay there where you can click the motor on and off that, yeah, that, that type of thing. Yeah. That's we, we just basically ran the modem, um, you know, the uh, line through the uh, relay in the, in the cassette. Right. I've got to say that war pulse styling is the most extreme thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> Actually, I remember doing that because my first modem was also not on. <laughs> so I did the same thing. <laughs> then I upgraded to a JCAT. Woohoo. Oh, mean, yeah. We, we, we found all sorts of stuff to get into. I mean, it's pretty shocking back then, like how many, how many uh, modems and things like that, you know, you would actually connect to. Yeah, there, there's actually, if you go in the Color Computer Archive, there's actually entire phone freaking kits, like disk images you can download with like, like 15, 20 different utilities yep. for doing, you know, blue box and black box and red box and all that other kind of stuff, all the special yeah. tones. You could do, you know, free pay phone calls. All that stuff was there. So Right, but you're supposed to tone down this, so you can go, bloop, and you're done, not. Yeah. I, 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 you know, my, my knowledge of how the phone, uh, system worked was, uh, you know, uh, pretty, pretty minimal at that time. So. You hadn't found the Bell Technical Journals from 54 nope. yet, eh? <laughs> <laughs> nope. <laughs> but I remember like the Paul styling, like we, one of my first jobs that I worked at, uh, was cleaning stuff. So I was going to all these different offices and I, like you had mentioned, you couldn't afford to do long distance calls. And I figured, you know, these these big companies, they're rich. They can afford long-distance calls. So they would lock down their phone so nobody could actually dial. Sure. But you, if you just took the, the receiver off, you could just click it and just dial long-distance with that. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so that, that worked. I only did that a couple of times. I didn't want to get caught. But <laughs> Yeah, there were definitely places that, you know, they just removed all the digits from their phones. And, yeah, that was a pretty pretty common hacking thing to pulse dial the number you wanted to call. Yeah, I, I remember there was uh, just recently at one of the VCFs, uh, the guy who did uh, the docu BBS documentary, and he's behind Y modem or something, did a uh, panel discussion on BBSing in general, kind of the history of it up until you know modern times we're doing it through the internet. But he was mentioning some of the pulse styling things they used to do back in the day. Right. Yeah, there there was there was definitely I remember um, definitely you know. Uh, being pretty intrigued by uh, BBSs as as a little kid, you know, um, you know, finding those and uh, uh, you know, getting access to stuff, and, and also being able to access stuff over um, the heck was it? There were there were some local numbers to get into, uh, like CompuServe and Delphi and Genie and that kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was these things that you could connect to other. Uh, you could like basically get long distance calls to other computers or something like that back Time in the net and telenet. Yeah, it was telenet. There were like local exchange numbers for telenet, which once you got into that, you could get into all, all sorts of other stuff. That that was actually pretty interesting. Yeah, like hitting up stuff like Gopher and things like that too. You know, pre-internet. You're supposed to pay for that stuff, but a lot pre-web, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. I know. I Got a screenshot here of the manual uh, from for Wizards Den from Tomix slash Novasoft, uh, kind of going through the description of the game here. Um, one thing I'd like to ask authors, because we found out from uh, a few of the people that wrote for Tandy that uh, they would submit manuals with their games, and then Tandy would completely ignore them and write their own from scratch that had absolutely nothing to do with what the original was. And I was wondering, is that similar to what you experienced with Tomix, or did you submit the basic manual and they just you know tied it up to whatever standard they have, or did they write it from scratch? Um, do you remember? You know, I, I don't recall. I'm, I'm sure that I wrote something up, but um, 
they probably, you know, they probably did, uh, you know, did, did this version of it. I, I don't recall writing this whole thing for sure, but okay. I do recall I, him, him asking for, you know, some overall information. And, and I think I wrote some stuff up, but you know, uh, they probably, uh, you know, took my one or two paragraphs and turned it into something more presentable. <laughs> okay. Cause I mean, the, the manuals, it's, it's fairly small. It's two pages of basically Xeroxed part of Novasoft being cheap, I guess. Um, cause some of the top mix stuff, they were actually selling those little plastic sleeves now with the disc in it and a Xerox uh, sheet or something. Oh, hmm. But I think that was more for the the, the full blown quote unquote atomic stuff, right? Right. Okay. Um, did, did the cocoa know? This is something that we found out from a, a lot of cocoa people who talked to, whether they wrote utilities or you know or word processors or games or whatever. Is that um, one thing that tended to be a bit more often on the Cocoa than a lot of the other 8-bit machines at the time was that uh, people, you know, got software programming careers out of, of being on the Cocoa because it had a great CPU to work with. It had one of the better basics out at the time. And it kind of like, you know, spearheaded a lot of people's careers. Whereas, you know, some of the people on some of the more common gaming machines, you know, just got regular jobs afterwards because they were just playing oh. games. And I was going to ask you, did you, did you feel that the Cocoa helped you? Because it does sound like you've kept in the uh, computer side of things afterwards. Do you think that really helped you get your career started? Um, you know, what probably did, um, you know, I, I certainly had a pretty high opinion of myself after finishing this game <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, uh, when I went and, and did my undergrad, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I was fairly well educated, you know, in terms of computer science, you know, when I was like in ninth grade or so, I, I, I actually took a couple classes, uh, you know, at the local university and, uh, you know, so I, I was fairly well educated, you know, and just kind of basic computer science stuff by the time I went to university. And, um, you know, I did an undergrad in computer engineering and then went to grad school in computer science and, uh, it, yeah, I made a career of it and, uh, I never really worked in the gaming industry, but, um, I'm sure you guys have used a whole bunch of stuff that I've, I've done. You know, if you used, um, any of the dial-up services back in the, uh, you know, 80s or whatever, the stuff that was answering your call on the other side, um, I did that. And then, you know, if you get data on your cell phones, um, you know, I, I, I built one of the big companies that actually, uh, um, the stuff that basically uh, establishes the data session, you know, kind of on the carrier side of things. Um, you know, I built companies that did, did that. So you did a lot of the under the hood stuff then? Yeah, yeah, and, and operating system stuff and things like that. Um, so those those are some of the you know things things I've done. Well, you meant you mentioned operating systems, so of course everybody on the show knows I'm going to ask about this here. Did you ever experiment much with OS nine, which was kind of a, a Unix like multi user multitasking system yeah. for the Coco? So you know, I uh, I bought a copy of OS nine. I remember that, and uh, I think I actually bought a copy of the C compiler as well. And I played around with it a little bit, but I remember finding it like very constrained given the... Yeah, like, for the Cocoa 1 and 2, it definitely was. Yeah, and so I, I think I kind of gave up on it after that. I mean, it, it was certainly like a real operating system <laughs> as opposed to... Uh, this basic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty, pretty horrific. Um, 
but you know, I, I just managed to get access to like vastly better things, like kind of like shortly after I got yeah, a like workstations and stuff. So you're doing like yeah. really Unix, you know, type thing. Yeah. And so it, it just, you know, it just, those seemed like toys compared to that stuff. So that, that would just be what I'd say on that. Not, not, not that OS nine's bad or anything like that. It just, you know, it was just so limited. Yeah. I mean, I mean, myself personally, I basically had the same experience, like using Cocoa one and two OS nine level one. It was, it was a cool tech experiment. It was almost like a tech demo to me. But I didn't do that much in it because 64K just wasn't enough memory to really pull anything off with that kind of thing. When level two and, and which had you know local windowing and multiple screens and stuff like that for the Coco three came out, that was when I finally started really liking it because that was a pretty big jump up. Now you can run virtual terminals and stuff right on the Coco three itself. So Plus you, you could bump it up to five twelve K RAM. So yeah. So what what did so were you limited to what did it do? Did it have like a paging mechanism or something? Yeah, it had an MMU. It has an MMU built into it. So oh oh okay. Didn't, didn't if, if you're familiar with the old gimmick systems, it was another six eight zero nine, but that was like six thousand bucks a machine type thing. It was kind of like a very junior version of that. Gotcha. Well, the six eight zero nine is actually like probably the most badass eight bit processor that you know was ever uh, out there. I mean, it, yeah, from the original cool. generation, it definitely was. I would agree totally. The Hitachi six three nine. I don't know if you've heard about that. If you followed our show lately, um, but basically, Hitachi was licensed by Motorola to do a low power version of the six eight zero nine. They actually made a six eight zero nine clone itself, the HD six eight zero nine, which is exactly the same as the Motorola one was. Um, but they were asked to do a low power one because Motorola still had enough contracts that wanted 6809s, okay. but they didn't want to devote to manufacturing. They're already doing 68,000s and 88,000s yeah, and yeah, you know, yeah. everything else at the time. So they uh, contracted them to do a low power one. So they created the 6309, which took one-tenth the power to run, uh, one-hundredth the power to run if you had it in a special sleep mode, which would be woken up on an interrupt. So you could actually put the you know, computer mm. to sleep, basically. And it was also introduced at a three megahertz because Motorola never got theirs past two megahertz. So uh, Tachi did his, what is it, CMOS, I guess, instead of NMOS. And they actually added up to three megahertz. So it was a bit of a faster one. It's actually used in a couple of machines in Japan. Okay. But Tachi, by that point, this would have been 85. Um, because they were using CMOS, and it was basically like a more of a programmable style chip internally, like you didn't have to do the old hard wiring stuff. They ended up adding extra registers, extra instructions, a native mode that ran faster, and a whole bunch of other stuff, block, memory moves, hardware divide, all kinds of things to it. And then uh, our, the speculation is that Motor said, we didn't ask you to do any of that stuff. Well, you're not allowed to tell anybody about this. And they just sold it as is. And then, you know, some Japanese magazine in 1988 figured out this stuff and published it. And then it got cross-posted on the Usenet to the Cocoa groups in 1992. That's when we first found about North America. And then all of a sudden, the Cocoa 3 and the Cocoa 1 and 2 suddenly had an upgrade path because now we can put in a chip that not only runs cooler and makes it last longer, but has all the extra instructions. And that's what Nitrous 9, which I'm directly involved with, is completely 100% was formed on. And then, you know, we've got it up to the point now it's running two, three times faster than anything, you know, the original Motorola chip did. Okay. Nice. Which I guess if it brings up to the last part, I guess, that I have questions for you on before you go into your presentation um, have you got any inclination whatsoever, maybe trying to, you know, bring up the Coco again? I know you don't have real ones, but there's tons of emulators out there now. And uh -huh. there's modern cross assembly tools and cross compiling tools. You can use like a native C compiler on a 32 or 64 bit machine. I would, I would probably play around with something. Um, see if I could do a, uh, maybe, uh, you know, some, some little toys. I, I, I find it quite intriguing how much you can accomplish in small amounts of memory. <laughs> Yeah, it's so like microcontroller type thinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, like, 
I, I can tell you my my take on like programming for for this stuff is probably the hardest part to do is actually the graphics. You know, just kind of time consuming to make them look decent with with so few bits. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I I might do something. Hard hard to say. I mean, I'm I'm pretty pretty busy guy, <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I I could do stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's yeah, just a little hobbyist type thing. Just some of the scratch the itch a bit. And right. Right. Nostalgic so, as well. Can I throw in a question real quick? Go ahead, Alan. Uh, so was there anything that you thought about that you wanted to put into Wizard's Den that would have been like cool features or stuff, but you couldn't figure out how to do it? Or you just decided ran out of time? I mean, was there or ran out of room? I think I think it basically ran ran out of uh ran out of space. That that would be the the biggest thing. And and I was really running into some like severe like tool issues that um, it was just really, it got to the point where it was really painful to develop because I only had one machine and, you know, like to do a, a compilation or do an assembly, I think it was like three or four diskette swaps to actually do one because it was like a multi-pass assembler. And I think each pass I had to swap like two floppies in or something like that. So it, it got to the point where it was, where it was pretty painful to continue development. I it probably would have been, I mean, this other game I was working on traps. Um, it, it, you know, it didn't, um, it wasn't painful to develop on. <laughs> so, you know, it was a much, much smaller kind of, I think I was using pieces of the, uh, you know, wizard's den engine, you know, the, the map system and stuff like that, but I had kind of chopped a bunch of the stuff out. I had access to a lot more memory. Well, a question for you, like we've interviewed uh, Rick Adams and Rick Adams, he he did some stuff for Tandy, like Temple of Rom, if you've played that, for example. Um, he actually had a game that he submitted to Tandy back then that they rejected and he chopped it around and still couldn't get anybody to do it. And he actually had a videotape of the game running because his kids really liked it. Hmm. And he eventually lost the source code, lost the discs and everything else. And he actually ended up recreating it from scratch and then sold it as a cartridge in modern times. Oh. <laughs> and um, you know, because now you can use like LW Asm by William Astell, um, which is you know, you run it on a local yeah sure modern machine, you can assemble an entire disc in like half a second or something right. like that. <laughs> and then and, and you know, he had a lot of fun going back and you know, basically relearning what he'd kind of forgotten over the while and then recreating this game that he'd lost. And I was wondering, since you sound like you actually did quite like your traps game, though it never really, you know got out to yeah. people, is that something you'd consider redoing with modern tools so it doesn't take you yeah. so long? Yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe even a Coco Three version to spice up the graphics and sound. Yeah, a bit. sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be really Cocoa cool to see. That it, it sounds yeah. like an interesting game. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Oh, I just think a version, a Coco Three version of Wizard Den would be cool with the better graphics. I mean, the gameplay. I've been messing with it here in Xroar. It's like excellent. Oh, good. Glad, glad you like it. I'm sure. I'm sure it wouldn't wouldn't take much to like massively improve it. You know, the the algorithms and stuff like that. A lot of it was just done for simplicity because, uh, you know, it was just probably simpler for debugging to do things in a simple way rather than you know use any sophisticated data structures or or anything like that. Um, you know, plus I, I I don't necessarily know I was particularly competent at that time <laughs> <laughs> pretty impressive hey, you got a pretty major student. project done i'd say you're pretty competent <laughs> yep remember winners deliver here you go yeah i, I yeah, winners ship there is, there is a there is a bit of that i mean 
um, I'm pretty persistent. And uh, I think, you know, to be successful in life, that's actually one good characteristic to have, um, you know, is to is to actually complete things that you start. And I will say this, this it was painful in the end to actually finish the thing off. I think any major project, I think, at least in my experience, and I'm sure Nick, Nick, you can probably um, agree with that, too, is that it's that last 10 percent's the hardest to do because that's where you're just looking for bugs. You're not actually doing anything creative and innovative anymore. It's just right. or I got to optimize this stupid routine a little bit faster or there's yeah. some weird glitch or I've got to shrink it, you know, 10 more bytes to get it to fit in memory or something stupid. Yeah, I mean, just just as you know, if I had another machine to cross compile the thing or if I had like another machine, you know, where I could actually have one development machine and another one to uh um, you know, to actually test and run the thing on, I think that that would have been a big step up. <laughs> yeah, that's why I think if you did, if you did get the inclination to actually revisit and 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 try to either recreate your yeah, be, game be, that be, you mentioned yeah. or or create a brand new one from scratch, cross assemblers, uh, compile or um, the emulators, and there's a variety of them available. You can take your pick which one you want. They all have debuggers, and you can like set in real time traps for you know yeah. on a H sync, you know stop the code here type thing. Like there's all kinds of stuff would make it a lot easier than it was in the old days. You know, what's funny you'd bring that up. So this must be back in, um, when would this be? This would be probably in, uh, early nineties. Um, or no, it, I guess it'd be like, maybe like 94, 95. Um, I know that, uh, you, you would actually mention people are using MAME to emulate the, uh, Coco. Yeah, I still do. <laughs> so, so you know what's interesting is back then I remember myself uh, and another guy. Uh, we got we downloaded a copy of that and uh, we actually uh, modified it to run multiplayer on the network at work. So we were playing old video games, <laughs> multiplayer. Uh, you know where you could basically connect you know two main instances. So I've played around with main a, a bit in the past. Um, I yeah, think that's actually still- my main one because the debugger I'm just so used to. I mean, the other ones like XOR and, and VCC do have options for debuggers as well. Yeah, uh, but I, I just got used to them. It was pretty minimalistic at the at the time, but it was even back then. I haven't played with it recently, but it was pretty impressive back then. I remember, um, you know, getting the twenty DVDs or whatever ROMs from people. You know, the, yeah. uh, the long thing or whatever. All the arcade games, all the old machines. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite impressive. You know, as a, as a little kid who uh, didn't have access to uh, endless supply of quarters, uh, I remember when I got that, uh, you know, I, I definitely scratched some itches I had. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ron, Ron DeVoe is actually on the panel, but he posted in the chat here, too. He said, uh, ask Matt when he knew there was a Cocoa Talk or this show, The Nation. I think that's when I first contacted you, if I remember correctly. Yeah, or I, had I you seen us before? I, I hadn't seen it before. I, I think you reached out, uh, uh, Curtis, and and mentioned it. And you know, I think I uh, uh, googled it. You know, the the first time I even knew that there was any interest in it is you reached out to me probably maybe ten years ago or something like that. And oh, said to get permission hurt. to put it up for download. Yeah, yeah and I, was, I was like, I was actually pretty happy. Somebody was like playing around. With it. I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> so. <laughs> You know, ten years after that, you're you you call up and say, "Hey, uh, people were reviewing your game or whatever," and uh, and I, I was pretty delighted by that. Um, you know that somebody's actually still enjoying it, so that that's great. And then you know, I I looked up, you know, that people were actually uh, you know involved in this retro gaming, and that, that's pretty cool. 
Yeah, because I mean, uh, the, the Coco Nation show covered it. We covered it on the Coco Game Challenge. I think High Retro Game Lord, who's a guy who covers every system known to man with emulators. Mm-hmm. And he went through a whole swath of Coco stuff all in a row. I think he covered it as well. So there's multiple gameplay videos of your of your game up there. Oh, Maybe okay. as many as, as copies were sold. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I just like curiosity, like I don't know. Like I know roughly what you know. Chris Latham had mentioned that the uh, royalty, what percentage he got of the sale price for Sailor Man and Donkey King, uh, but that was the official Tom mix. I was wondering, do you remember what percentage you got on the Novasoft? Obviously, that was the cheaper brand, so I'm imagining it's less. I do you know, like, I think, you know how much you were supposed to get per copy. You know, I I don't even recall it now. Maybe it was like ten or twenty percent or something. Um, it was probably something horrible. Because, like I said, I don't even think I called the guy. I think I just sent him a copy in the, uh, you know, in the in the mail. Okay. So I'm sure he, I'm sure he, uh, you know, just set it to whatever he thought would be the abusive uh, royalty rate. <laughs> <laughs> that probably was the going rate. I mean, the royalty rates never were that good unless you were the publisher yourself, type thing. Okay. Which is why some people like Dave dies who formed Icom. Like he sold stuff through. Uh, Segura Software, he sold stuff through, I'm trying to remember, he did Pump Man and Fighter Pilot and a bunch of others through other companies first. And he didn't really like the amount of money he was making there either. So you he know, formed ICOM where he was in charge. And, you know, you know I, I actually, I actually remember uh, contacting Rainbow Magazine and looking to see what it would actually cost to run an ad. I do actually recall doing that, which, uh, Probably was pretty. Yeah, it was a few hundred bucks at least, wasn't it? If yeah, I it was. It was. I think. I think they they gave you a break if you guaranteed to run it for like six. You know, you had to. You got a pretty good break if you would run a bunch of ads, but it wasn't a ton of money to. It was like four or five hundred bucks, I think, to run like a half page color ad or something like that. Not yeah, and then you have to make at least that back in sales to, yeah. to make up for it, right? Yeah. Right. Right. So. Okay, I don't have any more questions myself. I know you have a technical presentation you want to get into, but before we get into that, I just want to ask anybody in the panel, anybody in the chat, and they're on a bit of a delay, so we'll give them a, you know 30 seconds or so. If anybody else has any general questions on uh, your experience with the Coco or Wizards Den in specific, any other uh, projects you may have done Coco-related, like you mentioned the other game, you mentioned you created a lot of tools yourself. Um, but any general questions before we started getting into the technical side? Anybody on the panel? So what do you think of the Coco SDC? Do you know what it is? No, I don't even know what it is. Okay, take it away, Curtis. <laughs> it's an SD card solution for real hardware, and it, it emulates both a floppy drive and a hard drive, so you can actually just put stuff in an SD card, and it actually runs totally compatible with the you know the software. You don't have to patch anything, really, to, to get it to run. What's the advantage of that over a... Uh you know, over just complete emulation. Well, if, if I mean, first of all, not none of the emulators are 100% perfect, as we've discovered numerous times. Yep. So uh, there's that. It's faster than you know, doing the old floppy drive. But, you know, sometimes, like, we, there's some stuff that we've actually made copies of, like, you know, um, copy-protected stuff that you can, you know, run through that. But mostly it's for the people that want to scratch the itch of playing on the actual original keyboard because like modern keyboards aren't laid out the same. The arrow keys are in totally different spots. Um, They maybe want to run some of the original joysticks. Like I prefer the deluxe joysticks over modern, you know, digital controllers myself personally. I'm not very good with those. So I'm mostly nostalgic. All right. So if you've got a Coco and you've got a Coco SDC and you can download from the internet 
you're done. You don't need to find all this esoteric old hardware and yeah. set up an emulator and make sure you got it all. And, yeah, right, set up an right versions of the ROMs and all that kind of stuff. You just run. Bang, yeah, run, I mean, away you go. So I, I, I guess I find the, uh, the, you know, I, I, I'm, a, you know, I, I don't have any issues with like digging into big pieces of code or whatever, or fixing bugs like in the emulator. I'd probably go fix it if I saw a bug in it. So I don't know. I, I'm, I like virtual environments. Yeah. You're not a hardware nostalgic. You're no. more of the software nostalgic. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's the nice thing about the retro hobbies that you, you get people that are any anywhere in the gamut. Like some people, you know, strictly original hardware. I don't even want a modern SD card reader. I want the original right. floppy drive. I'm not one of those people, but I do know some. Some might even be on the panel. Uh, I'm right up to people that you know <laughs> run, just run emulators and don't want to see real hardware ever again. So and anywhere in between, it's, it's there's no wrong way to cocoa, as Stevie used to say on the old version of the show. Sure. Whatever, whatever scratches your itch, tickles your fancy. Uh, Ken Reichert has a question for you. He says, what was your most proud accomplishment in Wizards Den, whether it's an algorithm or the design of the game or anything else? Oh, I, I'm, I'm sure it would be the, uh, the, the, you know, I thought I came up with a, uh, a unique way to uh, do fast scrolling, you know, for large portions of the screen. Um, I, I, I cover this a bit in the, uh, in the presentation, but um, basically uh the way that the scrolling works is, um, you know, when the guy moves around and he's near the center of the screen, you know, we don't actually scroll the whole screen. It just kind of stays the same. Only when the character kind of approaches the edge of the screen, does it actually start scrolling. And then the way it actually works is, you know, it takes the backing screen, it removes all the characters and, and, uh, sprites from the image and then it actually shifts over the data, and then it only reinserts uh, the things at the edge. You know, so most of the time it doesn't kind of redraw the tiles into graphics; it just kind of shoves them over, and it just does block copies them. Yeah, and I think I, I seem to recall it does it with like a pushes and pops, and I think I was able to get it to do nine bytes uh, per instruction. Yeah, because so, you get your eight bit flags for your um, yeah, you get registers, like, and you got a bunch of sixteen bit registers as well as eight. So. Yeah, I think it was like D X Y U uh, F, D P maybe or yeah D X Y U. Like you wouldn't want to use a condition code register because that causes problems. Uh, yeah, I might have even pushed that too. Um, <laughs> I know some do use a D, the direct page pointer DP as an extra eight bits for yeah, it. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if I use DP or not. I, I think I didn't use DP because that would have actually caused caused some issues. But um, I think everything else, uh, other than you know the PC, I was actually uh, pushing some yeah. popping. So that was like how like I block moved chunks of uh, graphics memory. Did you did you use dirty tiles techniques too, where you go like the tile that I'm shifting over towards is the same as it was before, so don't redraw it at all? Uh, no, didn't oh, didn't okay. didn't do anything like that. But but what what I did do was I I kind of knew I didn't need to redraw the tiles because um, I what I would do is on the back screen, uh, what I would on during each iteration I would basically just go remove all the sprites. Um, so I'd end up basically with a the back tile, you know, the back screen basically as if I had redrawn the tiles. So I didn't re okay. I didn't actually redo all the tiles every time. And when I did do tiles, I only did them at the uh, at the edge. 
and then because you block move everything else and then you just draw the new strip or yeah, whatever and then, position direction you're going the one thing i did do was i i would scan the uh uh you know the effectively the tiles that were visible and then run the finite state machine on those tiles so you know the back the background wasn't static it would actually uh change and so then it would just basically then just need to go redraw redraw specific tiles in the background rather than the whole thing every single yeah, yeah. so like if you if you want if you play the game and you sit there you'll see like monster generators have like an animation where they spin and um um there's a, a few other things that you know the background actually moves. See, so it's too bad the six zero nine wasn't known about when you wrote this, which actually literally came out in late eighty five, because uh, the block memory move command, which is a lot faster than even stack blasting, which is the push pull thing, okay. and it's much simpler to implement because you just you know load up the W register with how many bytes do you want to move, and then you pick two sixteen bit registers, where from, where to, oh. go do it. <laughs> That's one command. So, and, and uh, I'm trying to think what else was actually, so, um, you know, I think I independently invented uh, anding and oring sprites on as well. You know, I, I had heard that you could do it with XORing, but uh, the sprites I did were, were with and or. So I, I was, yeah, you preserve the background rather than do that inverted XORing right. thing. Exactly. So uh, that, that was sort of another thing, you know, I independently uh, came with. <laughs> That's good though, because I mean, if you learn that stuff on your own, it definitely sticks in your head a lot better than if you just read it in a book and right, right. Like you yeah, really understand I, how it works. I think I read the XOR thing, and then I kind of just extrapolated from that. So yeah, we have the background mask that you hand on, and then you wore the right. shape onto yep. type thing. Yeah, yep, exactly. See, if there's anything else in the chat here. It'd definitely be worthwhile to add real sound to uh to the game if people want to play it. <laughs> yeah. That, that that's certainly missing. Or maybe some cool uh intro screens or something like that. I don't know. I, I remember I did like your, your current intro screen actually wasn't bad. That kind of like dissolving yeah, onto the screen thing. thing comes down and goes, yeah, I, I I actually wrote probably like 20 different like screen type <laughs> things. <laughs> that that would be like another thing. I did a ton of those. I mean, honestly, the Sundog engine screen that has their their logo, the Sundog logo, actually kind of does the same thing. So I don't know if they borrowed it off you because that came out a few years later, and it was Coco Three exclusive, mm. but uh, it definitely had a similar effect. I have a question. Go ahead, Slippy. Which um, Sun workstation did you get? Um, so let's see. I had uh, a bunch of three fifties. I had. Uh, uh, 360. I had 380s. Had some Spark stations. Had <laughs> all sorts of stuff. <laughs> yeah, so the right. 360 and stuff. That's the old 680XO versions of it, wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. So the 350 was an 020, and the uh, 360 was an 020, but it ran faster and had more memory. And the uh, uh, three 380 was a um, 68030. And then yeah, around um, around uh, 1990, 91, I had a 360 myself. Yeah, three six the three hundred and sixty. I eventually that was kind of like the main sh machine I had at home in grad school, and that was uh, I had like a color graphics card and stuff from it. You know, funny story is I actually bought that off of um, a guy at Apple. I remember actually going to like One Infinity Drive when I was out in California, 
And, uh, you know, this is like when Apple was like in its like deathbed. I mean, it was just about to go under. And, you know, there, I, 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 uh, I remember going into their building and there were very few engineers even left there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Yeah, Scott uh, Griepentrug, we've interviewed before, too. Uh, he did a lot of OSI and stuff on the Cocoa, but he brought his Sun, Sun 360 to Cocoa Fest multiple years in a row to show it off. So, Oh, yeah. like that, It was just like a super badass machine at the time. You know, most 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 people just never had access to that type of stuff. Yeah, they weren't cheap. <laughs> no. And uh, I, remember, I remember I also had like a uh, almost a one, what was it? I think it was almost a one gigabyte uh, hard drive or whatever. And I, it was a, I, you know, it was a surplus used hard drive that I bought, but <laughs> it was big, big at the time. Did you, you were you running X windows on it too at the time then too? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> so Matt, were you programming on that machine? Yeah, absolutely. Wrote, wrote all sorts of stuff for it. So um, how was the code translation between 6809 to the newer one? I mean, oh, a lot I never, of similar I never, I never wrote any assembly for... That's uh, what I'm asking. Yeah, that, uh, sorry. Should have said every, that. Everything in C, C, C++ and stuff like that at, at that point. I mean, there's, you know, uh, never never had the need to... I, I mean, I've written assembly in some, on some other projects, but it was always for... Um, um, uh, um, like a know, small like, critical routine yeah, that absolutely like real, needs a speed or yeah, something. Real, real small critical regions. Stuff like, um, oh, um, just like some device drivers for like weather radars or like, um, um, uh, like some checksum generation routines for networking you know, on packets and things like that to generate like CRC codes and stuff like that. I mean, that, that you know, over my whole career, that's probably <laughs> the only other types of assembly stuff I've needed to do. Um, I, I think the, the main reason to, to do assembly on the Coco was just the limited memory space. And um, I think even if you had tried to do things with like a C compiler or something like that, I remember like on OS 9, I remember compiling some C stuff and the the things that I tried doing were uh, enormous. Like I, I remember coding up on OS nine, like a like a D and D character generator or something like that in C, and it was it was like enormous. You know, it was, yeah. it was like filling up the whole you know memory of the program. And, and I think I'd only done like like one or two pages or something like that. I was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. <laughs> Yeah, actually, uh, one of one of the guys in our, our Discord, the Coco Discord, uh, is, goes by the name D. His name, real name is Jeff, but he's actually been working on improving the C compiler, getting it more ANSI spec instead of the old KNR, and optimizing it so it actually creates faster, smaller code. So it's it's getting improved on too. But yeah, it's uh, there's only so much you can do in an eight bit machine, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty much. And you know, stuff like calling conventions and things like that are going to be uh you know significant overhead on yeah. you know things like that okay well um mark if you're kicking around there if you want to like uh kick me off the live stream where we can actually have yeah. matt uh, share his presentation here yeah I'll, I'll just do a share here yeah and if anybody else at the end of the presentation has come up with some other questions before we let matt go uh we'll ask him at that point 
So here's a, uh, a, a just kind of a little presentation. It's mostly like a technical thing about about Wizards Den. Um, so background, you know, we covered this. Wrote it while I was in high school. Uh, ran it through uh, Tom Mix, um, Inspiration Gauntlet D and D, uh, the Bugs uh, program that was in Rainbow Magazine and Donkey King. Um, took it, it always requires 64k uh, only uses a floppy drive no tape uh, graphics mode 6 which was uh, 384 by 192 it's black quick correction it's actually 256 by 192 but yeah oh okay <laughs> and then it used the uh, color artifacting that's why at the beginning of the game like it says hit reset to uh you know to try and you know it says this box should be blue or red i, I don't know if you guys knew what that was probably. yeah that's that uh, where the phase clock could fire up at some random thing, so it could be either or. They fixed it on the Kogel three; it's consistent. Oh, and if you hold, if you get a Kogel three and you hold down the F one key when you power hit reset, it will automatically switch to the other one, so you always have a predictable oh hmm. artifact color. Didn't know that. Or maybe I did at the time, but <laughs> I don't. Wouldn't know. have solved it for the Kogel one and two, which is what your game was made for. So you right. you still needed it. Um, I think that the you know it has uh, ten big big levels on disc. Um, you know. I think key innovation I thought was that, you know, it had a large portion of the screen actually scrolls, animated backgrounds and software spites, sprites, um, very smooth, uh, you know, one bit accurate um, animation of the main character. And it uh, uses all 64K memory and uh, the, disc, the disc is also stuffed. You know, I think, weren't the discs, were they 177K? Is that right? Or 176, uh, I think. It's uh, 35 tracks, single-sided. I mean, most people had 40 track, though they didn't know it. But they never fixed the disc extended basic to use the extra stuff. So, so I didn't, so I, I may have been using more tracks or something like that. I, I don't know. The, the way that I actually accessed the disc was... There, there was some like ROM routine you could call to like read a sector or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Discon. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I actually used. Yeah, I mean the controller itself was capable of doing eighty track double sided. You could do a seven twenty k disc. In fact, I used a three and a half seven twenty k in mine, hmm. but uh, Tandy never supported that except in OS nine. Okay. Um, you uh, you, you know, there, there's a there's a gameplay video up there if uh, nobody's seen it, which I actually thought they did a reasonable walkthrough. Um, yeah, that little clip I played earlier was from that exact same video. <laughs> so design regrets. Uh, there was no design per se. I just made <laughs> it up. Um, bad sound quality, just mainly because I didn't actually really understand how to do sound. Um and so I, I don't know if you, if anybody looks through the assembly code, you'll basically see, you know, it just kind of like periodically bangs on the, whatever the registers were to generate sound. <laughs> and, uh, that's why it's mostly just like clicks and buzzes. Um, you know, I, I didn't have any, uh, algorithmically generated levels for playability and things like that. So the levels are always the same, you know, it's clearly it would have been probably been better to, you know, maybe try like compressing the levels on disk and maybe algorithmically generating part of them or, but you know, what I did was pretty simplistic algorithmically. Um, I probably should have reduced the amount of screen that was actually being updated um, just to enhance performance. But I, I was pretty fixated on, you know, trying to actually have the whole screen uh, be updated and well, one of the common complaints on the game is why does the wizard have a sword if he shoots fireballs? <laughs> Excellent question. And I, I actually have an answer for this. So 
originally I was trying to make some sort of combat game with a sword. And, you know, I did all the animation for it and it was a lot of work to, to do the animation for the guy. And then, um, I actually tried redrawing the guy with a, with a gun, but, um, it, it looked horrible given that, you know, it was the, the sprite is only, I think six, 16 bits, uh, wide and, you know, uh, six, 16, uh, pixels, um, you know, vertically as well. And you just couldn't make something that actually looked very good at, with a little gun. So, um, I didn't, I don't know if you, if you look at the guy, when he walks around, you know, he, it's got kind of like really nice animated feet and stuff like that, which I spent a lot of time on. And, uh, I thought they looked pretty good. And, uh, so redoing the guy was like kind of a non-starter. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a cheap studio. You reuse the graphics, just make yeah. it shorter and call it a magic wand. Well, there you go. <laughs> that that probably would have been a good idea. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe uh, version two point will do that. Um, the development. Looking forward to it. Um, I guess I had a Coco one, not a Coco two. VIP writer, some multi pass assembler linker, which I don't remember. Bunch of custom tools for graphics and and disc editing. Um, we talked about the that I purchased a Coco three and some joysticks for later development and. I just needed better tools and, you know, compared to today, you know, development for the thing was just so painful. Um, in terms of implementation details, used all 64K of memory. That was a big limitation. Bottom 32K was the OS, display memory, graphics access in the program. Top 32K was all uh, a map loaded from floppy. Um, I think it used 16K for... Um, Maybe that maybe this calculation is not right. If if Curtis, uh, no, that's that's about right. It's sixty one hundred forty four bytes per screen for that G six R mode. So yeah, so having two two display, you know, to having two copies of the uh, image is it basically when the game starts up, it drew two sets of screens, and then it always kept one, but it didn't modify being displayed, and it worked on the background one. And then I think for graphics memory. Um, it used maybe like six and a quarter, six and a half. Uh, yeah, pretty close. Memory. So there's 256 background tiles or eight, eight bits by eight bits. Um, and then it also had an animation FSM. And the way that worked was um, certain tile, like basically every tile also had like, what's the next animation number that it should go to. And so, you know, to, to get an animated if static tiles, just basically kept the same tile, but an animated tile would, you know, let's say it's number 10 it, it, in the remap, it would say 10 goes to 11, things like that. And then they always cycled. Um, monsters and explosion sprites, I think it used about 4K for that. Um, I think there were 16 sprites that were 16 bit by 16 bit. Um, and then uh, it used and, and or mass, uh, not X or mass, as I wrote there. And then I think the wizard itself used about 2K. It was a 16 by 16 uh, bit, but there were um, four directions, eight animations in each direction, and, uh, and and or mass on that. And then everything left over memory-wise, I just used for program memory. And, and I don't recall how much was left, but there wasn't very much because I remember having to redo a few things to, to get things to fit. 
Um, game execution logic, basically compute two initial screens and then it kind of loops, does IO, which is, you know, keyboard and joysticks, and then does, you know, it would basically do whatever sound was queued up. And then it would wait for a vertical, a vertical sync to swap screens. Then it would swap screens. Then it would update all the object positions, you know, wizard, monster shots, monster generators, uh, determine any collisions that happened, you know, apply consequences, determine what updates need to be done. Then on the back screen, it would remove all the sprite objects, uh, you know, on the on the backup memory. Um, it would do any uh, scrolling needed, and then it would update the uh, the map, you know, fill in any missing tiles. You know, if it moved in one direction, you need to fill in the the tiles on the other side. It would do any tile animation updates uh, that needed to be done. And then uh, then it would go and just put the new uh, sprites uh, back on the uh, the screen. And then it would go back to the top and wait for a new vertical sync. So it didn't, it didn't, you know, it just basically ran as fast as it could uh, flipping screens. That's kind of the gist of at least what I recall. Um, each map, I believe it was like 180 bytes by 180 bytes. Just use the full 32K. Um, each map byte corresponded to a, a tile or an object. If you pick up an object, uh, it always got replaced by a black tile. So, you know, if you saw something like a ring or a potion or whatever, those couldn't actually be, I think they could never be on top of like a white background. It always would have to be on top of a black background. So if you picked one of those up, I think it always replaced it by a uh, black tile. Um, there might have been logic in there to to do white tiles as well, but you certainly couldn't have them on top of like, like you look down the right, there's a, a, a tile object there. It's like repeating brick type tile. And you couldn't, um, you know, you couldn't uh, do those with, uh, you couldn't have objects on top of those and remove. Yeah, because if you did, it would just replace it with a black square and kind of destroy the effect of the. Yeah. I, I don't pattern. think we ever added any logic to be able to do that. Um, and, and on top of it, I believe that those objects, um, they weren't sprites. And so objects like that, because they're part of the background, um, you know, they wouldn't have looked like they were cleanly on top of the, uh, you know, on top of the, uh, you know, the floor. They would it would look like a square hole there. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we talked about the tile remapping animation. And then, you know, each map byte basically just gets mapped to a eight by eight set of pixels. And there's just some example pictures down at the bottom of uh, Things like a tree was, I think, three or four tiles wide and three or four tiles tall. And the, the kind of the cool thing about things like trees is you could make like all sorts of different trees by just having like uh, a couple different kind of mishmashes of like the, you know, the green like tree stuff on top. If you just had like one different tile on top, it, the tree looked pretty different. So, you know, just by changing up a couple tiles, you could have a. Uh, a whole bunch of different looking trees and the same thing like if you look at the like the splotchy stuff on the ground you could get a whole bunch of different uh patterns on the ground just by having you know uh, different tiles and different combinations so there was a bunch of effort that i put into you know making the tiles uh, be able to connect to each other and and i think i originally got that idea by looking at you know how gauntlet did did tiling 
you know, like watching it in the video, like in the video arcade. Um, scrolling and movement, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this, you know, wizards near center screen, it just moves, he moves smoothly by just in adjusting a selected animation, you know, until he actually moved a full eight bits and then you'd, uh, actually update his position. Um, when a wizard gets close to the edge of the screen, um, the wizard stays in that position and the map shifts around him. And, uh, I, I already talked about this, uh, how I did, uh, you know, moving of uh, memory. Um, software sprites, uh, monsters, a wizard, explosion, shots, they all use software sprites. I think I supported both 16 by 16 and 8 by 8 sprites, um, used and or mass, and uh, the wizard character used uh, four directional 8-bit uh, shifted animations. And, and I, I think the... <coughs> Some of the monsters use two directional animations and some of them like the skull, uh, I think it actually used uh, uh, either three or four direction animations. And uh, that that's pretty much it. Um, if anybody has any any questions, I don't know. We, we probably covered most most of the stuff uh, just in our in our discussion. I was going to say, I've never actually seen stack blasting defined on screen, but now I have. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just basically, um, <laughs> uh, you know, get get your stack at the right place, and then you just start uh, repetitively uh, pushing and popping. I don't care what it is. Shove it in there. Shove it all in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah the big advantage cool. of stack blasting is that the push and pull instruction basically has five cycles overhead for the instruction itself. But then every byte you're moving after that is only one cycle. So if you're pushing like six, seven bytes at a time, you're only adding six or seven cycles to move that many bytes at a shot. And if you're doing load A or load D store D, you're you're doubling or tripling that. Yeah, it was it was at least and and I kind of uh, you know, I I didn't have anybody tell me about the stack blasting thing. I, I think I kind of wandered into it by looking at um, I had a couple different x86, like, or I'm sorry, I had a couple different 6809 manuals. I had this one manual, um, it, it, was, it was like a square book, and I think it was like a kind of like a beige colored or whatever. It was about the 6809, yeah, beige. I think would that be William? Was it Coco specific? Do you remember, or just 6809? I thought it was Cocoa specific, like assembler on the Cocoa or something like that. Yeah, might might I, be William Barton Jr.'s. That that sounds yeah, right. William Barden Jr. Uh, there was quite a few. We had a, quite a few good manuals. There was Don and Kurt Inman did one. Um, Lawrence Teppel did two. One Coco three specific. I just Barden remember did, looking. I remember looking through all the like the cycles. Um, you know how long each each command uh, you know took, and uh, uh, that's how I kind of wandered into doing that. Um, and it, it was certainly. Uh, way more effective just like you were saying curtis than trying yeah. to, and the other thing i did was i unrolled the uh you know i unrolled the loops pretty well so there was yeah that helps a lot too a lot less branch compares and stuff so that saves you even right. more time right i mean the whole the whole moving the thing around was pretty it's pretty deterministic you know you know if you're moving you know shifting memory uh you know uh up down left or right and it's it's all pretty deterministic so 
I, I will mention, uh, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to take a look at some of the uh, Williams Arcade game, uh, six out of nine base games like Defender and Robotron and Joust, but they use stack busting a fair bit too. So you're in good company. Well, that's cool. I didn't, I didn't know those were 6809 games. That's, that's pretty, pretty cool. Those, uh, those have been transcoded to the Kogo 3. You can actually play them at speed on a Kogo 3. Really? Neat. Yeah. Oh, well, well, you've got me intrigued enough. I probably will play around with uh, some of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just grab from the emulator. The actual games themselves are most reported by Glenn Hewlett. There's some other ones by Mark McDougall and uh, John Kowalski, like Donkey Kong. The arcade game has been ported over as well. Oh, nice. uh, that actually that one was transcoded from a, a Z80 as well. But yeah, they're running natively on a Kogo 3 because the graphics resolution is pretty close. So yeah, if you want to try it, they're, they're available in the archive. And of course, there's a bazillion different emulators you could pick from, whichever one you want to. Yeah, what's, what's, what's everybody using for an emulator? Is everybody like MAME or, or is... XROR? Uh, VCC. VCC or XOR? Or MAME. XROR. Those are the three main ones. Yeah. There are some other older ones too. Or join us on uh, Thursday evenings for the Game On Challenge Live. What what's that? <laughs> uh, it's well, part of we have together to and commercial. Pl- play it live on the air. Oh, okay. <laughs> Our uh, the segment's coming up here uh, sh- uh, soon. Yeah. yeah, I will mention VCC is basically a Coco Three emulator. Um, XROR and MAME both have the options of doing pure Coco 1 and 2s because there is some compatibility differences on some of the semi-graphics modes, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, if you have any problems, um, either see us, uh, ask on the Discord, or if you're not on Discord, uh, you can um, see us on the uh, the Game on Challenge, and okay. we do help people even live on the air oh. get set up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, most likely I can figure it out, but if I can't, I'll I'll certainly ping you guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, if you want to get the actual software to try, like colorcomputerarchive.com has all the transcodes and, you know, Nitrous 9 and tons of games. And uh, so you probably can find your assembler again. Oh, cool. <laughs> it's probably well, up there too. I probably just use something else. <laughs> yeah, I would highly recommend uh, LW Asm by William Asm. Lost Wizard is what the LW stands for. It's his nickname, but... Uh, all right, that one. That one does six zero nine and six eight zero nine, and it's it's cross platform. It works on Linux. It works on Windows. It works on Mac OS ten. Okay. And he so hangs it on our Discord forum regularly and answers questions and updates. Nice. Does it work on uh, Nitrous nine or Ease of Use edition? It doesn't run natively under it, but it can produce for it. Uh, I just use my old, I'm, I'm like, for me, muscle memory is using the old OS9 assemblers and stuff like that. So I just overclock the uh, the emulator like crazy and just assemble it natively on there because it's quick. You know, <laughs> you guys were talking about, um, hey, is the old source code exist and stuff like that? I mean, just to give you an idea of like how bad it was to develop like a big game like this, you know, on a self-hosted thing. I remember going in on the source code and actually like reducing the names of symbols and things like yep. that. <laughs> just that too. Out to get the file to fit on the disk. Okay, make, make them all three characters or less now because the six is too big. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. And rip your comments out. All yeah, kinds there, of no, stuff. There, there were no comments back in those days. Yeah. Uh, you're a man after Nick's heart because that's pretty well what he does too. <laughs> 
No, if I if I wrote it today, I think it would be vastly better and uh, much much simpler to understand. So yeah, well, things like LW Asthma supports like massive macros and stuff too, so you can kind of like almost design your own set of routines and make them single sure. instructions, which is a lot easier to sure. crank out. Yeah. Yeah. Also, there's a lot of really good resources. It's like if you wanted some sound stuff, I have three or four people I could point you at that could help you with that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just, Nick, Nick just, is one of them. Just being able to look to see, you know, I just didn't have access to like any example code for for this stuff. And so just being able to even back then, you know, having been able to look at some games, how they did sound or whatever would have been pretty, pretty useful. I don't I don't think I had any way to like if you took a game like I did have a copy of Donkey King back then, but I didn't have any way to like stop it and look what was in memory or anything. I don't know yeah. if you could have reset the thing or whatever. You know, I didn't. I didn't have any hardware ices or anything like that. So, like one thing I'll mention on, on sound, like on the Coco Three, we've got a programmable interrupt timer, and you can set it up as an FIRQ or an IRQ, and that's usually what's used for sound because you can set it to like really, really fast sampling or whatever you need for your particular game. Sure. Uh, but Sockmaster, the guy who did the Donkey Kong transcode to the Coco, like the actual arcade game. He also wrote a mod file player. So you're familiar with Amiga. You're probably already aware of what mod files are, which are like four voice sampled mm -hmm. things. And uh, he wrote a mod player for the Coco 3 that actually runs pretty decent. You can run four voice mods on, on a Coco directly with the built-in okay. hardware. Cool. Yeah, you didn't have any uh, color computer clubs in your area where you live? Unfortunately, uh, I wasn't aware of any. Um I probably would have hitchhiked to them if if I had known about them. <laughs> <laughs> but at least you knew a couple people with Cocos because I know some other people in the community back at the, in the day had nobody. They were just isolated in some little town somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if 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 I'd had my choice, I would have had an Apple. <laughs> but I, guess, I don't know yeah. if I would have programmed it as much. I probably would have just played games on it or something. So you would have been much more frustrated, much later. Right. You would have been much poorer too. There. Oh yeah, but he would have had a user group at least. Oh, there, Bob Emery. Uh, uh, Mark, if you want to zoom up Bob's uh, screen, there, Bob is actually playing the Joust transcode from the arcade game to the Coco Three. Oh, there you go. Oh, looks looks pretty awesome, actually. Well, it should. It's the actual code. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> And so was it using like one of the Coco 3 graphics modes or something? Yeah, it's like? using a 320 by 225 16 color out of a 64 color palette. Nice. Quick go here. And you have palette registers too, so you can do animations with palette registers and having to physically redraw everything. So that, like, that effect on the border would be just a palette change. Yeah, makes sense. First. Oh, it's even got the digitized sound effects and stuff too, so they sampled it. Because uh, there still not isn't a sound chip in the Coco Three, but you can you can pound the DAC with that interrupt timer. Unfortunately, I think Bob's not sharing the sound right now, but you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's uh, fantastic. You know, had uh, had the original Coco, I think, been you know at this level of quality or whatever, I think it would have been uh, massively more successful. Yeah, the Coco One Two is a strange beast. Tandy picked the right CPU, like the best eight bit CPU you could have gotten the time. But the the video display generator chip is actually two years older than the Coco itself. That came out in like seventy eight and was used by you know some of the early early um, game consoles, like the 
trying to remember which ones used the Nick, do you remember mm-hmm. if you're on the call? That was like the uh, forty seven or something, the one that Yeah. Because it yeah. was done on like the video text machines use it, which is about half a year older than the Coco one itself was, but there was also some old, really yeah. old uh, uh was it a Famicom? No, not Famicom. Um the Channel Imagine. F or something used the VDG. There's a few of those. The Imagine machine, yeah. APF one thousand. That's what I'm thinking of. Imagination machine, yeah. Yeah, that was a 6800 based machine with the 6847 on it. And Danny picked that chip, which is already two years old by the time the Coco One came out, and then ran with it until the Coco Three. So they ran that exact same chip for eight years <laughs> since it came out, which is by that time it's so far behind. Yeah, the the whole using the tape thing, I, I think they 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 kind of came out with their computer when. Uh, you know, everybody else was kind of transitioning to disk drives. I mean, uh, C C sixty four and what was the Amiga, or not the Amiga, but the Atari like uh, four hundred, eight hundred, or something like that. I think those all had disk drives. Well, the Coco had a disk drive pretty early. It came out in eighty late eighty one, I think, is when it came out. I had mine in eighty two. Yeah, but most most right. people didn't have it. It wasn't like yeah. when you went to Radio Shack, like they tried to bundle it with it. You know, so. And it's also funny, like we've discussed this a lot of times on the show before, like one of the Coco cousins, as we've mentioned in the intro, was the Dragon 3264 from uh, the UK, from Wales specifically. And it was basically a Coco. It's a mother. It's a Motorola reference design, same as a Coco was, uh, except they added a real keyboard and a, a real parallel port and stuff. But uh, it, it it had the same issue that you're mentioning, except much more so in that the UK market stayed on cassette for years past the North American market. And that didn't matter if you had a Spectrum or an Acorn or a C64 or VIC-20. Everybody just stuck in cassette for years afterwards because they were so expensive to get drives there compared to North America. Mm. But almost everywhere, like in my local Coca Club, which we had, I don't know, 70, 80 members at the time, I would say three quarters of them had disk drives by 83, 84. Like not many people were using cassette unless they just couldn't afford it. I remember that one of the biggest purchases I made was uh, a dot matrix printer. I remember buying a Gemini, uh, was it Gemini? An X or something? Or something like that. Does that sound right? It's like a $300 uh, uh, dot matrix printer. Yeah, I think the Gemini and the uh, Epsons, I think, were the most common, aside from the Radio Shack ones. But honestly, most Radio Shack ones weren't the greatest quality print. (laughs) Right. Yeah, this Joust game is pretty cool. That's uh, that's impressive. They got a... Defender is also awesome if you see that one run. Yeah. And Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and Robotron. Robotron. Were all those yeah, games, yeah. those were all 6809? Uh, nope. Uh, Pac-Man and uh, Donkey Kong were both Z80s, I believe. And the uh, the Williams ones, so Robotron, Joust, and Defender were all 6809. We're all 6809, and we're just running their code. So, <clears throat> yeah, I'm surprised the uh, Z80 uh, machines were that actually that good. That was a pretty horrible processor, too. Although I think well, that's, that's faster ones. You were just watching the SDC. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is actually running real hardware here. So, hmm. not an emulator. Nice. Hence the load time. Yeah. Well, the SEC loads it faster, but it's a, it's loading 512K basically and decompressing it. So 
This is this is a Don Kong remix. So John Kowalski, you can see his name there. He's the one who ported the, he did the very first transcode ever on a Coco three, directly from the arcade source. And he did Donkey Kong and remixed. He decided to make a game because Donkey Kong is not hard enough on its own. He redesigned the levels to be much harder. <laughs> so that's what this one is. Oh, cool! Yeah, the graph the graphics are pretty awesome. It definitely sounds like it makes sense to um, you know do a uh, if you're going to write anything, do a Coco three one now. Yeah, and I suspect that's why your game didn't do as well. Because if it had come out like a year or two before, but before the Coco 3 was even announced, that would have been like a top-tier Coco 1 and 2 game. Yeah. Yeah. Bob, you should have enabled the sound. <laughs> I've got it plugged in. It won't come, it won't come through the monitor for some reason. Uh, yeah, because right now it's playing all the background sound like a do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do, plus the sound effects, just like the arcade game. I can actually hear it in my computer itself. It's not sharing. Is it? Sh- um, uh, did you click the you sh- sharing sound on your when you shared the screen? Right, which oh, you can only do once when you first at least have it coming out here. Yeah, but when you're sharing it through dis or uh, Zoom, you have to actually click the share sound button in the lower left when you're setting up the share. If it's not, it won't share the sound. But the only way to change that, you'll have to stop the share and then restart it. Yeah, you would have to. I don't even know. I I mean, my camera should be able to pick up the audio, at least from the TV, if it was played. But that sounds not even working. Well, no, it's suppressed because you're sharing your screen. So you're in a catch-22 here. So does anybody have, like, a, um, a version of this that, like, runs on a mobile phone or anything like that? I mean, like an emulator, or are you talking about Donkey Kong yeah, Remix? No, 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 like an emulator. So just, uh, is, um, is there like MAME for the iPhone or anything like that? Sort of. There is a version of the XWAR emulator that compiles to WebAssembly. Okay. And uh, I run the WebAssembly version on my tablet. So it, it's Ooh. really mobile friendly, depending on the web page you set up okay. to show. Can you send him the URL for that, uh, Alan? Sure. It's the XROAR homepage. Oh, yeah, the, the online version of the emulator is actually right on the homepage. I haven't uh, been on it for a bit. No, he's got it. He's got a link to it online from the XROAR page. Okay. This is one of the remix levels here. This is one of the new ones that John made specifically for the remix version of the game. Deceptively. Looks simple, it's not. <laughs> oh yeah, there's there's a few transcodes you can try. There's also some very close to arcade, um, you know, original, well, I guess not original, but uh, clones, you know, made clean room. Nick did a really good Pac-Man too, uh, until the, and, and by far the closest uh, we ever saw in the Coco until uh, Glenn Hewlett did the transcode. But they're still both pretty close, so it's it's you pick either or. And then, of course, there's newer games and stuff, too, like, you know, some of Nick's new stuff like Zero Hour or Gunstar. And, you know, there's just a ton. I'll definitely, uh, when I'm feeling uh, nostalgic, check some of this stuff out. (laughs) I've definitely enjoyed enjoyed talking with you guys. So, um, Matt, were you aware of the MC10 at all? You know, the the name sounds familiar. What, What is it? So 6309, is that it? No, no. 6803. 
6803. Was there an answer the to the Sinclair? The Timex is basically a little mini microcomputer, is called. Right. Yeah. I, I quite mean, quite limited at the it, time. It sounds familiar, <laughs> but yeah, I don't have any experience with it. Sorry. Well, yeah, it, there's been some hardware be, add-ons lately to help catch it up a bit here, but yeah, it was. It's even more of a challenge to program that one because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the memory is very thin. Yeah. Oh, it does have now. It has an SD card solution too. So that that the the cocoa that you showed there was the, what my cocoa looked like. So is the that one behind Ron? Yeah, that's a cocoa one. Yeah, that that's what I had. Yeah. Cool. Okay, was there any more questions for Matt from the uh, panel? I didn't see anything really coming through on the chat. Sixy, Sixy has a comment. The author oh. of XROR. Okay, go ahead. Oh, it just says uh, XROR Online works very nicely on a mobile phone, surprisingly, with how slow phones are today. But without a keyboard, it's not terribly useful. Well, you need your Bluetooth iPad keyboard that you can pair to your phone, and then you're good. Yeah, course, then you're good. The phone's now this big, but... First world problems, <laughs> I guess. Cool. Well, okay. I, I enjoyed enjoyed being on with you guys, and uh, is uh, great reminiscing, <laughs> and, and I like the sure. questions you guys asked. So that was fun. So oh, cool. Well, thanks, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for letting me put your game up for download ten years ago or whatever it was. Yeah, of course. Next next Saturday or the Saturday after, you need to let us know that you did get another co cocoa. <laughs> okay <laughs> but that we mean an emulator yeah whatever <laughs> yeah all right guys hey have have a good one okay thanks again all right thanks, Thank you, sir. All right. thanks for being on yep. it was a lot of fun huh okay um commercial, commercial break, break. <laughs> yay Hey, Amy. Hey, Taylor. We're It's your good buddy, your good pal Amigo, and joined by that dastardly The Brent from ARG Presents. You're watching Coco Nation. I thought this should have been longer. The Coco Nation Show would like to thank the following patrons Alex Gare, Brandon Donahue, Brian Walsh, Brian Weasler, Kieran Anscombe, Coconut Bob, Daddy Burrito. Diego BF109, Don Barber, Eric Canales, Glenn Hewlett, Glenn Wabke, Grant Leedy, Henry Strickland, John Budafkarshaller, Justin Larson, Ken Reichard, Kevin Holloway, Mike Rayburn, Patrick Euland, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, R. Allen Murphy, Retro Tech Time, Rob Inman, Rocky Hill, Steve Batson, Terry Stiege, Tom C., Tom Gunderson, Tom S., Tony C., and William A. Thing. Thank you so much, patrons.
Welcome to everybody's favorite segment, Who's New to Discord? Kosh Vader says, Hello, I'm Chris. Basically I started my computing career in 1982 with the first silver Coco 1 with 16K, Rev E, and standard color basic. From there, I proceeded to learn basic and quickly got bored with that, then learned 6809 machine language programming. These days, I mostly collect vintage computers Coco 1-2-3 and Apple 2 in hopes that one day I'll have time to get back to my computing roots. I found this Discord server through VCF West 2023. Alkin says, Hi, I'm Andy S, and my first computer was a 16K Coco 2. Unfortunately, I don't have it anymore, and I threw out all the tapes of stuff I made for it many years ago. Saw Michael Furman's display at VCF West, Joined here mostly out of curiosity of what the machine was actually capable of and what has been done, since I never got past a couple lame Radio Shack game carts and basic programming on it. The previous bios were edited for time. Thanks to, Alex Geyer, Boysen, Glenside Computer Club, Paul Fiscarelli, Paul Shoemaker, Tandy Color Computer 3, and the Coco Nation patrons for boosting the server. Please consider joining Discord and visiting the welcome section to read these bios in full and see what the community has to offer. Just go to discord.thecoconation.com. See you on Discord! Okay, next up, we're going to do some acquisitions and updates. There's the button I need. Uh, let's see, Brian, what you got up for us today? You disappeared again there. There you go. You're muted. Oh, hold on here. Oh, we hear you now. Okay. Not I, got, guard. I got, well, no, I got something else that's going on here. Let me stop this here. There we go. Okay. Okay. Let me uh, get one thing here going here so I can uh, share this with you guys. Oops. Let's see. What am I doing here? Okay. There we are. Okay. Sorry about that. I was kind of making sure, double checking everything was working here before I uh, before I started here. Okay. Let me disassemble here a little bit so I can share everything with you. So something we've been talking about um, uh, for a while now in and I think a lot of people have been anxiously waiting for, I know a few people in the, in the community have them. And so Curtis cannot say anything. Does anybody know what this is? Yeah. Uh, joystick. Yes. To, uh... Not a clue. I can't think of it. Just, um, <laughs> so, Paul Fiscarelli has finally made some of his uh, joystick adapters that people have been uh, anxiously waiting for. He, uh, I think, he ran into a, a little bit of an issue, something with the, I think, with the connector here. He was trying to come up with a better solution um, for the connector. Yep. He was having it broke too easily. Them. Yeah, right. And so he's been working on those. And uh, him and I've been chatting off and on uh, over the past months and stuff like that. And he finally got some available. So he sent me one. Whoops, keep it in screen here. Um, when you when you purchase this, you get the adapter itself. 
and you get the he sends you a nice little USB to USB C uh, cable, and he also has oops, and he also has this uh, nice little instructions that he sends with it. It shows how to, how it all works and everything. So if you guys want, I can go ahead and kind of demo it a little bit here um, of what you you know, might, might expect. Now, I'm going to be using VCC here. So um, those of you that are XROARs or uh, other, you know, that use the other emulators, I can't speak to those, but I can speak to what the experience is with, uh, with VCC. I got a question. Mm -hmm. mm, does that work on the um, Cocoa Pie? Yes, it would. Yep. Cool. So uh, the way this would work is uh, you would go ahead and uh, you plug this, you, you plug it into your USB port. I'm just describing here, and then I'll I'll share my screen here. So when you plug it in, there. Ooh, ooh, that comes through nice and bright. Yeah. Can, mm -hmm. can, wow! Uh, <laughs> gave you a laser. <laughs> Get a little laser right there. There you go. Oh, so, so that lights up nice there. Um, so this is your power on button here. Uh, this button right here, this is a button and a light. So when I press it, you see that it's red. And when I press it off, so what this does is when you're connected to your emulator, this now outputs as a right joystick. When you press the button here, it now acts as a left joystick. So that's how you can switch between left and right um, uh, within the, within the um, uh, emulator there as far as how this thing acts as far as the output. The dial on the side here. This is a moment. This is a potentiometer that it's also an on/off, so it clicks on and off. So right now it's in the up there. Now it's off, and then I can turn it on and and rotate it. What this is? This is your auto fire. So if it's off, it's you know, bing, 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 bing. You got to sit there and keep hitting the button. When you turn it on, it starts to auto fire, and what you're adjusting here is the speed of the auto fire. It's a cheat thing. It's a winner, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a save yourself from going to the doctor for repetitive uh, injury. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not, it's not a cheat. So it's a. <laughs> By the way, Tom Eric Gunners in the chat says I've been on the waiting list for that joystick adapter for a couple of years now. Sad face. <laughs> but you, you were on the list for quite a while too, weren't you, Brian? Yes. Yep. Yep. Almost since he he made it there, and then he ran into the issue, and he's been trying to work out a resolve for that. So. Does raise the question: Is there a list you are not on? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure about that, but anyway. So let me go ahead and share my screen here. Uh, let me uh, let's see here. Let me do this here. You know, when you say uh, sit on it and rotate, I keep thinking happy days. <laughs> <laughs> okay, share and screen. Here we go. And share. Okay, is this coming through okay for you guys? Or is it yeah. too small? Okay. This is sound on. So you you can see here um, this what, what I have up here is the uh, is the the joystick. So this is Windows. Uh, I don't know how it differs from Apple or uh, or Mac or whatever. But in Windows, if you were to click on the Start button and type in joystick, it's going to bring up this uh, joystick option here. And let me go ahead and plug in a joystick. This is one of the things that he talks about in the instructions that he sends you. Is that your joystick may. Um, uh, where are we at here? There we are. Where's my light at? There we go. Okay. So when you come into the joystick, one of the options that you may have to do here is to go into the properties 
Oops, sorry. It moved over to my other screen here. Forgive me. Here we go. You come into the properties here, and you can actually calibrate. I don't know if you guys can see this. Can you see in this little square box right here? Yeah. Okay. So as you move the joystick around, you can see that little cross here kind of moving around. And one of the options that you can do is you can come in here and calibrate it. You may have to do that. This is just strictly a Windows thing. So if you do the calibrate, oh, sorry, it keeps moving over here, guys. And you click on next and next. It wants you to move the joystick to all the outer perimeters. Oh, not quite getting all the way down there. Come on. There it goes. It wants you to kind of hit all four corners there. And it kind of kind of teaches it what it's doing there. And you can say finish. So that way you can see here now that I'm not touching the joystick at all, it's staying somewhat in center. And you can also you test the two fire buttons. You can see it here, one and two lighting up. And then you can say apply it okay. And you can do that for both uh for both the left and the right. And uh, also to note here, it says Arduino, uh, Arduino right here, and that, that's going to be relevant when you get into uh, VCC. So if we go into VCC now, and you go under configuration, and you go under joystick, you now have these two joysticks listed as, as uh, potential joysticks that you would use. So I got I got those already selected. And let's see here, go ahead and say okay there. I already have a uh, award-winning game uh, loaded up in here that I will play for you guys. Troid. Neutroid, yes. Neutroid. Neutroid? I was going to do Gunstar, sorry. No, do Gunstar, do Gunstar. Ah. <laughs> Gunstar, please. <laughs> so this will load up here. Uh, whoops, do I got... Here, I think I got this thing in RGB here. Let me look here. Can I vote Neutroid? There we go. Colors look a little better now. Yep. Yep. Oh, thank you for letting me vote Neutroid. <laughs> I'll go straight for hero mode here. Besides me, heard the opening explosion, even if it didn't come through the stream. <laughs> so you can see here, I'm just pressing, I'm just holding down the fire button here. And see how it's kind of rapidly getting faster here now? I'm, I'm actually turning the little knob on the side there. So you can see here, I can go all the way down, <laughs> just like, almost like one shot at a time. And I'm going to go ahead and turn the dial up now. And you can see the... the yeah, Charles, keep you getting closer together because he's got a maximum of three on the screen at once. Right. But now I can just sit here and just kind of hold the button here and uh, and it'll keep on sending them away at me here. So, so, but I think yeah. that kind of gives on this particular of game, you can run out of uh, shots. So you probably don't want to do that. But. Correct. I'm just, I just wanted to kind of demo the, uh, the auto fire feature there. So, but uh, to kind of, so people kind of get a flavor of that. So, anyway. So for those that aren't familiar with this, this is basically an adapter that will let you plug in an actual Cocoa joystick, like a Deluxe or a Black Beauty or a Trackball or a Wyco or whatever, and actually use those exact joysticks in your emulator. So you can actually use original Cocoa joysticks, if that's what you're used to, like I am, on yeah. the emulators instead of trying to you know transpose it onto some right. modern digi-sticky thing. Right. So I have a, I have a Deluxe uh, just plugged in is what, I, is what I've been – you guys saw me kind of demoing here. So, Is it under 700? 
under seven hundred dollars. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I um I think he's he's charging um uh, I think the forty four is what he's charging for him. Wow, so, that's so, that's reasonable. So what he did was take the crappy, crappy USB micro B connector out and put a USB C connector that doesn't break every time you sneeze. Is that what was that the change that's been going on? Um, I believe so. Yeah, I think he had a USB C on it. Um, is or not USB C? Uh, micro USB is that probably maybe? Yeah, what yeah, that's the of? bad, bad. Uh, yeah, that's the one I have. I already broke one. Like he sent me one as a comp, and within three or four weeks, it was broken. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to unplug it, then the whole thing came off the board. Cool. So I'm so, glad he went to C, which is a more hot swappable. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, what I'm going to in the uh, in the chat here. Let's see. Here, I'm going to see. Here, uh, I'm going to drop this into the chat here. Mark, maybe you can go ahead and uh, post this for us out there, if you could. Um, oh, did I lose it? I can do that. Uh, hold on here. Give me one second. Um, this is going to be the site uh, to where you can go and order them. I, I believe he's going to have some available. I'm not sure of the numbers. Hopefully he hasn't forgot about his waiting list. What's the adapter called? Um, it would be, uh, let's see, what's the official name that he has on here? The uh, Coco Joystick to USB. And use the number two in it. Joystick number two, USB. Okay. There's a quick shot of the website. Yeah, it looks like he has a kit version that's only 23 bucks if you guys want to do soldering. You can guess which one of those two I'd pick. (laughs) The soldering one. (laughs) Not if I want a working one. Right. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, does anybody else have any questions about that at all? Or I just wanted to. Looks cool. Yeah, no, it works great. so yeah, if you're if you're using the emulator, um, <laughs> confession. I hope my boss isn't listening though. But uh, I've actually taken this to work and brought up the emulator and played some games during my break at work there. So that's kind of you, you were testing that. hardware. That's right. I was yes, testing yes. hardware so. <laughs> during your break. <laughs> during during, during my break, yes, quote unquote. So anyway, but uh, so no, works great. I I really like it. I've been waiting for a while for it, and uh, yeah, it works really nice. Uh, th- this would have been handy uh, during b- balloon fire. Uh, you know, sit yeah. there and, and keep on keep on playing that. So, um, I do have another thing here I'd like to uh, to share with you guys here. Uh, let me un- unplug just a few cords here. I had it all hooked up here, so that way we could uh, so I could test it out while we were doing that interview. Great Why are you getting ready for that? There, uh, Mark, um, on the Coco Nation Show website, we have that uh, set of pages for vendors and stuff here. Just is Paul's up there for ordering these? Do you know? I didn't even know that Paul had an active site like this. Most of the stuff has just been GitHub things. Okay, because we should add that because that's something that some other we people should. have been asking for. So if he's actually starting to get them available, that would be good to put up there for people to find. Yes, we should. Is that is that you in charge of that, Mark? Or is it Mark B that's in charge of the website? Or Terry uh, Steggy? Um, I think any of us me. can access it. But uh, okay, Terry Steggy has been the main one, so... Um, okay. So the next thing I was going to show, it's kind of along the same line. I can't remember if I've shared this before. And I think, I think this was being sold maybe two years ago. Uh, maybe it's been actually maybe even longer than that. Maybe that's just when I happened to pick this one up, but it was the Coco PS2. 
Does anybody remember seeing this out there? And, and forgive me, I wish I could remember the guy's name that uh, that made this. And so uh, what it does, it, uh, yeah, turn around. Yep. So you can plug your uh, your joystick port in the back here, and then what it allows you to do is to use a PS2 mouse or a um, uh, IBM style joystick that would use like the 15 pin. Uh, Ooh, I'm a uh, game port. Game port. There we go. That's what I was looking for. Thanks, Alan. Game port. So um, it has a switch on the top here, uh, J and M, to switch between whether you're doing mouse or uh, or joystick. It also has some switches on the bottom, and in the instructions, it explains what those switches are for. Depending on what combination that you put them on or off um, affects the speed of the mouse, how how rapidly it would move across uh, the screen there. Hmm. Um, and, then it all, and it comes with its own. I already got it plugged in, so I won't uh, disconnect it, though. But it comes with a USB uh, uh, cable uh, for power. So when you plug it in, uh, in the instructions that comes with it here, he has this nice little card here. Um, it tells you that you have to have a, a PS2 mouse plugged in at all times, even if you're not using it. So there must be some way, that, or what it's, however it's reading or whatever, it tells you that you have to have that plugged in. And, I guess uh, it's the PS2 protocol, because even on PCs, you had to plug them in before you turn the machine on. Right. The and system I'll interrogates the mouse at startup, so it probably needs to be there when you first power it up. Go ahead and plug this in. He also provides a cable that has, whoop, uh, get it into the camera. Oh, it has a cable cool. that has your uh, that has your DIN connection on each, each end. He provides that as well. And I'll plug in the power. And when it's lit up, it has this nice little glow to it there. And let's see here. I just want to make a correction here too. Uh, I thought that was a kit version of the joystick adapter on, on Paul's site, and it's not. It's actually, that's a key adapter. Oh, keyboard key adapter. adapter. So that's that's that that kit has nothing to do with the joystick adapter. So my apologies for reading that wrong. Okay. You'll okay. fly. Let's see here. Let me do another little uh, switch here. There we go. So I was just gonna see if I can get this here to go here. We'll go down and we'll we'll go and play a recent okay. game here. You yes. need to update that SDCX, man. <laughs> yeah, holy cow, that's old. <laughs> if it's not broken, don't fix it. But uh... I think the guy that made this adapter has been at Cocoa Fest the last two years, but only on Saturday, if I remember right. Okay, yeah, I, I, I wish I could remember his name. I, I feel bad for uh, for not remembering it there, but... Uh, um. <clears throat> I just happen to have a uh, uh, just a like I said an IBM style joystick on it, <laughs> but so but I mean it, it, you know so if you have a favorite joystick that you like there you can go ahead and just kind of fire away and uh, but anyway um, there is a uh, I do have a GitHub on this one that I can kind of uh, let's see here get my uh, screen up here switch my video sorry. Why keep clicking the wrong thing? I'm getting click happy here. Sorry, guys. Um, oh, this must have been this. This this must be a donation show. Was that? Oh, (laughs) 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 Um, this must be a thing of here, though. So, 
Uh, I'm assuming it's still out there. So this must be if you wanted to make it. This would be the this would be for the case. And it says the documentation, the firmware, and the Gerbers. So you could probably go out and build one of these yourself. Um, but I can. Uh, I don't have anything electronic, so I'll just hold the card up there. And I guess if anybody wants to to look at this, they can freeze the screen and come back to this point on the show here. And uh, if they wanted to go there themselves. Because I don't know if anybody's making these anymore or not. At least I haven't seen. So I have right, a bench, I, the David Ladd version that only does just the uh, uh, just does the uh, uh, PS2 mouse. Doesn't do the mouse. Okay. 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 So, so I have those available computer, if anybody wants any. So classic computer workshop. Classic spelling is everywhere. Or classiccomputerworkshop.com. And you're on the right track. And it talks about here that this device allows you to use a standard PS2 mouse, PC joystick controller on your Tandy Color Computer 1, 2, or 3. Um, it's compatible with the Tandy high-res adapter and will function uh, with the two-button uh, deluxe-style joysticks uh, on your Coco 3. Uh, only the left button is uh, uh, functional there with the Coco 1 or 2. And then it goes into basically telling you what to do and how the, uh, how the different, uh, what the different switches and, and everything work so anyway i just thought uh since we were kind of uh, I, I recently got this here from paul and i'd show this other ps uh, the ps2 adapter there and kind of a little bit of a game flavor of things today but uh, unless anybody has any questions about it I, that's all i wanted to share today with you guys okay uh, let's see rick yeah, it's too bad our guest is gone because it's almost like I made this for him. Um, <laughs> give me the uh, screen here and I'll show you what I got going on. Hello? Hello? We hear you. I'm so little. I want to be big. I'm not seeing a screen share yet. Well, um, just give me spotlight. I, I'll sh I'll handle okay. everything. All righty. Come on, Zoom. There we go. So anyway, so the idea was we were talking about the ZX81. I've been crawling around looking for my serial port test equipment. And in the process, I came up with my ZX81 P2 which is, you know, an upgrade I would really like to see. Nice. <laughs> Look at that heat sink. Hey, hey, that's what a P2 takes. And so while on the process, I, uh, I uh, thought about other upgrades that I might like to see. And I was working on my cocoa, which let's see, can I throw this up? So here's my cocoa with the little sun monitor, which is a very nice upgrade for a cocoa. I might add it fits. It's the exact right size. And, you know, that all looks good, but, what other sun things could we use with the cocoa? And I came up with the Sparco, which uh, there we go. Uh, a sun Spark CPU and a little bit of a couple of gigabytes RAM upgrade. And uh, if you look really closely, here are the sun expansion slots because you might actually want to go to the Super Sparco, which uh, would be a sun. Spark 2 CPU and a Sun GX frame buffer to assist the Gimme with its work. It is on your website. Is it available for order now? 
No, we're but still the kid working is. on this one. Yeah, if you want to solder yourself, I, I got some plans for you. Um, so anyway, I just thought this tied in very well with the Sun workstation that our guest wanted to have. And, uh, you know, wouldn't this be the cocoa for him? Even the introductory <laughs> uh, one where the gimme is still doing the graphics, you still got the seat. So Rick throws in his contender for the Coco Four. <laughs> exactly the 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 Sparko. Oh yeah, and the Super Sparko. We, we we really we all want the Super Sparko. Anyway, that's all I've got. And of wow. course, somebody's got to do the TI Hyper Spark version. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that oh, that might be a slight these? improvement in performance. You really need to see them from the side because they are some cool looking CPUs. It's they look never saucers are landing on this thing, and we have Mitsubishi. And so didn't the government so just have some committee about studying these UFO things flying around? I think so. You were the cause of this all along. <laughs> Looks like a miniature city from Logan's Run. It does, doesn't it? I have one quick little minor update. I don't even have to show anything, but uh, at long last, Bill Noble freed up enough time to actually get the Matchbox uh, Coco, which is made by Roger Taylor. Uh, version of Nitrous 90s of Use, one, version one is now out and on the website, so you can go grab it. And I think it works on the Mr. 2 if you have the Roger Taylor core. And it has some enhancements that regular Nitrous on the Coco 3 does not have. Oh, the be cool if Roger Taylor would come on. We've tried. Come on, Roger. You I've, might got like. a, uh, I've got an acquisition. A um, couple of months ago, uh, if you recall, I mentioned on the show that my Coco SDC died. Um, right. I have one of the original Coco SDCs made by Darren Atkinson. Uh, and it, I'm, I'm not sure if it's either the first one or it's in the first three or four, I guess, that he made because uh, it was back then Darren was the creator and the, originally he was the, the one making the boards and uh, he would sell the boards. And I, I bought one and I've been using it ever since. And a lot of my programming has all been done on that Coco SDC. But a couple of months ago, I decided to be smart and update the um, MCU firmware by reburning it to the latest version. And halfway through the burn, it locked up and had never worked properly since. The SDC worked fine. It would boot up SDC DOS. I could access DriveWire, but I could not read the SD card at all. Uh, so the MCU had died. So I needed something urgently because, I mean, the whole world was waiting for my latest game, Neutroid, and I had to get... No, it's the other game I waited for. You keep confusing that. <laughs> and uh, so I had to get, get my Coco up and running. Um, I had the Coco SDC for, I don't know, when did he first bring that out? I, I think I've had it for about five, six years at least. So it's finally died. 2014 or 15 or something like that, I think. Yeah, something. It was 2013, 14. So it's a very early, the very early boards. So I thought, oh, I better buy another one. And, you know, so I ordered, I quickly went on online. And uh, I think that was about the time Frank 
at Retro Rewind and uh, injured his hand. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, well, he's probably not making any. So I went to Ed and um, I uh, ordered another one, another Coco STC from from Ed, which I'll just fire up my camera. You have uh, a camera? <laughs> yeah. yeah so, know, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, this is the um, cartridge I got from um, Ed, uh, Ed Snyder, Zipster Zone or whatever you want to call it. And it's I'm quite impressed with it. Um, I got it in the, uh, the the speckled. I don't know if you can see it in the camera there. Speckled white case looks quite good. Professional looking case. The board and everything all works works well. And uh, that got me up and running. So while um, while that was up and running, it just slots into the cocoa here, of course. Um. I uh, got in touch with Frank, and Frank said that he has, he can send me a replacement MCU. I said, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, he said he has heaps of in stock, and uh, he sent, they're very cheap for him because he buys them in bulk. And he sent me a uh, an MCU in the mail, or oh, courier or wherever. And um, so I... Can you then, zoom up a screen, Mark? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess how to do that. I'm just sitting here wondering why his because uh, his cartridge door is, is light colored. Ah, I can explain that in a minute. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, along with the replacement MCU chip, Frank surprisingly also sent me a black case because I never had a case for my Coco STC back then. Uh, Darren Atkinson just sold the board, the Coco STC board. And then the idea was that if you had an FD502 disc controller, you would just use the case from that, which I did have. And since I wasn't going to be using a floppy anymore, I took the, the controller board out and plugged in the Coco SDC. So I never had a proper Coco SDC case. So Frank surprised me by giving me a black plastic case as well, um, a printed case. And um, so for free. So I thought, oh, this guy's either cool. crazy or he really likes me. Um, so, so I put the MCU Buying in. loyalty. Yeah, that's right. I put the, the MCU for in. Me. <laughs> and uh, it's all up and running again. So now I have two Coco SDCs. I have a backup. So now... There is nothing to stop me from doing another Neutroid after this Neutroid. Mm-hmm. So, Thank God. I clamor to not do that ever again. <laughs> so, you can get, so you can get twice as much work done on the Coco now? That's right. That's right. So just trying to highlight the fact that we are very lucky in the Coco community that we have two excellent suppliers and manufacturers of Coco hardware. Um Ed Snyder, of course, with Zipster Zone, who has quite a few different products, including the SDC, uh, does multi-packs and keyboards and well, lots of things. MC10 stuff. And all they're all good, good quality. And, he, you know, I've, I've bought stuff from Ed before, so that's why I went to Ed first. But Zipster, um, Frank at Retro Rewind as well, 
is another very good supplier. And I'm very grateful they he just sent me the uh, replacement chip that I needed to get my original Coco SDC up and running. So now I'm I'm uh, I've got two Coco SDCs. Uh, only uh, one Coco, of course, but um, at least I have a backup if uh, if anything goes wrong again. So now you, you have more than one Coco. I think just one set up though, right? Uh, there is a power one. I have a power one put away somewhere, but I no- normally use this one here, which is actually a NTSC motherboard uh, with a PAL power supply and a PAL case. And this is where I'm getting to this white door idea. Um, hmm. The very last Coco 3s to come out from, from Tandy over here uh, <laughs> came with came with this white door and the plastic also is a little bit softer like a bit more flexible and more importantly they don't yellow they don't have the fire retardant stuff in there so this one is a you can't you can't see it very well because of the bad lighting here but it's pristine white as if i just unboxed it and um so yeah this is a bit of a mashup cocoa US a US motherboard, PAL, everything else. Or and uh that's my main cocoa. I do have a proper mm. PAL cocoa I put aside, but I, I because I develop all my software, I, I I basically give priority to an NTSC one. So that's why that's there. What year is yeah, it? Uh I've got an eighty six. I keep the old one so I can be make sure that all my it software works. will work on an eighty six. Anywhere, um, yeah. My Power Coco does have an 87, so I, if I need to, I can just whip that out to uh, verify that the 87, uh, my software works on the 87. But yeah, I try to keep the, uh, the 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 more common setup for development, so that I know that I'm on the right track. No Coco twos uh, or to- Coco ones, huh? Hey, Coco, I do have a Coco two. And a Coco one, but they're put away in a box. I haven't fired okay. those up in ages. That's cool. But yeah, now, Nick, you know, I'm, the... I'm going to piggyback on this story a bit here because I don't know if you caught it. Uh, last night, Frank was a featured interview of Aaron's on their Friday night disaster stream. Okay. And near the end of the conversation, uh, and I don't know if you wanted to reveal anything about it yet uh, in any detail, but apparently you and Frank are working together on a new product. Well, sort of thing. I mean, I've got to talk to to Rick about this. I mean, this is that sound that orchestra, um, orchestra, whatever we called it, one twenty. What we call it, Rick? The Orc one eighty. It's twice an Orc one eighty. One eighty. <laughs> so, yeah, I mentioned that that uh, I was doing that, and he had an idea for doing the DAX, the 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 four DAX that the Orchestra eighty um, has, but well, it has two. But uh, to do four and some other features on there as well. So I'm leaving it up to him. So he, we're not, yeah, we're sort of working together. I don't, I don't know. I'm working with Rick or I'm working with Frank. So, but uh, so we should, we should all three talk because I found a lot of complications with putting two DACs on the same channel, and I've solved yeah, a lot I, of them, which has taken months. So yeah, we should probably all talk. Yeah, Fra- Frank. Frank um, is using an actual DAC chip, um, so right. it, it's a bit of a different layout. Apparently, there's a, a, a DAC chip there that has uh, four DACs in one 8-bit DACs all in one chip. 
that's very cheap. So I don't know much more than that. I've just sort of left it up to Frank. Said, "Yep, uh, surprise me." So, <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know exactly. Uh, so I haven't done anything more on the uh, the sound program that I was doing because I've been busy with um, right. with Nutroid. Um, what a but, waste! Uh, no, I'm just kidding. But it's yeah. the same program, so no matter whose hardware, it's the same program basically. So well, it's yeah. going to be the same program with the benefit that um, it's still an Orchestra ninety. It'll still run Orchestra ninety files, and with a bit of luck, we might be able to get other programs such as um, Sockmaster's uh, Mod Player, which is right. a four, which uses an Orchestra ninety, but uh, it might be able to be modded uh, to use the four DACs which would give it a bit more speed because it won't have to uh, mix the uh, two channels into one type thing, whatever, anyway. And better quality because it'd be separate 8-bit DACs for each yeah, of the four yeah, channels. Be better quality two. Too. And the mods are already four channels, right? So, Yeah. Mods are already four, but because he has so, to combine two yeah. of them. Well, right. Drop four and the four will work much nicer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. There's no, no merging or mixing of the uh, tracks at all. But uh, my thing was just to do a, a, a well, like a sound program. Um, I, I I don't even know what it is yet. So <laughs> that's um, so. What's that thing plugged project. into? Uh, Doorless CM8 or a uh, 8CM515? Uh, what my Coco? Um, yeah. Oh, oh, it's in a um, well, what you call a Magnavox, I guess. Yeah. Any five fifty? There you go. Magnavox and. And, and and these funny things um, haven't been on for years, so right. <laughs> they're, they're physically there because I've got nowhere else to put them. But uh, yeah, they never get used, of course. That's where they go? Thanks to the, I don't know. It just looks good. Look wrong but, if you put them there. It looks period correct. Right. Yeah, that's right. T act drive, right? Ah, uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, they were cool because so, they but, matched. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've still got the drive there, but I just never use it. Uh, everything now is done with the Coco SDC, the greatest product ever made, supplied and manufactured by two of the best hardware developers that we know of on the Coco world, Ed Snyder and Frank. Uh, I forget his last name. Lynn Harris. Just <laughs> <laughs> call him Retro That's Rewind. Right. Yeah. Of Retro we- Rewind, and I highly recommend both those suppliers uh, for. Well, certainly Coco SDCs, but for anything else that they make as well, they provide a good service, good quality, um, and uh, I can't say anything more. They're just brilliant. How much memory you got in that there, Coco? Uh, I've actually got a 2 meg uh, in there, which, um, yeah, it's got 2 meg of RAM in there. So I think I've got uh, a triad. Uh, is, is the name plate correct? It. Uh, yes, it is too. Look, wow! I this or it. you are so high tech. There we are, two hundred four eight k. Wow! So that's my uh, pride and joy. Okay, I'll stop the video, and that's all I've got to blab about. Okay. Well said. All right. Uh, any other project updates? Well, yes. I do have Nutroid, but uh, I won't say anything <laughs> because I'll get. I'll... Uh, Sloopy, you ready? 
Save it for next week, Nick. <laughs> no, I'm slow. Yeah. If you're not ready, then just go anywhere. Uh, okay, let me see. I gotta hit this button over here. Uh, you doing it live, or you got? Uh, yeah, that's right. You didn't send me one, so. Uh, yeah, of course I'm doing it live. Okay, let me see if I can find the right button here. I'm used to doing it on the stream deck. All right, take it away, Sloopy. Greetings, all. Welcome to the Coco Nation Game On Challenge. Uh, I need to talk to uh, my, uh, how would you call it, my agent, because Ken's been gone a while. I want my name first. <laughs> Let's see here. Share screen. I have a version of that, actually. Sloop <laughs> and Kenny? Let me remove this stuff out of my way. Okay, everyone can see my screen. And let's load up the uh, high score list. Thank you. Load. Game on, 177. Don't worry about any of that other stuff there. By the way, Sloopy, I know you're a bit newer to the Cocoa than most of us. You can just do run, quote, go 177. You don't need the bass. You don't have to type run separately. Yeah, so I know. That confident. But but the idea is is that people are supposed to look at the, the things in the directory listing. And that gives oh, you okay. time and, for them to then, read it. And then say, where is next week? Yeah. It yeah. says new Troid. <laughs> yeah. We don't need any new Troids. <laughs> yeah, we do. You notice the other games, too? Neutroid, Deep Crasher. Yes. Yeah, all right. Uh, we played Warehouse Mutants by Tom Zarnecki. And we had 12 mutant hunters. And no, we had eight mutant hunters. I forgot to update that line. And eighth was Exile in Paradise, who rolled a zero. Marco with 125. Six was Coconut Bob with 500. Fifth was yours truly at 925. Fourth was Sabhead with 2,500. Third is Rich N with 3,750. Second was Buck Owens with 12,600. And the number one hunter is, can anyone guess? Tasman's my guess. Tasman was 74,400. Thanks for playing, everyone. And he's the Tasman. Exile made the top of the list. Yeah. Where I belong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Exile in Paradise did play, but he was having uh, button issues. Evidently, Homer Simpson's not his name because he couldn't push the button. He's one of those adapters we were showing off earlier. With yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, as uh, people uh, suggested in the uh, Discord, uh, there are uh, strategies to it, which obviously not many people got real quickly. 
um, with the uh, low scores. Um, but yeah, it seemed that the, although it, was a, it seems like a really good game, one of the biggest issues with it is the difficulty ramps up exception, excuse me, exceptionally quick. I mean, first draw, all of a sudden you have four um, mutants in the warehouse, and all of a sudden you're at six and seven and eight really quickly. So it would seem that the one of the best uh, courses of action was to get yourself into a position where you can easily get one or two right off the bat so that you're only dealing with the other two while moving around. Um, so other people on the panel have played. How did they feel about it? Marco, I'm looking at you because I think <laughs> you, you are the only one that played. I mean, Very even, frustrating. Even Mark B. didn't submit a score. Well, it was very frustrating, which is why my score was zero. I don't know what was going on, but I could not push any of the blocks. And I tried a couple of different versions, and I kind of tried a couple of different emulators. So it's just something with whatever my setup was that night for uh, <clears throat> playing on an emulator, trying to be on the stream. So I was yeah, able to push it, blocks. What? I was able to push blocks. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm sure if you can actually push the blocks, the game goes better. So uh, it looked good. It uh, seemed to have game logic, but that's about as far as I could get. Mm, like maybe yeah. it starts off a little too fast. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing I noticed. It was a little um, tough to, on the on the start. I think if it only went down to like two... Well, started with like two or three mutants um, at first and it waited like close to like 30 seconds before it brought more in. It would have been, it would have been a much better starting. Gives you a chance to get in the groove. Yeah, it does kind yeah. of a quick start. It's like all the stuff suddenly happens. Like what? Yeah, I think part of it is, is, is the same problem that a lot of games of that time period had where the, de the play tester and the developer are the same person. And because they've play tested it so much that they make it easy for them, but not realizing that for someone who's new to it, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. Yeah, it has to do with the, the, the speed of ramping up the difficulty. That's something that Nick spends a lot of time on in his games. Right. Yeah, because it's like no, uh, if, if you've been playing it for a while and, and you've got things down, then it's it's pretty easy on the first level but if you don't have anything down then it's so quick that you don't get the chance to even learn how to get the gameplay down before you're already dead i also had difficulty with controls on it too but i don't know if that was because of the quote-unquote joystick I was using, or if that was in part of the game. I unfortunately need to play that game some more to get a full opinion on it, but overall, I did like it. Um, any uh, Anyone remember the game from back in the day? I, I used to play it a bit, but I, I used to play Pengon by Spectral a lot more for Pengo-style games, so I didn't play Warehouse Speed so much, or Ice Master by Arcade Animation Inc., which is another Pengo clone. Um, I think out of the three, the Wares Mutants is the one I probably played the least. Yeah. 
unfortunately, up until last Thursday, I never played this game before. <laughs> so I can't say back in the day myself. Uh, Scott Cooper in the uh, comments says, uh, at first, I didn't like the game. But after figuring out that you don't need to box yourself in to keep from getting killed, then you have all the time in the world to figure out how to herd the baddies. Yeah. yeah. Actually saying you do have to box yourself in that basically protects you so you can take your time to yeah. this level. The other, the other thing is you have to watch out for the for the boxing in because if your boxing in is too large, a baddie can um show up in within in one of the walls of your box and then come in and then you only have a very small limited time to deal with it. But yeah, boxing yourself in is a good way to get a hold of things. Yeah. I can how much better his score was than everybody else's. I would take his advice. Yes. <laughs> it's like an order of magnitude above everybody else. Yeah. Can we get him to do the game on challenge a week early and give us all his advice before we start? If you're in the Discord, he sometimes does give you tips and tricks in the Game on Challenge channel, just just so people know. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we also uh, do discuss it while we're playing it too. So we're also we will we will be playing. Uh, uh, what was that other wonderful game that I chose? <laughs> it was a Dragon exclusive, wasn't it? Oh, yes, that's right. Bolly Farms Chicken Run. Bolly Farms Chicken Run. So I've I, I, I been busy with work this week, but I did see on a couple times I managed to go on the Discord for any length of time that somebody was trying to patch it for the Coco. Did that ever get finished or no? Uh, um, not that I know of. He got with him. That was Mike Miller. Uh, and yeah. then he found that there's some sort of chunk of basic code somewhere in there. So it needs a, a whole different separate thing to go on. Oh, okay. God. So he was patching the the calls for the, the keyboard routines and stuff, but uh there's more to it than that. Okay. But uh, uh, I did done picked a good dragon game. <laughs> so basically if, if somebody wants to play it, they either need a real dragon or they need an emulator. They won't be able to do it on a Coco. Hardware. And the thing is, is that two out of the three major emulators will emulate a dragon in addition to the Coco. As a yeah, matter of fact, one, and meme. yeah, as a matter of fact, one of them isn't even actually truly a Coco emulator. It's a dragon emulator with Coco capabilities. Correct. Yes. So Folly Farms Chicken Run, very interesting game. Yeah. Uh, it's it comes with like the whole manual in the beginning of the game so when you start it up there's i don't know 10 screens of stuff to to read and i think that is to stun you senseless to understand how to play the game because it's got a whole complicated set of interlocking objectives that it comes down to a timing to figure out uh after reading all of that i didn't think that i had enough of a graduate degree to even attempt the game um but it turns out it's easier than it reads Mm-hmm. This it, reminds me of Neutroid. It does take a bit to understand the timing of the, when to feed the chicken. You got to watch one edge of the screen, where the farmer is on the other edge, where the little open door flap things are at this moment. Then when is that all going to come together with when you should actually start doing the egg laying thing? 
you know, plus the Fox. There's a lot going on with this game. You have to kind of pay attention to all of the screen at once. Yeah, and when the fox is looking into that specific level of the uh, of the uh, chicken house, but, yeah. this week on the uh, on the uh, game on challenge live, I will be playing it on my co dragon and see how well it does there. Yeah, that'll be a cool experiment. You want to tell people what that is for those who don't know what the co dragon is. Because I remember that, but other people might not know. The co-dragon is where I modify a Coco 2 into a Dragon 32. And Sweet. it works fine. Um, you added a parallel port and stuff too? No, it's just <laughs> everything. The real everything, keyboard? Yes. Key well, it's, a, it's the Coco 2 keyboard. But it's there's an adapter that adapts it from... The Coco to the uh, Dragon uh, layout. Oh, so is it like a ROM upgrade you did? That then it's basically changing no, the ROMs. No, it's a it's a it's a bone stock Dragon Thirty Two ROM. Nothing has changed in the ROM. Okay, it's but he is putting that ROM in the machine. Yes, the ROM is going in the machine, and it's actually in a little adapter that goes into where the pl- where the keyboard plugs in, so that okay. you can uh, so that you. Uh, can actually use the full keyboard because the keyboard lines are a little bit different. And when you're using a Coco SDC on it, you actually have to put the Coco SDC in dragon mode in order to use it. And it so, does work with the Coco SDC in dragon mode. So literally the only change is the keyboard map and Coco Coke dragon ROM and a Coco two and flip the keyboard map. And it's a dragon for the most part. Yes. Other than the things it doesn't have, it doesn't. Right? It doesn't. Yeah, have like a parallel port, or, or if you have a Dragon sixty four, it had a real serial port sixty five fifty one as well. So it was a few things, yeah. but cool. Yeah. So, the, uh, this was originally supposed to be part of my internal drive wire board that was supposed to be released sometime in vaporware, but unfortunately, because of lack of uh, interest in it, it just hasn't been done. Um, because it was supposed to be a special feature of the. Uh, of the Coco one and two, two uh, um, internal drive wire boards. Now back back to the game for a second here. Is this game work off cassette only? Like you have to load it off a cassette yes. image, or does or can you load off disc image on? Dragon it was Dogs? originally released only on cassette, as far as I know. I've not found a disc image of it. Okay. There is a disc image out there, uh, but it is the Dragon VDK image. So ah. you'll be using a dragon, dragon DOS to run it. So would you be calling this a Draco? Hey, there you go. No, it's Not called Draco. It's called Co Dragon. Yeah, oh, Draco the Co Dragon. I think Draco's a great name for it. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> You're welcome. No charge. Do the do the dragon logo, <laughs> but logo green. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> with but, scales on it. Yeah, the idea for choosing this game was, um, I mean, we constantly will pick a Coco one and two games, and then usually about once a month we we pick a Coco three, and then every once in a while, every few months we'll we'll choose an MC ten game. And the thing is, is that we, we are the Coco Nation, and we support more than just the Coco and the MC ten. 
We also do the Dragon and the CP400 and... Photomex 6809, Sampo. Exactly. Even the Alice. So Now, now Sloopy, it's, it's coming up in the news a bit later, but <clears throat> the next Dragon meetup at the uh, Cambridge history museum or computer history museum or what it's called mm-hmm. i'll be talking about it in the news a little bit here but that their next meetup is on october 7th and 8th i think we should coincide a dragon game for that particular episode as well heck yeah that'd be a great idea because i mean didn't we we do a dragon game before when they had the uh dragon meetup yep. yeah and it's an annual thing so we, we can do this right. every every year type thing to make sure that there at least one dragon game gets in there you know yeah. actually if you let a cocoa turn gold or you know <clears throat> turn yellowish it would uh, look more like a Draco. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, well, I'll uh, discuss it with Ken and then we'll see what we can come up with. Maybe we can find another game that's uh, not easily transferable so people can't make a Coco version to try to play on the Coco. As it was and I will mention too, uh, it, I might as well just reveal the news story right now for this particular thing. So this uh, is a two-day two event. And uh, this, they have a theme this year of software. And one of the things they're going to be covering with the software side, of course, is games. So you might even get some suggestions from them, maybe talk to some of them, because they're going to have some game on challenges themselves internally at the show. Maybe we can get some of the people on the, you know, this side of the pond to actually play the same game as they are and make it a big, you know, international game on challenge, mm-hmm. more so than normal. Uh, and they're also be covering other software stuff. They're going to be covering alternative operating systems like Flex and OS 9 and, you know, all kinds of other stuff too. I would imagine, you know, assemblers and things too. But the, the, the theme this year is software and, and they are doing some game challenges on Dragon games. So I would maybe get a couple of Kieran or somebody that's, you know, got access to the people there and, and see if you guys can work something together. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, Tom Eric Gunderson pointed yep. out why I didn't call it the Draco because there's already a, Draco 64, which allows a Dragon 64 to run Coco software. Okay, so Co-Dragon. So Co-64. Yeah, both. Yeah, because someone recommended uh, Dra- Draco before. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was like... Co-Draco. Uh, no. <laughs> no, I like the Co-Dragon better because it's... Hmm. It sounds more like more mm-hmm. than just a dragon. Co-Dragon. Yeah. <laughs> Like Go Dragon. Sixty saying in the chat, he says, now I've got the same information as the rest of you as far as the software. So, Karen, if you can get in contact with some of the people that are in charge of it. And, like, I know there's they're, from the sounds of their uh, entry on Facebook about the show, it sounds like they're going to have several games chosen to be part of their little game challenge. If you can even get them to reveal one to us that we can participate in, uh, just to make it so there's a bit of a cross, cross-platform sharing there i mean they if they want to keep some secret like i know they want to keep some of the game secret so people can't practice ahead of time and it's just like you know cold start here you go you got two days do as best you can uh if we can get maybe one of them that they can send us that we can all participate in that'd be great yeah if they wanted to contact just one of us individually so that we can uh so that we know so we can have it ready for the show so that only yeah. that one person knows that's possible you can contact either me or ken Yep, that'll work. So what's our game for next week, Sloopy? Oh, was I supposed to pick a game for next week? I figured after these two games... Well, I was going to ask Ken, but he's not here. Yeah, I figured <laughs> I'd, I'd be shot. But... Uh, as long as it's not a Neutroid derivative, I think we're good. 
The Folly Farms one is actually better than it sounds like on paper. Hmm. It, it well, just you will have to take some time to to get. I wanted to be the farmer and be able to get the axe and go after the chicken and make chicken dinner. <laughs> it wouldn't. Let yeah, that, that's that's called Kentucky Fried Chicken Farm. That's a different game. Yeah. All right, and our something game, like Chicken Run, the movie. Our game for the next two weeks is. Because we uh, are a multi-format, within-reason show, is Hopman by Inufuto. There's the 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 Coco one and two version, the Coco three, and if you scroll down a little bit further, the MC10 version, which requires 16k. And these just got released. We were covering the news, but these just got released the last week of July for our machines. And the new uh, other cross platforms are just still getting out. The Tier City Model One version just got announced like a day or two ago. Sarah, Dragon version specifically? Um, I think the Coco version works if you use joystick, but I'm not sure. He doesn't, he doesn't mention the Dragon specifically, so. I mean, that's one you should be able to patch fairly quickly, I would think. But Yeah, because weren't his other games easy to patch or something? Yeah. It basically, if it's keyboard, you just have to patch keyboard routines. Everything else is pretty well. Yeah. and there Now, is... most of their games have joysticks, so you probably don't even need to patch. But I, I haven't tried this one yet, so I'm not sure if it does or not. Well, his, his games use arrow keys because it says move arrow keys or JK and jump is space. So probably would need to be patched. And he only offers it as a um, as a wave or cast file. Yeah, all of this stuff is pretty well cassette only. So we just copy to disk, and sometimes yeah. some of us will patch it so it runs in disk properly. Other times we'll just use ROML to load it. Right. Sorry, ROML confuses me so much. It's pretty easy. You exec it and you type in the name of the program to run, and that's it. <laughs> I'm not sure what it, what could be simplified. I mean, it's old, and it was originally designed for running cartridges, but because there's a product sold that's that's called Rommel. Yeah, but that's probably way newer and is infringing on the copyright of the trademark of the original. <laughs> Isn't there another game called Rommel? Yeah. Yeah, Rommel 3D. But Rommel, the uh, ROM pack loader, which is what it, that originally stood for, came out in 82, well, summertime, if I remember. Yeah. So. Or the dragon existed. Rommel is a German old. general. Northern oh, Africa, oh, yeah, that, that's even older yet. Right. So <laughs> I think I came that, first, was, but... that was the Coco 1 and 2 version, and here's the Coco 3 version with slightly better graphics. And anyone who plays on the MC10, they they will be uh, given a gold star. <laughs> uh, okay. For the audio listeners, because we're not playing any audio from the clip here, it's it's a it's one of the first interview ones I can remember that actually is a side scroller. So you're basically hopping between uh, platforms, you're collecting flags, you're dodging monsters, et cetera, trying not to plummet through the hole in the bottom. You've got little elevators that lift you up and down as well. 
and your goal is to get all the flags and then get to the far right hand corner. I'm assuming every level is like that, uh, where there's a a goal as it's labeled with a little flag, and you have to jump into that, and then you go on the next level, which gets more complicated. Is the audio and you get time wars? There it is. All right, and MC10. It's amazing they haven't changed the name yet. Name's right. Hot person. <laughs> I was more wondering what that nude beach game for the Coco was. <laughs> the new what? Oh, it's a YouTube suggested video. Said something. It's a sign about a nude beach. Really? Yeah, YouTube suggestions are getting retarded. I'm getting all kinds of crap in mind now. That has nothing to do with anything I'd ever be interested in. Well, they got to compete with TikTok. Yeah. So now they're just going to spin the random dial and hope the algorithm excuse works. So that's funny. That's uh, all right. So hot man, let's get hopping. Yep. Hopefully that's uh, it's as good as Ariel. If, if somebody can post the link in the chat too, it's just so people have it recorded for, for grabbing the game later. And Good we'll idea. post the link, of course, in the game on charge. It's a free download, by the way. It's, it's there's no you know you don't have to buy it or anything. There. Yeah, and it will be uh posted in the uh, game on challenge soon uh channel. So cool. But now is Ken expected back in time to play this one or uh he is going to be back on next Saturday but he won't be home to his cabin until the evening from what I understand okay and when is uh, VCF Midwest you guys are going to it is the second weekend of September oh so he'll be here for a couple weeks anyway before that right okay you'll be back to regularly scheduled games then instead of the wonderful stuff that I pick but look at the bright side I pick the stuff that no one's heard of, let alone played. So, <laughs> and the ones we have to go through hoops to actually play. <laughs> hey, cassette only, dragon only. This only runs on the Brazilian TV 400 with a <laughs> with a special ROM upgrade. <laughs> hey, just think: once you get that that dragon emulator running, that opens up a whole new world of dragon software to you. Yeah, but then I got to learn Dragon DOS because that's quite a bit different than Disk Basic. So I'm going to have another learning curve. I boot instead of DOS. Done. So, so question for you: uh, How soon until uh, until um, uh, OS nine is uh, released for the uh, Dragon? Uh, since negative forty years ago. Yeah, nineteen eighty three. Ease of use edition. Uh, that would only work on uh, what would be the Dragon Beta, maybe. Yeah. Uh, the board for that does work now, right? Yeah, and they've got their own custom level to OS 9.4 with some special graphic stuff that our Nitro doesn't have. A professional. Yeah. Mark, did you bring enough for everyone? <laughs> <laughs> He's got goodies. Yeah, where's ours? <laughs> All right, so our two games for the next two weeks are, uh, what was the... Farmers one called Farms Chicken Run. Bali Farms okay. Chicken Run. 
And then Hopman from Minifuto is the other one, which you play in the MC10, the Coco 1, 2, or the 3. And presumably the Dragon, if it uh, offers joystick controls, you might have to figure out the keys. And basically any other retro machines you have in the neighborhood. All right, Sloopy, I'm going to ask you. What, what's the little guy there in front of you? That's Joe. <laughs> Anybody we know? Joe's Computer Museum or whatever it's called? The YouTuber? Yes. Joe is there to remind me that I I'm, that I'm way behind on doing something for updates and acquisitions, and he's there to remind me so that I don't forget. Uh, the whole thing about Joe will be revealed not next Ooh, uh, week. Due course, when which is when it was originally supposed to be revealed. Well, not originally, but originally it was supposed to be revealed last week, but the following week because I will not be here the next week. Oh, Julian Brown, uh, the guys that do it, does a lot of the development of the replacement motherboards and stuff for, for the Dragons in, in the UK, says, my next Dragon board should have enough memory for big OS 9, but needs drivers for the memory paging. So that's getting up to the Coco 3 MMU type stuff. Cool. Ooh, nice. nice. Okay. All right. So, hey, wanna... before we hit the news and the game on news, I think we should have a commercial break. Okie dokie. <laughs> what a... Hello, this is Mark Siegel, product manager for the Color Computer product line and designer of the Tandy Color Computer 3. And I'm proud to be a citizen of the Coco Nation. Shall we play a game? Making games for the Coco for over 35 years. Go to my Coco Games website at www.nickmarentes.com for information and pricing of my later games as well as downloads of many of my older games. Coco 2's got personality, lots of practicality, fun, it's sensational, learn, it's educational. Coco 2's expandable, so easily commandable, it's programmable. 
Cocos, the Termic Van Grammable. Just you and Coco to do what you want to do. Coco 2, the color computer with personality from Radio Shack. Sale price for Christmas giving from $149.95. Radio Shack's Coco to do what you want to do. Got back just a nick of time. <laughs> yeah, I had to grab some food. <laughs> I want to know where my donuts are, Mark. You brought donuts. We didn't get any. Uh-huh. That's why I had to grab my own. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't sharing. Okay, guys, seen that screen with the Android attack? Yep. Yep. Okay, so Chronologically Gaming, um, the YouTube channel, he's also our interview guest here a few months back, uh, finished the summer break, and he's been getting back into 1982. We're still in May. And uh, now he's covered a fair number of Cocoa games. I'm not going to play every single thing here, but I'll just show you like a kind of a screen grab and maybe play a little bit of one or two of them. So first one here is Android Attack. Now, this originally was released in May 1982 as Robot Battle. Uh, it's a Berserk clone from Spectral Associates. Now, they had to change the name shortly after this because Robot Battle, the programming language game, from Tandy came out, and of course, they weren't going to compete with Tandy on their own turf type thing, so they renamed it to Android Attack. And that's also the name it was in uh, the UK. Uh, pretty, yeah, and actually, the screen of, or the shot of here of the actual packaging is from the micro deal version, so that is the UK version that was sold for the Dragon and the Tandy. <clears throat> Another one we played, they played on uh, the stream here was sorry, go ahead. That had a Dalek on it. How did they get away with that? Because generally the BBC chases down anybody who puts Daleks on anything. That's amazing. I do not know. <laughs> and at 60, 60s obviously played the game because he's he's describing the voice because that actually was one of the selling points of it. Intruder alert, intruder alert. It's basically it's because the sampling rate's pretty low. It's got kind of a Elmer Fudd lisp to it. <laughs> <clears throat> Talking Android. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in, instead of intruder because R requires a higher sampling rate than they used. It's intuda a what? Intuda a what? That's great. I love it. <clears throat> and as he found out when he played it too, it's got a few extra features they threw in. Like the, you collect crowns for extra points. That's not in the original Berserk. And you have the option of ducking and jumping to try to dodge shots. As he put it, and I agree, it's it's not terribly useful, but it, at least they tried something different. Uh, next one here, another Spectral Associates game. Uh, this is called Color Out, and this is one of the few commercial machine language 4K games. We've covered a few of those before ourselves, and uh, he's covered a few of them as well. Because um, basically by the time, you know, late 1982 came around, they weren't nobody was bothering making 4K games except for Tandy after that. And they kind of cheated because they had a cartridge, so you had ROM added on. And it's basically just a, a, a low-res SG4, you know, bust-out style game. And this one I'll play a little bit of. This is a bit of a, a rarity, <clears throat> and I'm trying to remember who found it for me. I think it might have been Bryza, Brian Palmer from Australia, actually. I think someone who found this. 
So you can see here on the middle of the screen, there's an ad from 80 Microcomputing from 1982. And this company, um, D.L. Dawson, David Lionel Dawson's his full name, he never published this ad for these games here except in 80 Micro. He never put it in Rainbow. He never put it in Color Computer News. Never put it in um, anything else, uh, Compute, 80 Micro, or 80 uh, US Journal or anything. The only place I ever found an ad for this was in 80 Microcomputing, and it did go for several months. And there's a few of these games here. Some we have, some we don't. Um, Sarah, we jump around, we get into a little bit. But Dark Castle Game System, this is one that he spent a fair bit of time on. And I did a ton of research on this, too, because when I got it, of course, there's no manuals. Um, I had to go through the code and I, like run it. And I spent days going through this, trying to figure out exactly what the heck it is and how to how to play it. And it's actually a fairly ambitious project. Now, it's buggy. In fact, if you watch this uh, stream here of it on YouTube or on Twitch, you'll see it actually crash out with a bad subscript error because it doesn't do an error checking what the player is entering. But basically, it's a design-your-own Dungeons & Dragons 3D-type game. You create the maps. You put the monsters in, <clears throat> uh, treasures and stuff that you get to pick up. You design all that from within a basic program. And then you also have the option when you play the game, you can play it as one or two players. Now, if you play it as a one player, then it's a standard, you know, 3D wireframe. You get to, you know, wander through and look for stuff in a dungeon. If you play two player, it's not two human players playing people going through the dungeon. The other one plays the dungeon master. So he can start doing things. And you have to a bit of the honor system here. So like it'll say, you know, the regular player is playing. So the dungeon master should leave the room. Or it's the dungeon master's turn. The regular player should leave the room because the, the the dungeon master can actually like move monsters between rooms on his own, or send scouts out to look for the player. So there's a there's a fair bit of ambitious interactivity in this game, and it comes with three sample dungeons you can try. And I'll play a little bit of the clip here because I'm I'm pretty sure most of you've never seen this. I'd never saw it before this year myself. Um, and if you guys are familiar with uh, David Lionel Dawson, you may recall he actually did a machine language game later because this is written in BASIC. Uh, he did a machine language game, late, a game later for Color Quest, which was the games division of the same people that did the VIP library. Um, so we've covered some of their games before as well. Um, but he wrote uh, Fire Draca. Since we we're talking about Draca everything today, I thought I'd throw another one in there. Um, but that's a semi-graphics 24 game with you know nine colors and machine language where you're you know, shooting dragons, eggs and dragons, etc. But this is stuff he did way before that, like at least a year earlier. Now, this this is something, I if I had time and inclination, this is something I think is worth, a, a good basic programmer should go through and A, fix it up, the bugs. And this was crammed into 16K. I mean, you can get rid of the 16K limit now and just do a 32K. And, and then you can do some improvements on it too, I think, to make it a bit easier to use. But it's actually a fairly ambitious, especially for this early, to have one where you can create your own game without having any programming at all. So I'll play a little bit of the clip of this one, and then we'll cover some of the other ones he covered this week in a second. All right, next one's also on the TRS-80 Color Computer, and this one is a massive game. This one's hard to discuss. So this is called the Dark Castle Game System. And on the TRS-80 Color Computer, we've seen another game that allowed you to program your own pinball tables, save those tables, and then replay them later. Really cool idea, right? Well, this one takes it to the next level where I don't think we've seen any other home computer do what this game does. The Dark Castle game system is a design your own dungeon crawl game. 
even to the point that you can play with two people where one person's playing as like the pseudo dungeon master and then the other person is actually in the dungeon kind of like a early version of dungeon keeper so uh this is a very difficult game to do on the live stream because there's so much you can do i will not be going through how you create your own dungeons because that would be way too long it's like trying to explain to someone how to what, what mario maker is in a few minutes so uh, the dark castle game system uh, allows you to build your own dungeons and floors of dungeons and I'm going to show you how, how it works when you play a two-player game, because that's where it really shines. If you play the one-player game, it's very similar to other dungeon crawl games we've seen in the, in, the, in the past. No, yes, this is not the Dark Castle that we've notoriously known as being a terrible game. It's a completely different game. <laughs> yeah, but dungeon crawls is where this one's at. All right, so let's take a look at the artwork. We have an ad for Dark Castle. This was in microcomputing in May. Fully programmable graphics adventure system, as well as solo adventuring, two-player option allows one player to become the dungeon's lord and direct creatures. Graphics show moving views of the evil layer, and the package allows players to create and save on tape an unlimited number of dungeons, and three dungeons are included inside. Oh, wow. <laughs> Oh, the Apple Macintosh version? The Apple Macintosh version was all right. Uh, I, I actually enjoyed that one. The Sega Genesis one? No. And most of the other ports? Yikes. They're scary. All right, we have a manual for this one. I don't think it's... Oh, yeah, okay. The manual is a homebrew one. Uh, this one's by L. Curtis B. Because he went in and pretty much found out how this game works. And why we're able to showcase it here is because of his work. So a big shout-out to L. Curtis B. for helping me with that. All right, let's pop in and play some Dark Castle game system. At some point, 1982. The ambition of this game is almost too much for all the games we've seen up to this point. All right, so we're going to run this. This is in basic. I didn't know if we'd be able to get to this one tonight, but I know we're going to have to be finishing on this one because this one is so long. And you see what's also on the disc. They have Castle 1, 2, and 3, and they're like ones that came with the game. Now, you can't play this one player, but I'm going to do two players because that's where this really shines, even though there's no one else with me. The Dark Castle game system. Castle Lord Key, enter. So this means if you have been the Castle Lord Key before, you can put in a code to play. And then the name of the Lord of the Castle I'll make as Chrono. And then the stronghold is called, we'll do Castle 1. And then we want the uh, old dungeon, one that's been done before. And if you make a new dungeon, you can see what it's doing. All the stuff you programmed in and saved is loading. So if I were to build this myself, this is all of the places and turns, uh, items and enemies or creatures that you've put in and, and saved to the dungeon. So we want to go ahead and continue this dungeon. We're not going to save it. We're going to continue. And then now, if you play with two people, you'd have to play on the honor system. One person would leave the room. So if I was the dungeon lord, I'd be leaving the room. And then the next person, which we'll say is uh, last person in chat, Rob. So the adventurer is here, and the adventurer puts their name in. So Rob's going to put their name in. And now, Evil King Chrono is hidden in a dark lair called Castle One. So if you design this yourself, you can name it anything you want. You can call it uh, Fart Castle. And then the evil Lord Chrono would be hidden in Fart Castle. But we're using the default because we don't have the time to build our own dungeon. But you could. That's what's so ambitious about this game. All right, so Evil King Chrono is hidden in the dark layer called Castle One. Which direction will you approach from? So you have a way to start. And we'll just say let's approach from the south. And this is what 
Rob would be doing if they started the game. And it's a first-person perspective dungeon crawl, very similar to a Calabeth or Ultima. And now if you want to move through the, the dungeon, we walk ourselves forwards. And so you can see there's been a, a creature here. And we've been surprised for zero minutes. The creature zero feet away in and out says, what do you want to do? And so this is the point where you say, do you want to look at your stats? I think that's S. Or do you want to run away or do you want to hit? And so we want to say hit. Blow hit the creature solidly. And then they hit Rob crushingly. That's not good. Well, let's hit again. So now you're making your first battle in the dungeon. And the creature uh, missed this time. So now let's hit. Attack missed the creature. And the blow hit Rob. Oh, solidly. Doesn't look good. Uh-oh. <laughs> and then your orders, Lord Chrono. Now, after the battle or the main player finishes their turn, then you would have to do a hot seat, switch places. And now the Chrono, wherever the dungeon lord is, sits down. And now they want to know what orders you want to do. In other words, make changes live in the dungeon. And so you have options to change what uh, rooms and tunnels are. You can change where creatures go. And you just have to know all the codes to put them in. So if I want to make sure the end of this road ends with a long hallway and then turns left and right, I just do T. And then the next part, if I want to add any more creatures in, I can. Like if I want to put a spider in, I would know this is the code to put the spider in. And then if I want to add any treasures like a sword and drop the sword down, I would do W like that. And so it knows that I have no creatures with you for errands. So that means I have to program in and say I want certain creatures to be coming in to... Anyway, I'll let you uh, finish watching the video because like I said, it's fairly long there. But uh, had any of you ever heard of this game before? And for those of you that grew up with different machines back around the 1982 time frame, was there anything like this on any of the other computers? Because I do not know. I do not remember one on the Apple II, which is the only one I really had familiar with in the 82. I can't think of any on the Apple II either. I mean, most of the stuff are graphic ones because they could. Well, this is weird because it's a God game where one player is God and the other one is the poor player. And uh, <laughs> the poor and fortunate oh soul. Right, right. So so you get to be, you are the evil AI as Kronos. And then you've got this poor player that you beat the living out of. Yeah, it could be fun, depending on who you are. Yeah, for me, it was a really innovative one. I was quite surprised when I first tried running it, because, of course, not having a manual and not having a clue what was going on, I, I thought, well, this is kind of a buggy mess. So I couldn't really figure out what was going on. And then I started going through the basic listing <clears throat> and kind of figuring out what variables did what and kind of like going through and, and figuring out what the key sequences are and what commands were. And the further I got into it, and I did document it, which I think is up on the Color Computer Archive because I did submit it afterwards after I kind of figured it out. Most of it, anyway. I don't know if I have everything figured out, but there's there's a lot of depth to this game. It's just a 16k extended basic program, and it's I was very surprised at how intricate it actually gets. Um, like I said, it's buggy, <laughs> so there's that. So you have to be careful if you have a dungeon that's like four by four. Don't type in five comma four as a position type thing. It'll crap out with a bad subscript error. And it's, it's I should mention it's it's dungeons vertically too. So you've got X, Y, and Z axes that you can define, you actually get to place where the ladders and stuff are as well. Um, and I don't know if the copy we have that Brian had found me, I don't think it has all the dungeons that were included with the commercial version. Because from the ads and a brief review I'd found somewhere, it sounds like there probably was a few more than the three, just Castle 1, 2, 3. And I don't know if one of those was a homemade one. <laughs> but it was, it was pretty interesting to see. It was only advertised for a few months, maybe half a year at the most, only in one magazine. And then it just disappeared. It never got sold again. So 
kind of glad we found it first of all that you know document the history of it but also it's it's a pretty ahead of its time um game actually to be honest i'd be interested to see what you guys can do with it it'd probably make it absolutely horrible game on challenge but <laughs> but we're used to those <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> especially when sloopy picks them no i'm just kidding <laughs> Okay, so anyway, he did end up doing uh, you know, streams. He streams every one of the weekdays. So he actually had three streams this week that involved uh, some Cocoa stuff. So that was all one episode before. Now I'll just cover the other ones all in an order here. So this one here, of course, is Ghost Gobbler um, from Spectral. And this is the original Cocoa artwork as it appeared from Spectral. Now, I've seen two versions of this. I've seen a black and white Xerox cheapy version that I actually had paid for from Spectral. But I have seen the actual, you know, Color version like you're seeing on the screen here too. That is actually what they sold some of them to. I don't know when the transition between the two versions of it happened, but it's basically a Pac-Man game. The one innovative thing on this one, it has a teleport tunnel on the lower middle of the screen. If you run over this one spot, you instantly teleport to the top, so you can use it as a hyperspace to get away from the ghost, always to a fixed position. But if you don't want to teleport, you just hold down the joystick button, you can travel over top of it. I don't think we've covered this one on the challenge yet, have we, uh, Slippy, or have we? Or do you know? I do believe we have not. Yeah, because we've got like 12 different Pac-Mans on the Go-Go, so. Yeah. I know we've covered some, just not this one. Oh, maybe we should choose that one, and I can blame you if everyone hates it. <laughs> I'm not sure why it's doing all this reloading crap. I had these all queued up and pre-played. Next is OXXO for the Coco. So we're back in North America. Let's see what we... Okay, I'm just going to stop in the ad here because the game is really simple. So uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, Peter Stark and Star Kits. I know his son, because Peter Stark himself has passed away. His son is active in the Coco Facebook group. But his dad ran this company that sold... Basically, they were around before the Coco was. They were selling stuff for 6800 systems and flex systems and all kinds of things back in the day. They used to advertise in 68 Microjournal. But basically, what they usually did was utilities, a little bit of programming languages, that kind of stuff. Uh, they're most famous for Spell and Fix, which is a spelling checker, and it's actually one I used back in the day on the Coco. It's actually quite good uh, for an 8-bit machine. But they released a couple of text-only games. I'm sure they were ported from some text terminal... 6800 system like a smoke signal chieftain or something like that or swtpc or something like that but uh they did two games and he covered both of them in here because these are the two one is oxo which is basically othello but done totally with text characters like x's and o's and then um the other one was called shrink and it's basically just a, a version of eliza that's more sarcastic than normal um so any of you played the ai eliza you know please tell you your problems and Right. We're discussing you and not me and that kind of stuff. But this yeah, one gets wow. a bit cheeky with you and, and you know, starts calling you a dummy and stuff if you try to answer things stupidly. So that's the other two that uh, covered here. And they're both from Star Kits. Both came out the same month. And they were not known for games. And I can see why, because they're not very good, <laughs> to be totally honest. <laughs> and then the last one here I'm going to cover that he covered here is uh, Sir Eggbook Jumper, which is in the same ad as the Dark Castle game system. Now, this is one of the very earliest platformers that you jump between levels and stuff on on any system, including the arcade. Uh, one of the first, I should say. Um, it's done completely extended basic. 
it's also a bit buggy. If, even if you read the directions for it, it's it. You can tell it was a bit buggy because it talks about like, leaving crap behind the screen because he didn't bother redrawing it. Um, but this one is a little bit different in that it was sold here through this ad for a few months, the same amount of time as Dark Castle was. But then he ended up getting it published in Rainbow a couple of years later. Like he already shut his own company down, you know, long before that, and it became a, a Rainbow game that you could just type in. With no bug fixes at all. It still has his exact same stupid bugs it did when it was commercial. And I personally would have wished he would have, you know, fixed up a couple of the things there. But uh, I will not play too much of this, just enough to get to a screenshot so you can kind of see what it looks like. Um, I think he's, yeah, here's part of the rainbow. So if you want to see it yourself, uh, the listing and the direction stuff, it's the August 1905 issue of Rainbow Magazine. And because of the bugs, it's a pretty darn frustrating game. So that's a screenshot right there. I'm not going to bother playing it. Uh, basically, you have to collect keys and other things. And what the heck happened there? Ah, whatever. Anyway, the game's not that good. It needs some fixing, to be honest. But um, it's a platformer. You get to jump between levels. You take falling damage. Um, collect things. There's multiple levels to it. Next up, we got some Jim Gary stuff here. So the first one here is an interesting video that he actually did in collaboration with his son, Charlie. So he ported Randy Miller's original 1976 Altair basic program chess to the MC-10, which is, you know, typical Jim. He takes some, you know, version of a program from some other machine and converts it to the MC-10. Nothing new to talk about there. But then Jim's sons, Charlie decided to pit it against chess.com's lowest rated AI coach, Danny. Uh, and to see how competitive this 1976 version is versus a modern, you know, dumbed down version of it. Um, the video is greatly sped up as the moves at regular speed on, as particularly on the 7C10 conversion here, can take minutes per move. Um, but in Jim's words, and I'll quote him here, Miller's program loses, but it doesn't go down without a fight. And there's no, um, there's not even a board drawn in text characters. Like it's all based on like the numbers and stuff. Where you get a like the number grid, and you've got your little guide on the right there. You can see like a one is a pawn, and a two is a knight, etc. So it's it's definitely an old 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 style version of it. But um, yeah, it was kind of interesting taking a program written in 1976 in Altair and comparing it with a, you know, the super beginner level of a modern one, and it's still lost. But pitting two chess AIs against each other from different centuries was kind of interesting. Next one that Jim uh, Gary did here is called Roadrunner, originally by Philip Oliver of the Oliver Brothers. And you may have heard of them if you're familiar with the Dizzy Game series from the UK, uh, which was for multiple platforms, if I remember correctly. Karen could probably correct me on that in the in the chat. Um, and this one was originally a magazine game from Computer and Video Games Magazine in 1984. And they were paid £10 for this game. Now, of course, they eventually created their own software house and created their own empire. But uh, so basically, you convert to this. It actually will run on a 4K MC10. It does not require any uh, RAM expansions. There you can see that, and it'll just you know paste it into the MC10 emulator. There's the entire listing. The original version was for the Dragon 32, uh, this particular one. And you get to pick how many lives you start with, which is a bit rare. Uh, 
And basically, it's one of those, you know, scrolling because you're printing, but you're dodging both the outline of the road, quote unquote, but also obstacles in the way. And your score is up in the upper left. So. And the last one here is called Drive. And this was originally by Dino Dini in 1981 for the Acorn Atom. So another UK based one. Um, now, he's done this one before, but he modified it. So he did two main things to it. He, he used some of the optimizations and speed ups that he's been you know, fixing a lot of his older games with. But he also added joypad support. So this no longer requires a keyboard. You can play on the joypad and that slows it back down a bit. So basically, it's running about the same speed as it originally was. Uh, but now it's joypad compatible. Now, uh, Ron, I know you have an MC10. I'm not sure who else in the panel has an MC10. Do any of you have these joypads yet that Jim's been using? I don't know. Well, I was just wondering if maybe somebody, if, if they get it, I would love to hear a review from one of you guys and see how much it enhances the gameplay experience. But here you have to collect certain things and not hit other things, and you're kind of wandering around in a wraparound left to right screen. And if I remember correctly, you can't move, you can't adjust your speed left to right. You're just moving. So you can adjust your up and down direction and then you try not to hit the things you're not supposed to hit and try to hit the things you are supposed to hit Splat. and I, from the looks of this i he didn't mention it in the docs but i'm pretty sure this is running in semi-graphic six mode because the pixels are actually square like the player's pixel instead of a belong so i'm guessing this is a 64 by 48 by four color mode So hey, thanks to Jim for cranking out another three games in the span of a week. And I crank out like a Nitrous 9 every year, so I feel real bad. Next up, uh, we've got Davey's Retro Corner, which is David Mitchell, who's also in our Discord. And uh, he released a video of a type-in game called Space Station. This originally appeared in Input Magazine, Volume 1, Issue Number 5. David enhanced it a bit, adding both a title screen, which you're seeing on the screen at the moment, and an animated explosion. It actually looks like a pretty interesting little game. I'll play a little bit of the gameplay footage. And then I'll show you the original magazine article. And then there's also a link on his GitHub to actually get the actual source code. So if you want to muck with it a bit yourself, you can feel free to do that as well. And there you can see a shot that was blocked by a shield. There it blows up. I haven't had a chance to really try this game, so I can't give you too much of the, the background details here. But here's the original uh, magazine type-in version of it. And if you page through, this is on the internet, internet archive. You can actually find, like, it's basically, it describes each portion of the program what it does. So it's a pretty good tutorial on how the game itself actually works. And if you want to save yourself having to type in all that stuff, you can actually just go to his GitHub here and just download it. And then he's got a little read mirror explaining where he got it from, what issue it was, screenshot, and then the actual source code itself. Next up now, is is uh, Nick Morendi still on the call? I'm afraid so. I'm just about <laughs> to fall asleep, but... <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to mute this uh, and let you kind of describe a little bit. Uh, now, you actually responded to the request because this is they're playing a Nick Morendi's game here. Though they pronounced your name in some weird ways, trying to figure it out. That was hilarious. Uh, but this is Rally SG by you back in 2020, which is, of course, based on Rally X from the arcade with some enhancements and changes. Yeah. Um, but have you, have you, other than on the show here, have you really watched any of their videos all the way through before, Nick? Uh, 
I have watched a few of the ones in the past. I, I've watched this one all the way through, of course, because it's my game. <laughs> um, yeah. But they had a request that you subscribe or comment, and you actually did both. You commented and said, yeah, yes, I, I subscribed. <laughs> so I did, I subscribed. <laughs> did you see Next their time. thank yous to you for that? Oh, I, have, I haven't checked uh, to, uh, if they've replied or anything yet. But I need just did that yesterday, so yeah. And of course, you know, we've had them on the show before. They were at Coco Fest this last year, and, and they don't just cover Coco stuff, though. Tim's history of the Coco and Mame in particular is, is quite extensive. He's also the person that kind of figured out how the uh, DICOM phaser adapter worked and numerous other things too. So yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, so definitely worth it. And they have a lot of fun. It's like watching Boat and Aaron because they're, they're actually truly brother and sister. And, of course, they get into brother-sister arguments and snarky comments and competitiveness. So that's uh, – and, and, of course, drinking. So that always makes for a fun show. But definitely check it out, especially if you're a fan of uh, Rally SG, which is a much better game than Neutroid, I might add. <laughs> one, <laughs> one thing with the video, if you if, – if, are you going to play the video now, are you, or, or a bit of it? I'll fast forward a little bit so you can see some of the actual gameplay. So just right, the yeah. If you look at the uh, radar image on the right, the dots are appearing and, and disappearing. That's because of the um, – I use the technique to get three colors all up on that radar, um, and uh, it, it involves having to flash certain colors on and off so you can get a few different brightness levels on the dots. Unfortunately, that doesn't work too well when it goes over the internet or if you're streaming or on Discord and even on some HDMI adapters, they don't like like it when the image is being changed uh, rapidly uh, or the colours at least. So, yeah. yeah, the dots, if you look at it carefully, some of them will just suddenly disappear, then reappear and... And yeah, and if you're playing it on real hardware, you'll just see like a dimmer on dot. Real hardware on a real CRT, it's it's fine, it's perfect. Right. It's what it was designed for. So and uh, even you... the uh, if you look at the car itself, the tires, that's meant to be flashing to give a slightly different hue on the tires. Um, but sometimes yeah, that's it's not showing up at all. On. There it is briefly. Other times there. they disappear. Yeah, it's right. just it, so you it, never it, get the shading at best. You get all no, no, off, no only on a real cocoa on a real CRT uh, screen. It works perfect for that. Does it work so, fun on the emulators at least? I it can't. Yeah, on some emulators it does. Yeah, I can't remember which ones were the best, but it's generally going over it, the internet bandwidth kills it. Um, well, there's that, and also the fact that a lot of the streaming things will, lock, you know, knock it down to like 30 frames a second to preserve yeah, bandwidth. So right. And you're you're updating it 60 times per second, so it's it's skipping some of them. And if it happens to sync on, you know, graphic on, you might just get the all graphic on, skip that graphic off frame, back to the graphic yeah. on frame, so it never shuts off. So it's it, it was an idea I did back then to try get um, around Even more colors than nine limitations of. Uh, well, I've got eight colors, but the thing is that you do have limitations as to where you can put certain colors and 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 that on in semi graphics mode. So I'd done a workaround where you can flick a certain colors um, back and forth to get a slightly different shade. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I'm not going to be doing that feature anymore because 
yeah, it restricts. Uh, uh, well, it, it, it does this. So yeah. Anyway, but yeah, they played it, uh, and uh, like you say, it's it, it's a fun type of review. It's uh, uh, the the real entertainment, I guess, is uh, seeing the interaction between the two hosts. Um, the yep. game itself, where you know, is the game. So they go There's a reply to. I don't know if you can read that on the screen there, Nick. Uh, he likes us. He really, really. <laughs> <laughs> it all depends on what they end up saying. Say good stuff. I will like you. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to see when they play Neutroid. I'm going to be interested to see the reaction. Oh, from AJ they're going to love on that me. One. They're going to love me when they get to that. They'll <laughs> 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 say what. Why is it taking so long for this game to come out? What's that Curtis been talking about? He's nuts. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> okay, this this is are any first of all, are any of you familiar with the game playing channel on YouTube called Brown Robin Bird? I've never heard of it before. No, it's 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 a semi large one. It's got over you know almost six and a quarter thousand subscribers, so it's it's decent size. Now, what they're doing here is that they're actually going to be playing Sockmaster, John Kowalski's Donkey Kong remix that we actually talked about during the interview, um, live on August the 22nd. So this hasn't happened yet. This is in 10 days um, at 4.15 my time, so 6.15 Eastern, I guess. So I'm assuming you'll have, like, you know, chat people and stuff there, too. I don't, I'm going to see if I can get a hold of John, see if he can pop in for, uh, you know, maybe commenting on the game as the author. Because this is where he redesigned all the levels to make them really, really hard. Um, but I'm kind of glad that, you know, the, normally when I find these types of things about talking about some, you know, obscure Cocoa game by people that aren't Cocoa people, I find it after the fact, even if they did a live stream. So I can't, you know, comment or do anything else. But in this case here, he, they've actually given us like a 10-day, you know, ahead schedule, you know, telling us when it's happening. So... Some of you game players out there that played Donkey Kong Remix or are fans of, of Sockmaster and, and the transcodes he's does, I would love to see you guys pop in that chat. I'm going to see if I can definitely be in the chat and uh, maybe offer some uh, tips, tricks, uh, background information, Coco questions answered, that type of stuff. He's really impressed. He's actually played the original Donkey Kong by Talkmaster. Uh, he mentions here, I've heard about this five years ago and I was still in elementary school, so he's a youngin. And I said, I want to play it so bad, but I didn't have a Tandy Cloud computer back then. Heck, I didn't even know what one was until recently. But about five days ago, I downloaded an emulator that could run Coco 3 games. And once I played the Donkey Kong remix, I raged a bit, but still had fun. So now he's going to you know, do it live. So he's, I... um, he's picked the right title. He says, if you, if you scroll up to the very top, it says frustrating, yet the best. He's right. Yeah. It is It is quite frustrating. Well, Donkey Kong in general is, but... Donkey Kong yeah, Re but this is a whole new uh, level of frustrating. But this is really for pro Donkey Kongers. Yeah, um, but it is the best Donkey Kong. Yeah, and the, and the, the like he's using all basically the same tiles and stuff that the original Donkey Kong has, but he's actually added some new physics elements and stuff based on those tiles that yeah, you know create yeah. some whole new gameplay that didn't exist before. So it's. It's quite an innovative. I really like the design of it, but it is definitely hard. Oh my god! This will be I don't know how many idea. people here on the panel besides Nick and I have tried Donkey Kong Remix. Um, Bob Emery, yeah. were you playing that earlier? Uh I I tried to, but yeah, it, it does get Donkey Kong in general does is frustrating. 
the, you know, especially with yeah, the and this is a level of magnitude worse. This is a level up. So this is really yeah. for the for the for the I real made it to the final the fourth Quit. level, but I've never made it through the fourth level. You've made it to the fourth level though? Yeah. You're doing better than me. <laughs> yeah, better than me too. Uh this is this is a Buck Owens game. Yes, or a Tasman. Or a Tasman, yeah. Except Buck Owens just said in the chat DK sucks, so apparently he's not a fan. So ah, there you go. That leaves it to Tasman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tim Linder commented too, uh, considering the video they did with Brad SG. He says I was capturing the video at sixty frames per second, but the video is at thirty frames per second, so some yeah. frames are dropped, which explains why your subtle shading techniques didn't work. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, uh, I'll, I'll remind because this is like a, over a week away here for this live stream. I will remind people next week as well. Um, but I think it'd be fun if a lot of us showed up and kind of popped in. Yeah, it'd be good to see what their uh, impression is. And maybe Although he's good at the game, unlike me. Yeah, this guy has seen it before, though, hasn't he? So he knows about it. Well, he said he just got an emulator five days before he posted that he's going to be doing a live stream. So he's only had uh-huh. two weeks experience on it. Yep. Okay, next up, we got a couple of channels that did multiple dragon stuff here. Um, so the, I'm, I'm not going to really play too many of these or any of them, really. I'll just kind of show you the list here because it would take a lot of time and we're running long because of the interview already. So this one is called Paul is the Best 3 UK, one of the most humble names of a YouTube channel I've ever seen. Um, so he's been doing reviews. So like he's, these aren't just playthroughs, like most of the stuff I've been finding lately on, on YouTube for gameplay. This one, he actually kind of reviews the game from his limited you know time playing it. And he's apparently been covering that for uh, a couple of weeks now, actually. I missed it when I was setting up stuff uh, for Mark last week when I had to suddenly leave. But uh, he's done some pretty cool games, and he actually gives a rating at the end of it. What do you think of it? So a lot of these were like 6 out of 10s or a little bit less. And then he really likes stuff like Backtrack. And I have to agree, Backtrack's a really impressive game. That To me, that's one of the premier Dragon titles that was not on the Coco originally. Because that 3D perspective, when you're walking through the hallways from the top view, and you're watching everything angle as it goes, that is just pristinely good stuff. That was I was quite impressed with that. But he's covered a bunch of others here too, like Barmy Burgers, which is a, I think it's written in Basic. Actually, it's a version of Burger Time written in Basic, and actually not bad considering. Um, and stuff like Bug Diver, Ghost Attack, which is the renamed version of Pack Attack for the Dragon, with slightly different colors. Anyways, he seems to be doing a, quite a bit of these here lately. Um, starting back here when he started with Manic Miner, then Jet Set Willy, Phantom Slayer, Chucky Egg, Android Attack, Space Invaders, Clone, uh, I can't remember which one that was called, Barmy Burgers, Devil Assault, a double header here, which is Bug Diver and Ghost Attack, and then uh, Backtrack. And it sounds like he's planning on doing more, so it'll be interesting to see what other reviews he does. Uh, next up, we have Expert Tech. We've actually covered this person before. This is in Spanish. Um, you can turn on the Google Translate. I'm not going to play any of these here. We, I think we covered Mood Shuttle last week. Uh, or was it the week before? I can't remember. Uh, but he's actually added three more since then. And, of course, this guy's running a real Cocoa 2, real hardware, real floppy drive, not even SDC, on an amber screen monitor. So you get to see some of these games probably like most of you have never seen before. So you, this last week, he added in Mud Pies by Computer, Shla- Computer Shack slash Mitchtron, Zach Sund, not the official Zaxxon, but the one by Elite Software, who is probably more famous for Elite Calc and Elite Word, you know, Word Processor and Spreadsheets. And then Chopper Strike, which is sort of a scramble-style game by Computer Shack Mitch Tron, but it has a lot of things changed, like you have to rescue people. 
you can shoot at angles. You can adjust the angle of your shot. Um, so it's actually a fun one. I remember we, we had a game contest with our computer club here, actually. That was the feature game. So you can check out any of those videos there. And, of course, the links for all this stuff is in the Discord uh, news summary channel. And then also, I think it was last week or the week before, we covered the YouTube channel Hikikomori style. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and I'm pretty well sure I'm not. Um, so he did this pairing where you pick two dragon games and show the cassette uh, artwork for each, but they're linked in some way by theme, genre, character, whatever. And he did a couple more of these. So it's kind of interesting what he decides to pair on. Like sometimes you'll say it has a yellow background on the cover, and other times it'll be like Space Invaders or whatever. So I'm not going to play these two. I'll let you guys do that. It's a couple minutes long of each. Well, but most, most of the Dragon games have uh, Cuthbert in it. Um, no, Cuthbert was the logo for Microdeal specifically. Exactly. Oh, 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 oh. So it was more their mascot for that one particular software house. So anybody else was not using Cuthbert. Looks like here's a bunch of Microdeal stuff and like the Feed Your Dragon. That's actually from Dragon Data themselves. And then he did another run. Wow, I wonder why this unbuffered everything. I had everything preloaded and ready to go. I probably was just running too much crap. That's your problem. You're trying to do it right. 16 gigs is enough. Like here, here's his, his first pair on this part three of the pairing is uh, two Tom Mix games. So he's got the King, which of course is Donkey King after he got renamed, and then Double Assault by Ken Kalish. They're, they're just interesting for looking at the artwork and also the way he picks his themes. And then this one here, for those of you that run emulators more often than, say, real hardware or, you know, Cocoa FPJs or Matchbox Cocos or whatever, there's a bunch of different front ends. And I know Aaron's covered a few of these. I think we've covered a few of them on here. Uh, do any of you guys use the front ends on MAME to, um, you know, select a Cocoa game to play rather than just manually running it and setting up a disk image? I see Mark Wolvers is shaking his head. No, nope. I Ron's don't saying. use the front, Command front line. end. Command line always. is the way I do it as well. I always use and again, that, that man uses floppy disks. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Bob. Back when I was running MAME, it was MAME 32, which is basically a GUI Windows version. Okay. Because I've seen these front ends before. Like I said, Aaron actually does use this, and he actually was creating his own images for this. So the front ends does sort of like a carousel type thing. We whip through it. But it also will then have a little window to the side where actually we'll play, you know, video of some of the games you're playing. And you can have videos for each individual game. So if you select Donkey King, you'll see a little bit of live action of Donkey King playing. Or you can have a generic one for the Dragon or, you know, an Acorn Atom or a Terracity Model, whatever, that just runs through a bunch of little bits. And basically, this is for a front end called Hyperspin, which I think I have actually heard of before. And he's actually got his setup, so it does video with audio clips. And I'll just play a couple seconds here. It's a, just under two minutes and covers a couple of games. I'll just, just give you a feel. So if you're going through this carousel, this is what you would see as you select each of these games before you actually fire them up. It kind of gives you a preview of the game in action to look at to decide if that's the game you want to play, especially if it's a game you've never seen before. And for the audio listeners, I'm sure you'll recognize what game this is. Woody Woodpecker. Lots of calming green. Yeah, well, this is Dragon, not Coco. Uh, so, in order to acting here. 
Anyway, for those that are like new to the platform and go to the Color Computer Archive and download a whack ton of, of games and have no idea what any of them are, um, having something like this preset up for somebody to download and install it would actually be kind of nice because you can kind of pick, you know, I feel like playing a Pac-Man derivative today and you can go through and see which ones are actually Pac-Man or you can know that there's like six Pac-Man clones and then just go and go through the carousel of those six and figure out which one looks the most interesting to try. Like somebody might go, I want to play strict Pac-Man. So they'll pick either Glenn Hewlett's or, or Nick's Pac-Man tribute, or they might want something that says, you know, quite a bit different with extra gameplay. So they might see pack droids where you can say, Oh, you can shoot the ghost. That sounds cool. Let's try that you know, type of thing. So I think it's pretty good for the game playing public that doesn't want to really, you know, tackle the command line stuff. I know that's not our core audience on the panel here. Uh, most of us are the uh, command line type for this kind of thing, but uh, to get new blood into the community uh, and, and new and young blood, I think this is actually a really good idea. Well, that's it for the game on news. I'm just going to plow straight into the regular one. Did you want to play the intro? Or should I just go straight into it, uh, Mark? Oh, go straight into it. I'll switch screens. Okay. Oh, I wanted to see the flaming hair. Oh, fine. When you want the latest in TRS-80, Tandy, Dragon, MC-10, and all of their hardware cousins, no matter what it takes, or where news breaks, from around the world, to your nation, Nation News with Curtis Boyle. Okay. Okay. So we're seeing the screen there. It says Coco Town Fundamentals. Uh huh. Okay. Uh, before I get into that, I did want to mention a reminder from Frank Lenares of uh, giving free SDC cases to Nick Fame. Actually, Retro Rewind. Um, he said, "Don't forget to plug the world of retro computing." So, retro world of retro computing is a retro computing show, as you probably might have guessed, uh, in Kitchener, Ontario, I believe it is, and it's coming up pretty quick. Now, I don't remember the exact date off the top of my head, so I'm hoping Frank will once the chat catches up here can post the specifics there, but. Um, it covers all kinds of machines. I think Neil Blanchard's actually been there last year. Um, so if any of you that are near the Toronto area, because Kitchener is between Toronto and Niagara Falls, so it's a little bit close to the States. Um, it's a, it sounds like a really good show to, to go to, if, especially if your interest is across multiple retro machines, because it covers everything from Commodores and Pets to Apples to Cocos to whatever. Hit my spotlight so, quick. What was that? Hit my spotlight for a second. Uh, okay, I'll stop it, sharing. It does as long as you don't, as long as he's the one talking. Um, I can okay, kind of find it. Well, I just went to their site and, uh, yeah, September 16th, September 17th. Oh, so it's just under a month away. So apparently you can uh, still pop in if you want to be a sponsor or do other things. So, yeah, go look at the uh, World of Retro Computing com. WorldofRetroComputing.com, and you will end up here, which is cool. Cool. I know, I know Frank's a major sponsor of the show, but uh, it's been around for quite a while. And I know we covered it a bit last year, if I remember, too. So 
This is the one also for those of you that are uh, fans of some of the people involved with you know the retro scene over the decades. Um, Bill Hurd's going to be there. Obviously, he's an Amiga commenter guy. But uh, Jerry Ellsworth is also rumored to be there. Fairly certain she's coming. Not not hundred percent sure yet. As well as some other people. So some cool stuff. It's kind of like a VCF North almost. For those of you want to trek into the Great White North, and don't worry, in September it won't be white yet, so you'll be good. Right. You still got a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Here in the prairies, maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> Let me get my sharing going again. There we go. Oh, David Haney is also going to be there. Another Commodore alumni. Okay, so a couple things. Um, first of all, big thank you to Matt Harper for coming on for our interview guest today. Uh, next official interview that's already pre-booked is September the 9th, which is coming up fairly soon too, within a month. And that is Mark P. and Charlie from portacoco.com. For those of you at Coco Fest this past April, you'd have seen them with their battery packs on uh, the Cocos themselves, on the monitors they're hooked up to, so you can basically make a wireless Coco runoff battery without actually having to modify the cases. They just kind of clip on and fit. So um, the two of them will be on to talk about that and a bunch of other projects that they're working on. So September 9th for that. And then Doug Maston, as we mentioned the last couple of weeks here, had to go in for a rather sudden surgery. I did see, I just talked to him a little bit on Facebook chat. He's out of ICU. He's in recovery. Um, things are going well, but it's still going to be a bit of a long slog. So we haven't officially rebooked or picked a date yet. He's going to you know, wait till his doctor's given the okay, and he's feeling well enough to do it. But uh, that will be rescheduled. That's not getting canceled. It's just being rescheduled. So, And for those of you who don't know, Doug Maston was also at Coco Fest, and he was the author of The Contras. And he actually brought some of the original source code, graph paper used to design the graphics, et cetera, to Coco Fest. So it was really cool. And we'll see some of that on the interview. So look forward to that as well. Sorry, somebody's saying something? No, that's good news. I'm glad that uh, so far, so good. Yes. And we just had another celebrity show up in the chat here we haven't seen in quite a while, Bill Noble. Hello, Bill. And Bill's been really busy with his new job position as a manager of a Canadian Tire store in Humboldt, Saskatchewan. And uh, he actually managed to finally free up some time after months uh, to get the Matchbox Cocoa update for uh, Nitrous 9 Ease of Use, version 1.0.0, which many people have been asking for. And for those of you on Facebook and the Coco group may have been noticed, he also did a post where he's actually got the uh, X-Pad, the graphics tablet, the original one from Tandy for the Coco, back from the Coco One days. He's actually got that running under Nitrous 9 as well. Though he did have to disable interrupts and he has to clock it back down to one megahertz to get it to work, but it is working. So he said we might have to get a driver done to, to handle that and you can have an X-Pad graphics tablet on your uh, Nitrous 9 system. You know, I'm that- imagining quite... That would make a really good Septandy project. Yeah, Bill, there you go. Uh, you've got a, uh, a few weeks. Yeah, you got three weeks at least. That was my <laughs> way of, of reminding that Septandy is just around the corner. Indeed. YouTube channel subscribing button ready. You know, and maybe Bill can find a hack for the X-Pad that could patch it to work at the 2 megahertz for the Coco 3. Like, Yeah, kind of like the Speed Sound, Sound Pack speed. needs that hack. Yep. I agree. Or at least, you know, you and because that's a you know designed for the Coco One, I think it even needs 12 volts, doesn't it? It's one of the few things that actually needed a multi-pack to run on a Coco two or three. Yep. Um yeah, it does. Yeah. But I mean that would be a perfect uh, one to get the driver done for OS9 level one or nitrous nine level one for the Coco one, two, and the dragon. Just saying. 
Oh, and he's helping on the Cocoa.io. About Rick, you probably know more about what what's happening there than I do. I haven't been able to keep up with much. Make it. Yeah, he's so actually taking one. all of the um, Edstrick Nine's um, CMOT code and turning it into assembly code to get that last little squeak of performance out of it. So yeah, we're, we're wow. This is cool. Okay, cool. So he's actually getting involved with that. I was hoping we'd do that because I don't know that much about networking internals. I never got into that. And I know well, he and, did, so he'd be much better fit than I than I would. Well, right. And the point is to cram all of this into OS9, and you aren't going to do that with some kind of C code. OS9, you know, 6809, 6309 really needs to be assembler. That's just that. Yeah. Well, since he's at Canadian Tires, any old uh, rainbows in the back room somewhere? Danny Tire never sold Rainbow here. Um, they sold oh. Color Computer Magazine. Okay, one of them. Because okay. <laughs> that's that where I used good. to buy it. <laughs> All right, same question. Paper. And to answer Rob Inman's uh, question in the chat, he said, is the image supposed to be changing? We're still looking at Cocotown Fundamentals. We're still looking at Cocotown Fundamentals because this is all stuff that I don't have images for that we're talking about for updates. But I'm caught up on those, so let's get back to the... Cocotown Fundamentals. So Cocotown was also an interview guest of ours recently, um, released two videos this week. So the first one here is just around four minutes. And it's basically giving you a visualization of how an insertion sort works. And there's like, I don't know how many versions of sorts, probably as many as there are atoms in the galaxy or something like that from the last time I looked. Anyway, there's tons of different sorts. The insertion sorts, uh, one particular one, and he actually does a very good job as he did before on some other uh, stuff he's done in his fundamental subseries of getting you to visually see what that exactly means and how it works. So I'll just play a couple seconds of that little bit. But it, it ties into the next video that he did where he actually implemented an assembly language uh, routine to do an insertion sort. Insertion sort scans through the list from left to right, and for each element, it decides how far to shift it to the left. And it keeps shifting it to the left as long as the left neighbor is too big, because you want the left neighbor to be smaller than it. So we always start with the second element, because the first element has already shifted as far to the left as it can go. And so for this element, we ask, do we need to shift it to the left? Well, we do if its left neighbor is too big, but it's not. In this case, 57 comes before 68, so we're actually done with 68. And then we move on to this one and we ask, do we need to shift it to the left? Is its left neighbor too big? And again, the answer is no, so we can move on. 37, do we need to shift it to the left? If it is its left neighbor too big, yes, it is too big. So we finally have to do a little shifting. And then we have to ask again, do I need to shift it to the left again? Is the left neighbor too big again? And yes. It anyway, I really like the way he does his visualizations for these kinds of things, because this, this definitely makes it clearer, I think, than just trying to explain it with text or by speaking about it. You can actually visually see exactly what he's talking about. So it's, it's a really good tutorial on, on an insertion sort in this particular case and some of the other ones he's done as well. But as I mentioned before, the whole reason he was doing this was to kind of give you some background on what an insertion sort is doing and how it works. And then he goes into an insertion sort here, which actually has a bit of a bug. I will skip the intro. I'll just show you the output if I can find it here, where he shows a little demo. So here we are with random garbage, and it's going to go ahead and run insertion sort on the whole thing. 
and let's see what we end up with. First of all, it's pretty cool, right? I mean, it's pretty cool, even if there's a bug, it's pretty cool to watch. All right, so I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, hey, this is, it worked. Everything looks pretty much in order. And then my eyes can't help but fall onto here. And I'm like, wait a minute, how is it possible that we end up with semi-graphic characters sandwiched between alphanumeric characters like that? That can't possibly be in order, right? Like these, these must belong somewhere down here. So I run it again. Maybe I can catch something when I watch it in action. Maybe there's something that I can see if I look really closely. Three, two, one, go! All right, who am I kidding? I mean, it looks like this was there from very early on because I kind of saw it sliding, sliding, sliding down. So anyway, he goes through his uh, initial code and then he kind of challenges the viewer to see if they can figure out what the mistake was that caused that to happen. And I'm not going to spoilerize this one. You guys will have to watch the video. Um, but it, it's good because it, it, it goes through and explains the insertion sort written in assembly with source code and comments. But it also goes into the debugging process, which he's pretty good at doing in his videos too, because he, he always you know shows his bugs off. He's not like Nick and is a perfect programmer that, you know, first try everything's fine. Um, aside from designing games like Neutroid. Um, but it's it's nice having that background of of knowing that, you know, nobody's perfect. And, you know, it's it's a subtle mistake, but it's really bleeding obvious once you see it. But it's something that, you know, because it, it, like, a, at least in my experience, if you're looking at something and you know what it's supposed to be doing, it kind of blinds you to obvious things. What and then it takes you doing? Good, Al? Yeah, it blinds you to what it is actually doing because you're reading what yeah. you expect it to be doing. Right? Yeah. And honestly, I've talked to Nick about this in private, and he actually does this too. Yes. <laughs> By the way, that's uh, value FF in hex. There's your correct. <laughs> it should be way on the corner here with the other FF. Anyway, good tutorial. He's been doing really good on these uh, assembly language tutorials. So anybody's wanting to learn assembly language on the Coco. We've got the original Steve Bjork series. We've got the George B. Jansen series. We've had some little you know, snippets here and there. But uh, Coco Town has been doing a, a fair bit of stuff, and he's actually been going through some pretty different things. Like, he's not just concentrating on graphics or sound like some of the other the series did. He's actually going through, like, sorts, and then he might talk about, you know, how to enable lowercase on the T1 VDG, and then he'll do another one on patching basic, and then he'll, you know, he's got a wide variety of stuff, so you're learning a lot of different things here. Um, some, you know, practical utility wise, some that could be game related, you know, whatever. So it's, it's, it's very varied in, in his subject matter. So it gets to cover a lot of stuff, which is good. Uh, next up, Mikey, Michael Furman was, of course, at VCF West and he had a booth set up to show off flexing the cocoa. And he's, of course, at his vlog series about this as well. And, um, I've got it currently muted here. You can go watch the full video, but this was kind of his uh, vlog on VCF West itself. Now, he was actually on the show last week, and I think you guys kind of talked to him. You guys got to interview some of the people on the show or show floor that popped by his booth. Uh, but if you missed that, uh, here's some other uh, details about VCF West itself in a kind of a compacted, much less lengthy version. Looks like a fun show. I know we've had Tim Linder and a few others. I think, Mark, you've been to one of these too, right? As a cocoa representative, Marco Rosa, I should say. 
Sorry, I had to step away for a moment. Uh, oh, VCF West. Yeah, I was there in 2018 and 2019. Okay. Do you have any plans to go there again? I know it's a bit of a trip for you, but... Yeah, actually, I was planning on going there, I think it was last year, but mm, I couldn't get all my stuff together, so I had to bail. But yeah, I thought about going this year, but it is like a nine-hour drive for me, so... Pshaw, that's nothing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, you know... Oh, come on. <laughs> I go to Nashville I, first. <laughs> I did yeah. 15 hours to get the VCF Midwest. Anyway, maybe next year. Like I said, I'm just, actually just don't ship chocolate bars ahead on UPS. That's my only recommendation. <laughs> right. FedEx. FedEx is the way to go. FedEx all uh, the way. Yes. Yeah. Actually, there's something coming up in uh, Seattle at the end of uh, September, beginning of October. Um, so uh, that's uh, just a little get together at some place. But anyway, I thought about going to that. So, okay, anyway. cool. Mikey's got some comments here. He said the cocoa was not well represented. We should do something. And there's too many Macintoshes. I did hear it was a very (laughs) Apple-centric show this year Mm. compared to previous years. Well, in 2019, it was very Apple One-centric. They had 13 of them there. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think the fact that this is right near Silicon Valley, I think, has something to do with it. Because that's, of course, where Apple's headquartered down by Cupertino there. So, Yep, yep. And then this one here, this is one thing I think that really kind of chaffed uh, Mikey's butt here. Because, of course, he was trying to demonstrate flex, but he just had it basically booting up. So people had to come in and just try to you know, type command line stuff. And, of course, they wouldn't know flex. So what are they going to type besides all these things like dir? But apparently, uh, Frank Hogg had actually made a demo when they did the 5.0.4 release of uh, flex, which introduced uh, some you know graphical stuff, some extra text stuff that could be done in the graphic screen doing text mode things. And um, he found this on the Flex archive because there's, a, you know, unlike the computer, or in addition to the computer archive, there's actually an archive just for Flex, and that covers all all computers that ran Flex, so 6800, 6809s, uh, various platforms, etc. But uh, he actually got this demo disc, and he kind of wished he had it. He found it a couple days, literally after VCF <laughs> West was done. So I won't play the whole thing, but I'll play a little bit of it here so you can kind of get the gist of it. And if you want to see all the stuff that Frank Hogg added in version 5.0.4, check out Mikey's vlog. Hi, everybody. This past weekend, I had an exhibit at VCF West where I was showing Color Flex. And I didn't really have that much to actually demonstrate other than the upbringing system itself. So a couple of days ago, I found this little demo searching around on disks in the Flex archive. So this apparently was Frank Hogg's demo for, looks like, Rainbow Fest in 1984. So right now we're loading TSC Extended Basic, which is the basic that the demo runs in. It does not run in DBasic. And then we just load the demo program. And after the demo program loads, it reads in a data file. And the data file has all the commands that are actually what the demo is supposed to do. So this will take a moment. And we'll zip through loading the demonstration. So now that the demonstration is loaded, it goes through to show some of the new capabilities in ColorFlex version 5.0.4. Showing us uh, 
reverse, and it shows a lot of scrolling. Flex has the ability to lock from 2 to 20 lines on the screen. We have locked the logo on the top of the screen. Watch what happens when we scroll this text off the screen. Notice how easy it is to read the screen during scrolling. This is because Flex now has smooth scrolling. However, this doesn't mean that you lose the speed of jump scrolling, as a matter of fact. Anyway, I'll let you guys watch the rest of it. There's some stuff like you can have two scrolling areas on the screen at once. Um, various scrolling speeds, both in the, the smooth one and in the jump scrolling. Um, I think it's... I think it's cool that Flex has the exact same bug as OS 9 in that the date is a hard-coded 1-9 and then a 1 by yep. year after it. So it's 19 And it wasn't hard to patch in OS 9, so, I mean, it shouldn't be too hard to patch Flex to fix that either, I would think. Uh, pretty funny, though. Anyway, he's got a demo to show next year, anyway. Right. <laughs> Maybe we'll have 5.05 by then. Uh, next up, also speaking of ECF, West, uh, Steve Batson. Now, if you guys were on Facebook on any of the Coco MC10, OS9, Nitrous 9 related groups, you'll see that Steve was mentioning he was going to be going to BCF West. And I know he met Mikey there and met some other people there as well. Uh, but he kind of did a little PDF with photos here, review of it, of what he liked uh, and saw at the thing. So here's a picture of the Computer History Museum itself. And I, the reason I'm showing this not worrying too much is that he's posted this on pretty well every Cocoa-related group on Facebook as a download from his Google Drive. So obviously he has no problem sharing it with everybody. So I thought I'd show you. I'm not going to like go through and read all the text here, but we'll just hit a couple of highlights. So that's the Computer History Museum itself, which I have never been to, even though I've been in the area. So I'll definitely have to check it out at some point. There's a shot of the floor, which is kind of similar to what Mikey was showing. Mikey said it was the former headquarters of Silicon Graphics, I guess, SGI. Yeah, it's kind of an impressive open building. So Those posts running through it are kind of interesting, though. <laughs> mm -hmm. Earthquake protection. Headache you mentioned the aching. first schedule on the speaker was actually Jerry Ellsworth, who we just talked about is probably going to be at the show that Frank was mm -hmm. mentioning earlier in September in Kitchener. Um, and then he covered some of the other ones that he attended. He didn't attend all of them, obviously, because there's quite a few of them, but... Uh, who, who did what and what they were talking about type thing. More pictures. Some of the people that were involved in some of the presentations. And he goes through some of the machines he saw that kind of piqued his interest. That's the first computer I ever used in my life. And that's the exact right model, too. 2001. Yep. With that tiny little red space bar. I remember yes. that still to this day. Everyone note the entire keyboard's about the size of a cassette tape. Yeah, <laughs> a little larger. <laughs> Not much. It's a Sinclair well, keyboard. You can see. You can box. see the. You can see the cassette. The cassette tape on the uh, left side of it. Yeah, right. so. it's almost as big as the keyboard. And the numeric yeah. keypad with the arrow key controls and stuff. Oh, there. Yeah, that's. Uh, that was the first machine I ever used. Still easier you know, to use than an MC10. You know, and the funky thing is, is it's really a full feature computer. I mean, it had you know a right. Microsoft Basic. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could expand up to a 32K. You could have disk drives. Mm -hmm. The Super Pet added a 6809 and even OS 9. Yep. And that one was designed in Canada, a particular model. Oh, speaking of Canada, can I interrupt for one second? No, but go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> um, 
evidently there's going to be a show up in Canada on, uh, uh, what is it, uh, October 12th and 13th, I think it is. Oh, another one? Okay. Yeah, uh, no, uh, 16th. Because uh, it's September 16th, the 17th one September Frank was talking 16th, about earlier. Yeah. yeah, that's the one I'm talking about because he's uh, one of the people. That, yeah, he's the main uh, sponsor, actually. He's the sponsor. And Neil Blanchard was there last year. We talked about it a little bit earlier. You might have might have been away, Sleepy. Yeah, I wanted to. Or make like sure Nick sleeping. Yeah. Well, I wanted to make sure the information got out there and repeat it twice if need be. Okay. We should definitely post that up in the uh, Coco Discord, though. Yeah. With the uh, website link we showed earlier. Anyway, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. He went through a whole bunch of interesting machines. Some of them I've never seen before. Um, so there's some pretty interesting stuff in there. And if you're on Facebook, if you go to pretty well any Cocoa related group, MC10 group, etc., he's posted a direct link to the Google Drive of this PDF. And then you can kind of download it and view it at your own leisure. Next up, uh, this is on Facebook itself here in the Tier City Color Computer Cocoa Group. Uh, this was posted under the account of Cafe Cito, which is actually Torsten Diddle. And this is various service menus, including some that are a little bit harder to find, like some of the PAL stuff. So like here's the Color Computer 2 PAL version for the 3134A, 3136A, 3127A. Yeah, we'll probably need some of those on the archive. Yeah, I think some people had mentioned that, so hopefully that actually happens too. Um, here's the Coco 2 3026-27. That's the North American one, I believe. Color Computer 2 PAL version for the 3626-27 and 3003B. So these are the old melty keyboard ones. The big, the big white case one. Yeah, what we called the uh, 64K color computer case. The white yeah. full-size is the gray ones where... There's the original tier city color computer itself and a little handwritten notes here. It's for the four and 16 K version of the D board. So that's my, what my original Coco was that exact model. And then there's a color computer supplement for a 32 K 64 K F board. So that'd be the last of the gray. Mm -hmm. case that's what I need. I've never seen that supplement. So here's a board. Here's the uh, eBoard 64K mod, but a little bit of the schematic for it. <clears throat> so hopefully these all get completely scanned, which I think it sounds like, you know, that's the plan. Just not sure when it'll happen here, but it does sound like, you know, just from, you know, on our panel here, there's a few people interested in a few of these that we do not have. So that's cool. Next up, Glenn Hewlett of Transcode fame. All the Williams arcade games that were transcoded to the Cool 3. That's the author. Um, there was some talk on Discord, I think it was. I only caught bits of this because of being busy with work this week. But uh, some people were asking about doing scroll protection and different directions of scrolling on a Coco 1 or 2 uh, text screen. Because then you can do some pretty interesting games. Because right now you can scroll up just by printing past the bottom of the screen. So what Glenn has done here is he created a little machine language subroutine that you can load in and you can pass the parameters through some pokes and then you can call it with a USR statement, which will return an error. Like if you told it to, you know, scroll at the 45th column, well, we don't have a 45th column, so it'll return an error so you know it didn't work. But this will allow four-way scrolling with your being able to tell it which row or column for the scroll to stop at. Um, 
And then you have some basic, you know, sample programs and stuff here, a bit of explanation. So the first one here, I'm just going to run a little bit of this first demo. And it's kind of doing a matrixy style thing. So what I created there was. So that's scrolling from the top to the bottom, as opposed to the normal, like you do in basic, the bottom to the top. And he's just printing some random characters on the top that you can see scrolling down. But like I said, he's got left scrolling, right scrolling, vertical scrolling in both directions. Um, all callable. There's a couple pokes you do for which row or column and uh, what direction you want to do. And it's pretty looks pretty easy to use. So I'd like to see what some of the people could do with this, like a Jim Gary or Davey Mitchell or something like that. Because this, this routine should work on a dragon without any changes at all. Um, so you could use it on any dragon stuff too. And I know David Mitchell's been doing a lot of basic stuff on the dragon. So it'd be kind of cool to see what they can do with this kind of thing too. And I think there was some talk, uh, any of you guys that were a bit more active on the discord this past week, I think there was some talk about actually expanding this to work on the Cocoa three text screen modes. So you could use it on the 40 and 80 column screen as well, including attribute bytes. So it would move, you know, blue text up and, you know, whatever colors you happen to pick or blinking and flashing as well. Because then you could do some pretty interesting stuff like, you know, adventure games with, you know, window uh, for the, you know, entry area of where you're typing your commands, leaving the description on the top, for example, or a rogue style game where you can literally scroll on all four directions, you know, displaying rooms. So Does much the, thank uh, Go ahead. Oh, just a question about. Um, Does the Coco have the, a Vaptra or variable pointer? Command? Variable pointer? Yes, it does. Ah, it does. Okay. I'm just wondering if you set up, say, a string vari variable, this would be mm -hmm. just a quick um, side shoot. Set up a string variable, say, a string equals whatever. Do the variable pointer, find out where that a string data is being stored. Yeah, because the point, the variable pointer points to the little header that describes the pointer and the size of the string, I think. And then you have to use that, peaking that to get to the actual. Right. I'm just wondering if there's a way in basic you can t actually change that uh, poke, that actual value, to point to the screen. And then you can just, you know, move things via strings. That would work okay. vertically, but that wouldn't work horizontally, would it? I don't know. That's something How would you I do a vertical do. stripe of text to move over? Well, the idea is to, to get a copy of uh, at least 256 bytes of the screen by just pointing it at the screen. And then I was wondering if there's a way then you can... Um... Anyway, it, 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 it it's just an idea I just had. So... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad right. to see you're awake. Um... That's right. So, no, no, actually, now I've got to go to sleep so that I think about this in my sleep. And when I wake mm -hmm. up, uh, I'll have the answer. Like, well, but I'll bounce this that... off you, Nick. Uh, <laughs> get put buffers. Uh, the higher res ones are set for a 32 byte wide screen, which is the exact same width as the VDG text screen. There uh -huh. are pokes because basic has to keep track of which page you're starting on, right? Right. So, could you technically fool basic into thinking the text screen is a P mode 4 graphics screen and then just do get puts on the very top of that, the first 512 bytes of the pseudo P mode 4 screen, actually pointing yeah, to this? That might be better. And you can move things diagonally and all over the damn place. Yeah. Hmm. There you go. Yeah, you had to do a one up on me. Of course, <laughs> <laughs> it's my revenge for Neutroid. <laughs> anyway, Neutroid. Yeah. 
<laughs> anyway, for the basic programmers out there, I mean, this is something that I think would help. Like you can make a four-way scrolling, you know, adventure game or a racing car game or whatever else where it draws the track and you can actually have it scroll all over the darn place. So this, this I think you could do some pretty neat stuff. And this is all written in assembly, of course, so it's running at really fast speeds. And you just, the only thing you do is you poke like column number, row number, and the direction, which is zero to three. And it's pretty easy to use. So, um, <coughs> and further along that line, since you don't want to have to type all this crap in yourself here, the disk image, as well as the source code itself and the source code for the assembly language portion, not just the basic demo part, is all on his uh, GitHub. So that will be in the show notes. You can grab that from the Discord um, show notes part of the uh, Coco Nation show section. And uh, go grab all these. And I'd love to see what some of the programmers out there in, in the Coco Nation can actually do with this. Because uh, I can I can think of just tons of stuff just off the top of my head. You know, like a racing game or toying with the idea of like simulating a VDG screen on a color fog graphics screen. I don't know why you do that, but um just for kicks. Nick, there's a uh, VDG emulator for the Coco 3 graphics screen that Sockmaster did, isn't there? Oh, I can't remember that one. Because I think Larry Greenfield used it for his clue game because he didn't clue with low res, you know, semi-graphics and text for the Coco 1 and 2 way, way back. And then he wanted to make a Coco 3 version of it. And I think Sockmaster wrote in a semi-language thing that simulates the VDG and actually hooks it into the basics so it just runs normally, except it's wider and bigger characters because you have a 320 screen instead of just 256 pixels. Right. So I was thinking of just doing it windowed. Okay. But if you want to grab you- Socks or Teen Bob, if I'm pretty sure if you look for Coco 3 Clue, by Larry Greenfield on the archive, that should have the routine in there. And Sox said, whoever wants to use it can go ahead. I'll look for that. Thanks. Okay. So, so now looking at this, remember everyone wrote the Roadrunner game where you scroll in the one direction and you move things left and right and you try not to run into the walls? Yeah. Now you can do that in four directions. Isn't yes, that cool? that's exactly what I was getting at. <laughs> You you do a scrolling rogue game. Like one of the reasons rogue hasn't been converted to the Coco one and two, I don't think, because it's not that part of a game to implement, is that the screen's too small text-wise. Well, now you can do it like the level two version with the windowing system does where it shifts it over, except you do it smoothly here. You just shift it a character at a time. And uh you could actually write something that's an 80 by 25 and it fits on you a little viewable window of 32 by 16 or whatever. So you could do some pretty cool stuff with this. So in 1985, there wasn't any thought of this. No, there were some basic enhancements, and I can't remember. Alan DeCock did one. Tino DeBorgo did one. Colin J. Stearman on Cooking a Coco might have done something like that, too. I can't remember. Um, Charles Forsyth had one routine, but he only did vertical, uh, both directions and also you know a cutoff point. And he used it in a couple of his commercial games, actually, but I think that was publicly available. So there were some available at you know, good luck finding them these days. And here you've got, you know, one that's actually set up for all four directions, which I'm not sure if any of the other ones did. I think most of them were, you know, basically do a restricted window vertical scroll. Um, I don't recall any that did horizontal. And this will actually run on a 4K machine too, by the way. It does eat some of the 4K memory for the routine. Um, and of course, with 4K, you don't have discs here probably going to load this uh, routine either into the cassette buffer, which means you couldn't save or load, so don't do that, now that I'm thinking out loud. Um, 
But you you can put it at the top of RAM, and then you should be able to actually write a little basic game in 4K that has four-way scrolling too. And now we just need somebody to convert it to 6803 so you can run on the MC10 and you can port the games both ways. Anyway, thanks, Glenn. It's interesting that um, you would do that, and then you sit there being able to scroll but not do anything else, right? Pretty much. Well, the, the routine's not that big. I mean, basically on the MC10 with 4K or in the, even on the Cocoa with 4K, what you'd want to do is you'd want to load in the assembly language routine externally to the program you're actually running and then load your basic program so that the pokes and stuff don't have to coincide at the same time and take the memory up just to poke the routine. You want to like run that first and then have it automatically load in the actual program that uses it. That way it only takes a few hundred bytes instead of, you know, 500 to 1,000, whatever the source code does. Wonder if it works with the high semi graphics modes like SG twelve twenty four. I don't think this one does. I think this one's just set up for SG four, but there's no reason you couldn't modify it. Yeah, right. Yeah, X position, Y position, width and height, and then your direction, which is one of these four here. There's this error checking to see if you did something a little too stupid. You told it to do. Yeah, right make it pretty easy for even dummies like me to make a game as good as Nick's. Well, if it's Neutroid, that's not hard at all. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of Rally SG, but that might be reaching a little too Yeah, hard. like Rally SG and low res might be something to, to tackle for a, a lower end machine, because I think Rally SG takes 64K, Nick? My one does, yeah. Yeah, so if somebody wanted to make a, a smaller version yeah. for you know, a 16K Cocoa, that'd be perfect for it. Yeah. Wouldn't have Nick's flair, of course. <laughs> How many 16K Cocos are, do you think are out there? I see a lot of them on eBay still. Do you? I mean, yep. do they stay that way? I think it depends on who buys them. Yeah. Some people buy them to collect and they want the original machine. They don't want any mods to it. So they want the warranty seal to come off so you can't upgrade it. So it just depends on the person, I think. Yeah. And some people buy not having a clue can be upgraded because I mean the label says 16k and they probably think that's all it can do if they're not familiar with the cocoa. True. Now this one, Ron, you're gonna have to talk about because I think you actually took some of these screenshots on Simon's behalf, did you not? Yeah, we had some difficulty trying to get this thing to show using my uh camera on the phone. But um, you know, he's a genius, so <laughs> he just try this, try that. You know, so I, I try these different things and then he posts what he thinks is the best result. And here he's uh, added more color to, um, well, it's stuff the Coco VGA probably can do, right? Different yeah, it's done differently, color. though. Yeah, very different. Yeah, and I don't think you can call any of these colors up to um, use them in a program, right? Like, um, know, as long as the screen's not moving, you could. It's, it's precise timing. It's what he's, he's calling wobble mode. Right. This is where you're disabling. I'm trying to remember. Is it the H sync and V sync? Like I know Nick. Nick has done something similar to this in a different fashion. He did it for Erica. We actually showed it on the show where you can even mix text character scan lines together to create brand new characters that don't exist, as well as mix the background colors. And I think Nick, in your case, you were page flipping every V sync or something. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I was. Yeah, just a page flip. Yeah, so basically you require two screens, like 512 bytes for the first one, 512. So it takes a K to do well, the next method. I wrote a little driver that you installed, and it still allowed BASIC to run. So 
the idea is you could write a basic program to create all the colors while it right and the mix characters yeah. yeah mixing characters on the screen so i couldn't do too much cpu stuff in between and page flipping was the easiest one but yeah. it did work Simon's is a bit different because it's it's using a same trick that Karen used to do smooth scrolling, which you, means you're kind of tricking the combination of the Sam and the VDG to start displaying things within a character cell and shifting them, so you can change colors within a character cell. And and then basically the advantage of of that method is, is that you only need one screen; you don't need page flipping, so you can just get away with 512 bytes. You save half a K. Disadvantage: it's more CPU intensive quite a bit more CPU intensive. Yeah. Um, but if you need to get these kinds of effects and you're an assembly language programmer and you want to do some, you know, fairly static screens type thing, you could write a 4K program that would normally require 16K, for example, or, you know, 16 versus 32 or something. So it's a different technique and there's some definitely some interesting stuff you could do it on. He also had a video demo, I think, kind of demonstrating the scrolling port of it. Yeah, I think this is here. Oh, no, this is just the colors again. But you can kind of see he's yeah. got the color bars here halfway through the character. So he's kind of switched the characters as it's being displayed. But you can color mix and stuff. And I know, like, Nick, you when you were doing this stuff for Erico, you had, I don't know, we figured out how many colors, like 40-something or something like that. Yeah, it, it's quite good, except, of course, the flickering, the slight flickering. Or under yeah. certain combinations, yeah. And the other disadvantage is, as we discussed earlier today, is that... Uh, if you're running through a, a VGA or HDMI converter, or if you're trying to stream it live over the web at 30 yeah, frames per yeah. second, it, it's going to break trying to display it completely. Yeah, it's going to break or it's not going to like it. Or, well, yeah, well isn't, isn't uh, a complaint we get about NTSC that none of the colors are always the same from monitor to no. monitor? That's what no, it means. Never the same different. color. <laughs> yeah. but, but it's pretty close. I mean... Yeah, it wouldn't be this case. I mean, that's talking about artifacting. That's a totally different. Yeah, that's different. Thing. Well, how is that has this to do with different? phase shifting and stuff? Because these these are fixed colors that actually do show up the same. The only way you change these colors is if you just just the tint control on the monitor or something. But what oh. he's doing here is he's basically displaying two colors onto the same spot at the same time. So if I put two oranges, it'll just look like orange. But if I put an orange and a red, well, then it's going to look like a reddish orange in between those two colors because it's actually going between both really so really fast. Mixing. Yeah, it's mixing. So is there a transparency involved here? Um, if you had a black background as one of your two colors, then yeah, you can make it sort of transparent. Or you could you have a text color and then a color over top, which that static image you took kind of shows, like when you had the letters with the little lines and stuff. Yeah. Because he's changing the color on the alternate ones, you know, on individual scan lines through different color while also displaying the text at the same time. So it's kind of ghosting them over top of each other. Which is pretty well exactly the same effect that Nick got with the page flipping version of it, but it takes a bit more RAM. I'm going to yeah, have to do that routine. My camera, I had to play with the uh, color, the um, brightness control because... Um, it's whited well, we, itself out? <laughs> yeah, and we used uh, an LCD screen and we also went to a TV. And um, I also had to use a um, a really good cable so I didn't get the inf interference crap going on. Yeah. Sorry, you're just saying something to Nick or? Oh, I was just saying I'm going to have to dig up that um, the routine I did and just because I remember 
You should just um, post it up because I think people that do programming yeah. in basic oh. would like having the extra colors and the custom character sets and stuff. Well, I did an, an engine which by whereby um, you could have it as a uh, an adventure game, and then Eric was going to create pictures well, in the Erico. top half of the screen. Erico, yeah, and he had, do um, some uh, multicolored images in SG four for the top half of the screen, while he had a normal basic. Um, yeah, uh, bottom half for the text below. prompts. Yeah, but I don't have a full engine for that actually. I have to yeah, dig it up. And you never right. uploaded it, did you? I think you just no, tried no, it on the well, show. Well, I'm going to have to dig it up and remember what I did. Yeah, well, dig dig it up. We'll write some documentation. We should get that up in the archive because then the basic programmers can use it. And they there they can go right after uh, Neutroid uh, aboard everything else and do this. No. Well, oh, that's you. already done. This should take you like five minutes to write documentation, right? Oh, yeah. i got to remember what I did. On some of these screens, he had me put a poke in. And then um, I did it on uh, one Coco 2 I had that had a melting keyboard. And the ampersand um, stopped working or wasn't working. And so I thought, oh, gee, great. So I pulled out a Coco 1, and then we were using that for a while. And that seemed to work just fine, too. What do you mean the ampersand didn't, didn't work? The keyboard failed. Uh, it, oh, okay, it, yeah. It had nothing to do with the program, it, just it, bad it, luck. Yeah, <laughs> did, yeah, so what? you know what I had to do for that machine was uh, save off on um, the Coco SDC, the um, basic the program, so I could load it in, yeah, on, on another machine, yeah. <laughs> and then I did it that way, just what so exactly? we'd have the same. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask uh, Curtis, what exactly is the wobble mode? What's he exactly doing? How is he's he... basically breaking the sync between the characters. So he's kind of doing what Kieran did. If you remember that scrolling P mode four demo, the smooth scroll he did with hardware. So he is he shifting the screen up or down? Yeah, with yeah. a different you know Both. character there. So, so in this video, you can see the color sort of coming in and out with bars, and I'm right. sure you don't see that if you're really looking at a monitor. It just yeah, it'd be a very slight thing. flicker, I would still imagine, but yeah, there is yeah. it's slight. You have to pay attention, you know, get your eye close to it. <clears throat> mm. But yeah, Nick, you should dig dig that up there because you yours actually ran in the background with basic too, so that was really nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering if there's a, a way of doing his version on one screen, but writing a routine for in the background for basic that only wobbles the top, say, half of the screen and then mm. goes back to normal so you can still have the bottom half to be normal so the basic program can still use it. And, and just then have the top use half screen scroll with lock so you can have a 40-whatever-color image at the top in semi-graphic. Moves, yeah. yeah. pull the bottom smooth in whatever four directions. Uh, yeah. That's yeah, <laughs> I, I asked him, you know, if you go four five bars down on the left side there or right side and see that maroon color, you know, if I how do you get that maroon color? You know, is it addressable? Is it something you can actually produce? Because you produce or you you can, but it's usually used for static images because both well, Nick's maybe a little bit less so, but both these take a fair bit of CPU time because you're trying to change what's drawn in the background. You know, several times 
per viewable frame, I guess, per 30th thick. You basically, you're alternating about every 60th of a yeah, second. Yeah, I'd have to have a look. Wobble mode's a little bit different, but, you know, sim similar idea. I can't remember exactly what I did. That's several years ago. I think in your case, you just basically just did a V-Sync and you just swapped, you know, the top of the screen, what was getting displayed. I did, yeah, I did. And then you shut that off or repointed the pointer back to the original screen for the bottom half, and then it just, you know, it just looked normal. I think. But mine was meant to be an environment that anyone then could use to create programs. They they didn't have to worry about all that. It was just um, doing loading the machine code in and you controlled it with a few pokes. And in the meantime, you just wrote your basic program. And yeah, it, it would slow down basic a bit, but not tremendously. And then oh, you so, could, yeah, it'd be, there, there's a slight slowdown, but not too bad. And because a basic on a Coco one or two is in ROM, of course you can just turn the speed up poke on and yeah. you know regain it back. Yeah, now th this was going to be for an adventure game, not really for an arcade game. Yeah, but I mean technically, because you were just doing it on V syncs as opposed to by individual scan lines, that you could make an arcade game just combine a couple to get you well, know, different colors. Technically, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I've got so to go. This is like a science, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a bunch of timing techniques is basically what it is. Yeah, what if I do this? That that's what yeah. uh, Simon does. Simon says I get right back to you ten minutes, and then he comes <laughs> back. <laughs> Try this one, and then he says I add a poke, see what happens. That's kind of like me sending code for Nitrous Nine Level One to David Ladd back in the day, except I yeah. normally crash his machine every time. Yeah, and sometimes he says, uh, "Why isn't it working? It should be working." <laughs> I say that all the time in my code. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this next one uh, is based on a Facebook post by Carl Doherty. Um, it's an interesting video card project that is meant to work with a variety of 8-bit systems, and it's basically a modern video card with a mega RAM, video RAM on it. And one of the targets for the 8-bit system that this will be hosted on is a 6809. So huh. this technically could work on a Coco. So for the people that are in the audio viewing here, you actually got some pretty impressive looking graphics here. There's a 512 color palette. Um, you can get up to 16 or 256 colors with transparency, et cetera. So I'll just read kind of the specs here. So it's an all new video display processor compatible with Z80, Z80, 6502, 6709, and other 8-bit machines. High quality, high performance arcade level graphics, up to six layers independently positioned, chosen from... You've got text with four software fonts built in, 16 colors from a palette of 512. So it's got the same number of colors as an Atari ST does. Um, and, you know, eight times as much as a Coco 3 normally does. Uh, bitmap graphics, which can be 16 or 256 color palettes with transparency. Tile-based systems, so 16 color 8 by 8 tile maps full scrolling. This would have been perfect for the Wizard's Den. Um, and up to 96 sprites of 16 by 16 pixels with 16 color 16 palettes for the sprites. You can have up to 1,024 sprite and up to a 4,096 tile definitions. Resolutions can go from 320 by 240, 640 by 480, 424 by 240, and up to 848 by 480, which is into Super VGA territory. And uh, if you notice those resolutions there, that's both 4 to 3 ratio, like our old TV monitors and stuff were, and 16 by 9, which is you know the modern widescreen TVs we're all used to. 512 color palette, a megabyte of video RAM built in, a programmable line interrupt built in. So it basically you can get an interrupt as it hits each scan line. Memory mapped interface, emulate 16K static RAM, including paging controls, would be like the MMU on the Coco 3. 
some hardware stuff like, you know, voltage regulation on the board, 5-volt compatible I.O. Um, fast external SD card interface. I'm not sure what you load on the SD card, but uh, maybe the tile maps and stuff, you can just load it right off there instead of having to power them up to the card from the host computer. It's about the size of a Pi Pico, 25 by 52 millimeters. And, and for the audio listeners, basically the person's holding it between their thumb and their index finger, and they're not that spread apart. So, you know, just literally, I think an inch by two inches, roughly, is the size of the card. This isn't going to put a little crater in our CPU? <laughs> no, it should actually help it out, if anything. And as you can see, some, you know, samples here with some actual sprites flipping around and some, you know, color effects, et cetera. And there's what it kind of looks like in one 8-bit machine. I'm not sure which one it is. But that looks like a really interesting project, so... Of course, that's another video standard that's out there. We've got the Super Sprite FM Plus board, which also has sound built in too. So maybe that's still a better one. Plus, that one actually has some software support of the Dragon, the Coco already. So, this would... so when this is running, the uh, VDG is just sitting there going. Dun, 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 dun. Well, I'm thinking you might be able, depending how this works, you might have a second display. You can actually yeah. do both at the same time. Okay. But I don't know for sure. This is just a quick one I mentioned that we mentioned earlier that uh, Bill got the Matchbox, Coco, and Mr. version of EOU version 1.0.0, uh, which went up on Thursday. So you can go down onto the download portion of the EOU page on my site. And you can download it somewhere near, oh, right here at the top. So you can go download it now if you have a Matchbox, Coco, or a Mr. With Roger Taylor's code, I don't think it works with the free public domain Coco 3 core. I don't think that's far enough along to run this yet. The um, OS 9 hasn't been fixed for that problem with the latest firmware yet. I don't know if I'm going to bother because, I mean, the way to fix is I have to slow everything down. That, right. to me, is a bug in the SDC. That's not a bug. It's I didn't change in the code. None of the code for accessing the SDC has changed. Um, right. And it's, it's, it's just... Darren's own driver that he broke. Because he wrote that SDC driver. So I now that Bill's kind of got free time, I know Bill was in contact with Darren early on. And they were going to try to you know work out between them because we don't want to slow it down. One of the advantages of having the SDC is it's faster than a standard floppy driver or hard drive. So slowing it down just rubs me the wrong way. And uh, I'm hoping he can just you know reverse that little snip of the code and leave some of the other extras that he put in at the same time because he did do some other updates that aren't affected you know, have no effect on this or figure um, out what's actually broken and patch that. And so that you get all the new features. Yeah, exactly. That would be the ideal situation, but I know he's been running low on space in that thing. So depending on what has to be done, I don't know. So is the previous firmware available somewhere? If you have the new one and you would really just like, yes, to run you can. Off? Yes. Where, can someone put that in chat or something? Cause I don't know. I'm I'm clueless, but I have a newer one, and I would like it to not be so new. Alan, do you know is there an official repository for the various versions, or is it just we have, we should just throw one up there for people to use? I think we're just going to dig it out of our personal collections and share it back if you don't have it. But okay. I have, can I can find a place to put it somewhere on the Discord or send put it in the in the Nitro Sign ease of use because that's the only product so far that's been affected by it. Really, because we were pushing, you know, the, the, the original driver was kind of pushing the old 639 transfers as fast as possible. And uh, that's what's broke. Rick, your is voice that... is low. I'm sorry, my mic is uh, 
expensive and useless. <laughs> now that, that's the SDC basic. Is for, the one that busted your SDC? That's the update. The uh, MCU. Yeah. The SDC oh. DOS, you can do. That works fine. Okay. It's just the MCU software. Okay. So, okay. and that's only when running the 6309 version of Nitus Correct. 9. Correct. The 6309 version is already slow enough as it is that it doesn't have a problem. <laughs> right. <laughs> And that's the alternative. I mean, if you don't want to, if you want to keep that firmware for whatever the, the other reasons are, you can run the six nine version. Nitrous nine runs fine, but you're going to yeah. lose like thirty to four percent of your speed. And I'm, I'm too scared to go back and uh, reburn my firmware. Yeah, no one wants to do that. No, not not again. Because oh, you did that before, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I've got the latest version now. No, I'm too scared to try go back in case I wreck it again. Well, <laughs> you have more than one uh, SDC. Card, right? Yeah, but they right, both yeah. got the new firmware. Oh, you make right, another. But you one. got two chances. <laughs> <laughs> it's like flipping a coin, Nick. Come on. <laughs> Actually, if you flash the like, you basically you, you wore your old one out. Now you got two yeah. new ones, so you should have no problem doing the firmware update. Oh right, yeah. Unless it fixes what the disclaimer. Is. I'm not responsible if Nick's SDC fails working after he tries the update. <laughs> I bought a Dynex TV like that one and th thinking it was really cheap and awful and no one ever uses it. And then here's one there on the screen. Oh, cool. Never heard of it. No, they're pretty cool. They're Are they? You got one? They say. Yeah, I've got a couple of Dynex things. Like I say, they're cheap oh. and cheerful. They work. And when they die, you throw them away because you didn't pay much for them. Oh. Move on. <laughs> it came with a zapper. All right. We got any more news? Oh, yeah. That's, I was just waiting for them to quit talking. Yeah, um, we're at the five hour mark. Yeah, you shouldn't do that. You should just move on. Yeah, just let me get through it here. My wife's in Ohio. We keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, so this, back. this video here is actually by Brendan Donahue of Coco VGA fame. So um, this is a modification for the MC10, and it's a, about a nine minute video that explains how to do it as far as he's gotten so far. So one of the things with the MC-10, it's got a VDG just like the Coco, but it only has 4K RAM on board. And the VDG can only access onboard RAM. So if you plug in a RAM expander pack or an STC, whatever, it doesn't use that. You can't get it like a P-Mode 4 screen or P-Mode 3 screen because it's too big. What he's doing here, and some people have hacked in an 8K RAM where they can actually get you know, P-Mode 4. But what he's trying to do now, Brendan, is trying to get it past that. So this here is a circuit, and he shows you how to do it here to get it up to 16K. And now he's adding in some extra stuff so you can actually change the starting address, because that's another thing you could not do on the original. Uh, so you can actually do page flipping, et cetera. And he's actually going to try to expand it to do up to 32K of addressable video RAM. So you can page flip like multiple pages. You can move it in memory in that 32K wherever the heck you want. That's the ultimate goal. This is the project to do the 16K version. I will let you guys watch the video to see the details. Jeez, it didn't and, even look like a MC10 because it was black. Yeah. And then another MC10 here. This is something that was common on Coco 1s and 2s back in the day. There's an inverse uh, pin on the VDG, which basically just inverts you know, to the green on black or green on dark mm. green text. And uh, basically what this little article on Brendan's site is, is how to make that same mod with a switch on the MC-10. So you can turn it on or off whenever you want. So if you want inverse video, click the switch. And this one actually isn't that hard to do. Now he's showing it here on a machine that actually has like a Coco VGA and some other stuff in it. You don't need any of that stuff for this to work. You can just tap it off the VGA and add the switch. That's all you need. You don't need this extra stuff. 
So if you guys want to have inverse video on your MC10, there's the complete instructions and including photos and stuff of exactly how to do it. I just and, and posted a, a, the same thing for the Coco that I used to use, you know, back in yeah. the... Yeah, you did the software one, which I remember yeah. having as well. But I remember a lot it of was, people in our club here used the hardware switch. Yeah, yeah, and I, I had the hardware switch on my Coco 2 way back then too because I wanted it to boot that way. Yeah. That's why most of the people in our club did that too. And it's mostly the programmers that did it. A few I, I people really that were in school and did word processing. I really hated that green. <laughs> you still do. <laughs> well, it, it, it didn't calm me at all. No, no <laughs> hated past tense there. You can't see it on a black and white monitor. No, but I did have a color screen. So, yeah. Uh, next up, Julian Brown, who actually I think was in the chat earlier here too. Uh, one of our dragon people that's actually been doing the, uh, the new motherboards to replace. Now he's been working on keyboards. Uh, I think we covered this last week or the week before. He actually got some spacers, and he's just using some keys around just to see for making a replacement keyboard, and they didn't quite fit properly. I think they were sunk too low, if I remember, into the, the case because a lot of empty right. space. So now he's got 15-millimeter spacers. He said, looks right, but has revealed a very slight misalignment of the keys, which you can kind of see in this picture here. So basically, it needs to shift up one millimeter or the thickness of a dime. And left one and a half millimeters or one and a half dimes. So it's a Welcome little bit off center. To my world. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he's he's working on that. And once he gets everything finished there, then you can actually start sourcing the keys properly because he's just throwing in whatever he had kind of handy. And once he's done that, he's going to have to shift it 0.25 millimeters to the left. And <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, how many and dimes to buy some, it? Right. I don't know because he's still he's still working on what he needs to make this, so it, you know, the price isn't fixed yet. So he's going to be the new Mark Data right. for the Dragon, yes. Right with professional keycaps and and some more Dragon. We got John Whitworth here now has details and pricing for a Super RGB board for the Dragon and the Coco. So this kind of covers both. This plugs into the 6847 VDG socket, both the normal and the T1 variant, so it works on both and provides RGB output for Coco 1s, 2s, Dragon 32s, and Dragon 64s. Um, he currently cool. sells it as a kit style, and he has some optional extras there, so some special stuff for the SAM, et cetera, that you can also do. We kind of covered this before, but he's actually got these up for sale now. And depending on you know how much pre-construction you want done versus uh, you know soldering stuff yourself, it's between 35 to 46 pounds. So are you saying that you could look at your Coco 1 and 2 on your um, 8? CMA. CMA. I'm trying to remember if there was any restrictions on the refresh rate of the RGB. I, I'm assuming as long as the 15.75 kilohertz, 60 hertz RGBs, a Magnavox or a CMA should work, I'm guessing. And plus some other things like a NEC Multisync, NEC Multisync 2. Atari ST, Amiga monitors, you might have to fiddle with polarities and stuff in there, but yes, I think so. I think, yeah, I think it's only if it, it doesn't do a scan double or anything like that. And then the final story was one we've already talked about here, but this is the actual website link for the Dragon Meetup, 7th and 8th of October, 2023, at the Center for Computer, Computing History in Cambridge, UK. Cool artwork. And there's the prices for the entrance fees on for each day for adults and children and a family as a whole. And the concession, if you want to get some of the food while you're there too. There's some pictures here from previous years. Here's what they also mentioned that it is 
this year to celebrate it, it's going to make it all about the software. And then it, you have some stuff on games, I have some stuff on Flex and OS 9, the 80 column Dragon Plus system to show 80 columns, and then Fusix. I'm presuming that's what this part over here is about. So Can you I would love to, if anybody's going to that show in the UK, uh, contact us at the Cocoa Nation show. We'd love to do a little bit of live streaming from the show again, like we did previous years. And as we mentioned before, I'd love to see a, a Dragon Cocoa collaboration for at least one of the games that you guys are playing. Because um, as they said here, and hold some competition, see who's the best Dragons game player. So let's let's throw some Coco people in the mix too while we're at it. What date was that going to be out um, happening? October seventh and eighth, October, right? So, so a couple months. Up, uh, could you hook up a Dragon and a Coco to um, play the um, P fifty one? Yes. Game? Yeah. Maybe not. Does the Dragon 64 still have the Bitbanger serial, or has it only got the 6551 that I don't remember? Because that means... Nobody ever says that. <laughs> if it doesn't have a Bitbanger, you might not be able to do it with a Dragon 64, but I think the Dragon 32 would work. I would have thought the 64 would have it plus the serial. If you've got it might. a real serial port, you can still Bitbang it. Well, as I was asking, like it still has the Bitbanger serial I.O.? Because it has a real parallel port and a real serial port, so I was wondering, did they yank it out because they didn't really need it? But you can use, you can just Bitbang the real serial port, and all you need is a cable. Well, you can, but did Tom mix? Yeah, you'd have to reprogram P51 because it's going to attack the PIA to do it, not the 6551. That port's easy to find with your debugger. Yeah, but cool. it's a, quite a bit of different programming to do it. Let us know when you're done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I don't know. Like, it might already have the Bitbanger still in there. I don't remember. Does the Dragon Sixty Four have a Bitbanger? Well, now they'll have it at their <clears throat> show, right? <clears throat> Someone bring up a picture of the Dragon Sixty Four on the back. So just the Tano so you has know this. that the uh, the drive wire stuff uses one of the control lines. On the parallel port as bit bang serial. Boom. <laughs> so okay, but you still have to patch it then because the, the parallel port will not be addressed the same as 6551, nor the setup bits would be the same, correct? Right. So it still need patches irregardless. But we're gonna have a whole room full of dragon nerds. <laughs> yeah, with Stuart and Karen there, maybe then one of them can get it done. <laughs> I mean, you know, can they get P51 to work between a Dragon 64 and a Coco? Let's see how it goes by the end of the show. Yeah, that would be <laughs> cool. <laughs> see, there's a direct challenge to them in October. Yeah. Have at Do it, guys. It. So, in, in my opinion, it should be possible. Because if DriveWire can be modded to work with the Bitbank. Oh, no, it's definitely possible. I'm not saying it's impossible, but uh, DriveWire, you have, you have source code for It's not that hard to patch. Has anybody disassembled P fifty one so they can figure out where to redo that? Well, just just uh, what what is it? Why not use Mame? Do the trap on the port. You're volunteering, right, David? No, you know Mame's <laughs> the bugger perfectly, Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I got too much stuff on my plate. I can't do it. Oh, really? It, it so David's happen. volunteering. We all heard it here. No, no, no. Curtis, you're the best meme debugger here. No, I'm is, not. Is Kieran in the uh, in the Kieran chat? Was in the chat earlier. 
He was earlier. Right. Yeah. He, well, he, a, he wouldn't think that five hours later we're still on. Yeah. You know, it is. Uh, I'm looking at a picture of a Dragon 64, and there is a, a jack there, but I can't read the label. But yeah, because it could be cassette, it could be a joystick. No, I can see the or tape. Bio. I can There's see the two the left too. and right joysticks, and there is another one, and that one I can't read the lettering. You'll find I it assume. when we go off the air. I thought the parallel port was on the side. It is, and the serial is right next to it, or, or what I think is the RS2 Yeah, and that's the DB25 serial, right? No, no, it's a round one. Oh. Hang on. Wasn't there a power it. jack, also some weird round yeah, DIN connector? Yes. Right. It's a nine DE9 on the Tana. Because I know it was a 6551. I thought it was using a DB25 because DB9 wasn't popular that early on. Well, there's a DIN jack with one, two, three, seven pins. That might be the power connector. Ah, maybe that word says power. (laughs) Wayland, who's actually in, 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 in that that realm of things there. So the Dragon 64 is a real serial port. It's not the same as Cocoa Serial. It doesn't have the uh, the uh, Cocoa It's actually like the Cocoa with the RS-232 card. Yeah, it's an RS-232 yeah. pack. It's the same chip, 6551. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's FF04, I believe, is the start address for the Dragon 64 slash Tano serial port, I believe. I might be wrong on that address, but I'm pretty sure that's what the 6551's port is. But now Mikey is saying his Tano Dragon, and, and, and Tom Eric Gunderson said this too, that the R32 and the Dragon 64, or on the Tano Dragon, is a it's DIN a connector. Man. It's not a DB9. Right. It's a DB9. It's a, a DE9. Uh, and it's uh, the, right, the 6551 is a DIN connector. The DE9 connector that's on the Dragon and the the regular Dragon 64 and I believe 32, those are the multi-voltage input lines from the power supply. Yeah. There's people in yeah, Don't mix those up, laughing. plugging them in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, Wayland says you can add the drive wire port, which is basically the Coco serial. What, what's not, a drive wire port? Is that a hardware thing? Good question. We'll find out when they stream to us playing P51. Yeah. And right. Also, the D9 is the PSU, correct? So, Can I share a screen? No. We'll go ahead. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Is that coming through? That yep. looks like a serial port. Well, now that's, that's because it's a D9, but that's, that's the power. That's the back. Hang on. Oh, the other one's a monitor. That's a Dragon 32 on the side. Yeah, because it says reset, joystick, tape, joystick. But note note the way this one here is blank. If you go to a Dragon 64, if if this thing actually, here we go, there's a Dragon 64. It has an That's the 6551 serial. That's the serial port. That's the serial. IEC is the parallel port to the right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But that right, looks like the JNM one. That DIN connector is the Dragon 64 slash Tano 6551 serial port. Right. And how many pins is that, uh, David? Seven. Seven. Um, Seven. Yeah, it's 
There's the 12 volt plus, I think the 12 volt minus, I might be wrong, but you'd have to look at the schematic, but the positive and negative voltages come out of that port as well. So yeah, you, you need to be careful out. if you plug anything into that. <laughs> There's a lot of people in England laughing right now. Right. Yeah, like, they, are, they already know what we're looking at. That since the 1700s, Ron. It's fine. Yeah, really? Wayne <laughs> so, was saying, yeah, you can buy one. He's talking about the Bitbanger drive wire port. So that's an additional bit of hardware. Yeah. Yes. And I believe that plugs into the parallel port. That would make sense. sense. You can clock every yeah. line. So, and no matter which method you use, though, it sounds like you would have to patch P51 software-wise. Yeah. You can't just plug it in or swap it in. Yeah. Somebody's crying. <laughs> Let's wrap the show. Did someone plug Yeah, in my cats are crying about that. They've been in here a few times bitching at me. So. It's not dark yet. My dog, too. Oh, no, wait. they want to get fed. August. All right. Well, on that note, then, I guess everybody's wanting to the show to end. Oh, hang on. Uh, I'm going to share another screen. Just tell me how it comes out. <laughs> how does that look? Colorful. Yeah, it's not doing the flashing between properly, though. We're getting the missed frames. Yeah, now that it, it looks good on my screen, but yeah, yeah. over the uh, internet, you lose. Yeah, that you need to write some docs for it, how to interface with it, and then release the disk image so people well, can fiddle is, it. Well, this was only a test program I was doing at the time to try see what it looks like all the extra colors there's another one i did as well i can't find that yet you need um, to hook up with simon um the other thing that you could try um is see if you could use mames avi write feature and right. actually create a video output from mame and see if it actually does a uh, AVI at the the full sixty frames. Yeah, because right. Nick loves emulators so much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he's, he's gonna be right on Jump top right of that. In there and, yeah. Well, it's well, see either that or else he has to get a, a, a better capture device. We're gonna have to do an after dark episode of all of Nick's cussing at the emulator. While Orange new Australian words. Uh, yeah. yeah. We're, 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 we're going to show some Nick some interesting words. I didn't know how was how you spell kookaburro. Crikey. Any more news? The crikey. Nope. Uh, I'm done. The show's done. So, uh, thanks again to Matt Harper for being our interview guest this week. Thank you, Matt. Very interesting. We just haven't pushed the red buttons yet. Matt, work on version two. <laughs> This concludes another episode of The Coco Nation, the world's leading live interactive talk show featuring the Tandy Color Computer. For all things The Coco Nation, visit us on the web at thecoconation.com. We'd love to hear from you. Send feedback suggestions, even segments via email to show at thecoconation.com. The Coco Nation Show would not exist without the community and its cast and crew. The Coco Nation theme song copyright 2022 D. Bruce Moore. Mixed, mastered, and produced by D. Bruce Moore. The Coco Nation is over. Join us on the Coco Discord server. Coco forever.
Where in the heck is D. Bruce Moore been? I haven't seen him. He's around. My guess would be Canada. Yeah, good guess. Or life. You know, everybody has. Uh, He was last spotted on Earth. His son's 23 now. (laughs) (laughs) That could be a problem. Anyway, I'm out of here, guys. We'll see you all next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.